Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. This is episode 81. It's May 22nd, 2022. We've got a lot of clips to go over tonight. Uh, we're going to start out with a really short clip from Representative Thomas Massey. He took to the floor, took a few minutes. They had a little extra time, so he squeezed in an important message about Ross Ulbricht, who's been serving a, a double life sentence, something like that, with $240 million fine for creating a non uh non-violent uh internet site back when he was like 24 years old the kid was an eagle scout so let's uh we'll be checking into uh what thomas massey had to say on behalf of ross Ulbricht's case and then we're going to get into <clears throat> this week's episode is titled monkeypox mania and i'm going to say up front i don't think you should be scared of the monkeypox i think it's uh, a little diversion from things going on if you look up uh the picture of monkeypox and you maybe look at the photo for shingles you'll notice they use identical photos for these things there might actually be some fallout from all these injections over the past year you might be seeing a side effect kind of masquerading as monkeypox the original episode title for this week was the who the wah and the wef the world health organization the world health assembly which is going on right now to do this international treaty and the world economic forum is also having their Davos conference right now. So um, this uh, accord, this pandemic accord that the world health assembly is putting through is looking to usurp nation states rights of individuals in those countries and be able to classify basically anything as a pandemic going forward, which is a total power grab. And if you were to look at the general grammar, who are the people that make up those organizations? And most importantly, who funds them? You might be, you might find people like Billy Bob Gates. So we're going to be getting into those stories tonight. There's a whole lot on that. Also, um, kicking it off tonight, we're going to have Luke Radowski, but I want to set up this clip because there's a clip that plays right in the beginning. And it's um, from the World Economic Forum davos conference you're going to hear from albert borla he's the ceo of pfizer and he's talking about some ingestible pill that has like a microchip in it and i know like last year we all heard news about that and we were told there's no such thing on the horizon that microchips inside your body are not something that these people are looking to do and yet and yet i think their actions speak way louder than their words. Let's go to Luke Radowski of We Are Change and Best Political T-shirt, BestPoliticalShirts.com, and kick it off for tonight's festivities. It is a basically biological chip that it is in the tablet, and once you take the tablet and dissolves into your stomach, sends a signal that you took the tablet. So imagine the applications of that, uh, compliance, uh, the insurance companies to know that the medicines that patients should take, they do take them. Uh, it is uh, fascinating what happens in, in uh, this field. Oh, microchips, huh? I, I wonder if the fact checkers are going to fact check this one. And that's the stuff that they're discussing pu publicly. Imagine what they're discussing privately. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Luke Radowski here of WeAreChange.org. And there's a lot of very important information to get in today. As, of course, there's some very important meetings happening over in Switzerland right now. Lots of diabolicalness, financial craziness, and insanity that will have you going. Wait, wait, are, are they deliberately just trying to ruin our lives? Well, we're going to be answering that question plus a lot more, all exclusively on this independent media organization. But the video that we played in 
the beginning of this broadcast is, of course, the CEO of a very big pharma agency that has a lot of lucrative government contracts and no liability for their product that has enriched themselves to welts that the world has never seen before, creating more billionaires than ever, just telling you about microchips that people will be taking inside of their bodies that could be wirelessly sending a signal to the authorities to make sure that citizens have complied and taken their mandatory dose of whatever his private multinational unaccountable corporation wants you to take. This on the heels of a lot of extortion efforts, manipulation efforts by governments and other authorities just months ago, pushing a product which has had some negative consequences on some people and uh, statistically hasn't proven its, its value. I'll just leave it at that. But what the CEO of Pfizer is talking about is, of course, the advancement of technology that is quickening, that is moving very fast as the World Economic Forum likes to talk about how they're coming towards a fourth industrial revolution. The stuff that they're talking about is not the stuff of conspiracy theories, it is the stuff of reality, especially when you start to learn about quantum computing, artificial intelligence, and the larger advancements that have been happening in technology that will, of course, change the way we live our life drastically. The World Economic Forum, a confab of, of globalists and billionaires and unaccountable bureaucrats, love to talk about this stuff since, of course, a lot of them will be taking advantage of this technological revolution to create situations that benefit them, while, of course, most likely hurting you and, and the average person, since, you know, that's the way that they've been doing business for uh, a very long time. Will we get more eye-opening admissions from the head of Pfizer and other multinational unaccountable corporations and media organizations and Bankers, today, as the World Economic Forum just started their annual meeting today in Switzerland, well, who knows? We're going to be keeping a close eye on this meeting, watching, of course, all the events that are going to be unfolding there publicly. But in my opinion, these are important issues, important contexts that, that we should definitely be talking about because the larger conversations about how this new technology will be implemented is being decided by unaccountable, non-transparent parties that, of course, have a horse in this race and are set to profit a lot from this larger technological revolution, as even Yaval Noah Harari, a man that we have brought up many times on this independent media broadcast, he is known as the right-hand man to Klaus Schwab, head of the World Economic Forum, another corrupted businessman, who literally talks about how the global sickness within the last two and a half years, quote, helped convince people to accept to legitimize total biometric surveillance. This is his own words saying this, going on and saying, quote, we need to not just monitor people, we need to monitor what's happening under their skin. This is the same man that prophesizes that humanity should be pacified with video games and drugs because of the larger technological revolution which will create a whole bunch of quote, useless people. Ruling elites talking about useless people. Where have I heard that be before? Oh yeah, most of human atrocities throughout recorded human history. And of course, it's not just the World Economic Forum that's meeting in Switzerland with a lot of corrupted top officials in governments and corporations. It's also the World Health Organization with the United Nations that will be meeting in Geneva, Switzerland, very close to the Davos World Economic Forum meeting. A lot of the same speakers, a lot of the same attendees will of course be going to both of these meetings as this World Health Organization Assembly is set to start to implement a global treaty which supposedly will be agreed upon by world leaders at this specific meeting and specifically will codify a new set of rules and laws and, and powers to the World 
Health Organization in order to help battle future sicknesses. And this is, of course, something that Tucker Carlson has labeled as total tyranny, the total usurping of American domestic power and decision-making that's going to be handed over to the World Health Organization. That's just a short synopsis of his take on this treaty, which, of course, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, is set to agree upon, which, according to a lot of people, is going to be giving a lot of power for the World Health Organization to make policies here domestically inside of the United States. Now, whether we should give these powers or not, it's something that should at least go up to a vote, should at least be discussed, should at least be debated, especially on the heels of the World Health Organization having an absolutely atrocious record of their handling of the last two and a half years, proving to be absolute liars, proven to absolutely cover up important information for the benefit of China. And if you could give them a report card for how they handled the last two and a half years, I would essentially expel them out of any classroom because they have no legitimacy at all with how horribly they have handled the last two and a half years. They have flip-flopped on major issues, caused confusion, have not helped people, and I think there's a legitimate argument to make here that the World Health Organization has actually created situations that devastated people more because of their actions and have created more pain and suffering that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for them. I think there's a legitimate reason to argue this. This organization needs to be held accountable for, for their lies, for their clear misdoings, for their clear corrupted cover-up of the Chinese government, for clearly not even finding out what caused this global sickness two and a half years ago, for not even trying to help people, implementing policies that have hurt people. This organization doesn't need to be promoted, doesn't need to have more power, doesn't need to have a treaty codifying it. It needs to be put in a court of law and face all the charges that it is being accused of in a legitimate legal forum where they could be held responsible for their actions and not given more power blanketly, blindly by the president of the United States, who clearly is all not there and just a puppet of the larger multinational industrial complex that benefits fits greatly off of his supposed incompetence, which they're using as a cover to push their agenda on you, your family members, and to screw you over even more. What else are they going to be discussing at the World Health Organization meeting and the World Economic Forum? Also, coincidentally, an animal-based monkeypox. This as just a few months ago. We detailed to you how there was a lot of coincidental forewarning about this very specific event by some very powerful individuals that are set to profit from it, as even there was an incident not so long ago from monkeys that were being experimented on on their way to a CDC-approved quarantine facility that were literally let out loose to the general public after a truck crash. There was one woman who helped out these monkeys after the crash and allegedly had pink eyes so severe that she had to go to the emergency room after, of course, these lab experimented on monkeys that were undergoing horrific gain-of-function research on, which absolutely, according to many scientific experts, has no scientific benefit at all, except for maybe the creation of bioweapons. Why in the world are we still continuing this? Why in the world are the horrible organizations and groups that have caused so much severe pain, suffering, made so many bad moves, made so many bad decisions, lied about their decisions, covered up so much important information, still not held accountable for their clear, aggressive moves against the people of the world? Well... That's a very important question, and because they're not held accountable, they're going to be, of course, calling for more power for themselves, which to me is absolutely ridiculous.
as, of course, the local government here in the United States is set to, of course, codify their power and authority, throw more money at them, and, of course, participate with their larger globalist international protocols, which are absolutely freaking absurd. And as the government is throwing money willy-nilly all over the place, there's some significant ramifications for that. We're going to be talking about that in just a little bit. I think it's very fair to say that, that financially things are absolutely screwed out there, especially if you're just trying to, to buy stuff or to have some kind of service done. There's some interruptions that, of course, you're dealing with that you cannot avoid knowing that things will only get worse from here. This is just moments ago. 70,000 pounds of baby formula landed inside of the United States after the United States decided to buy it from other countries because of government <laughs> bureaucracies, because the government essentially works like the DMV. We should expect this baby formula to be on the shelves next week as already many children in this country are being hospitalized because of the lack of baby formula which has been in extreme short supply because of the government's incompetency and their WIC program that of course faced a major disruption so they bought up private market baby formula sent some baby formula down to Mexico and bada bing bada boom you have a national crisis on this country as Congress just passed a 28 million dollar emergency funding bill for baby formula Biden of course invoked the Defense Production Act which we're seeing the result up with these planes coming in and uh, I, I do have to say that this is a short term solution to a lot of future supply chain shortages that are showing how just delicate the world economy is and we're dealing with countries that are still in abundance of supply supplies that of course are running short internationally because of the global disruption of trade, not because of a global sickness, but because of government bureaucracy that deliberately stopped the free flow of merchandise, trade, and commerce in the world in order to flex their authoritarian power and grip over the citizenry, essentially creating a self-inflicting wound that has devastated small and medium-sized businesses. Businesses that are still having a very hard time catching up to the global disruption created by governments as the government is literally printing money out of thin air for now uh, baby shortages that was created from government incompetency there's also five billion dollars that was just announced in order to set up bike paths to set up more speed cameras which essentially create more problems for a lot of people scientifically there's there's studies showing how speed cameras actually increase car accidents and are just a way for uh, the state to generate revenue for itself by stealing money from citizens that's essentially how the government plans to pay for all of this, you're going to be paying for this for driving your car, which they're trying to limit, which of course is the larger plan of the UN 2030 agenda, the World Economic Forum Build Back Better agenda, which of course is trying to limit private individuals' ability to be able to travel. Biden is only codifying that by spending billions of dollars on this specific UN 2030 vision. $40 billion was just sent to Ukraine on the same day as the Biden administration is literally spending money willy-nilly trying to cover up their problems, trying to patch up the holes in this larger financial wreckage of a ship that they created, that they wrecked. And on the same day that they're spending all this money, the Senate blocked a $48 
billion dollar bill which would go to small businesses and restaurants as of course it looks like they're dedicated towards creating a situation that that makes you miserable and benefits them and their friends only perpetual war speed cameras bike paths money to fix a problem that we created we got all that small businesses and restaurants bug off get out of here we don't need you we don't care about you as of course this administration has done more to obliterate people's entrepreneurial abilities people's ability to have economic mobility i would argue more than any other administration in recent history what this administration has done especially with its energy policy especially with their policies that have made gas and energy go up dramatically all in the name of helping the climate which which it doesn't it, it literally has us importing oil and energy from saudi arabia which they have to bring over here again that's not a green policy but that's the policy that this this crazy lunatic administration has set forward in order to promote their green policies, which is absolutely absurd and nonsensical and absolutely disrespectful to anyone paying attention to what's going on here. As of course, they're creating more pollution, supporting more regimes that violate human rights while, of course, trying to blame everything on Putin and Russia when of course they have their fingerprints on the deliberate destruction of the United States and what better way to bring in the World Economic Forum's vision of a great reset what better way to build back better than of course destroying the old way of life and that's exactly what's going on here and that's exactly what the World Economic Forum in Davos is discussing today what they're going to be discussing in private along with the World Health Organization that they're colluding with in order to try to codify their power and authority over you and they could only do this if you let them one of the easiest way that we let them do this is of course with convenience learning some skills right now might be a good time to of course talk to your elders talk to your parents your, your your grandparents if you're still lucky enough to have them see what they've gone through what they learned what skills they could trade off and give to you as of course i think it's very fair to say that more troubling times are ahead and i'm not trying to just you know tell you whatever you want to hear it's true get ready get prepared if you think i'm wrong on my assessment let me know why down in the comment section below i always appreciate the constructive criticism all right, the who, the wah, and the wef. Luke was covering the World Health Organization's World Health Assembly, the treaty that's out there uh, that's being considered right now for public consideration, uh, approval by nations. I don't know if Biden thinks he has the, uh, the right to sign the United States on such things, but this is a long story that's been going on. Um, it's going to continue to unfold. The United Nations was created specifically to create a world state, a world government, uh, a global union, however you want to see it. It's the end of national sovereignty. It's the end of local accountability for individuals. It's the end of individual rights that would then uh, percolate up to groups. They say we will prescribe what belongs to the group, and then that trickles down to the individual. So it's antithetical to the concepts of freedom upon which America was founded. And it has taken them 200 plus years to get us into this position. So if the founding documents of this country were not structured logically and reasonably, they could have taken this place over a lot quicker. But based on the a, principles of natural law, we got to yeah. look at the thing of also point out the fact that the WHO and the WEF, these are sort of working groups or branches, if you will, of 
you can think of the UN. The UN is really sort of the central, like uh, conceptual ideological foundation, and then sort of the the actionable elements are the World Economic Forum or the World Health Organization and other organizations of such ilk. So. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a ruling class. Let's go back 120 years. There's a ruling class of robber barons, and above them are monarchical and financial powers that empowered those robber barons to do mass development in America, China, what became the Soviet Union to provide the infrastructure for what we saw in the 20th century. Yeah. So from that group, they created working groups like the Royal Institute for International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations, That's League of know. Nations, but that was meant to be scuttled. It wasn't meant to be the permanent thing. And they used that to get up to the United Nations. And then from there in the United Nations, you got um, UNESCO, which was Julian yeah. Huxley's uh, eugenics operation, right? Under the guise of United Nations education, for the world and they've really had to dumb down american individuals generation by generation to get us to the point where it's like we're ready to fall in line back with the british empire and uh promote their ideas of an english-speaking dominance over the world that's their goal that's their stated goal they've written all about it for over 100 years so to get america into this situation where people can't tell fact from fiction like they've lost the essence of the value of truth. They're not even looking for it. And the journalists, um, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, these sort of places over the past couple of years, they've called it a post-fact world, a post-truth world, where the causality of reality no longer has anything to do with the thoughts, ideas, motivations that are now taking control of people's reality, which goes back to that World Health Assembly Treaty. That they're working on right now simultaneous to the davos like that's too many globalists working together against our individual interests uh, at the same time then i think we're all comfortable with at the same now, time you have bill gates promoting his book and setting up a germ team i mean there's so many oh yeah coincidences his book well he did a talk on uh you know preventing the next outbreak and smallpox and he wrote a book called how to stop the next pandemic and all of a sudden monkeypox and all this sort of stuff's out there and there is no vaccine for monkeypox you it's the smallpox vaccine that they would be that's giving what people. they use they purchased yeah like no that was actually a thing time. it's a much better situation than we just had with the mrna gene therapy because at least it's a traditional vaccine that's been used on military and a whole bunch of people for years and years and years oh for decades like over yeah. like 50 years plus something like that yeah but luke was also right in like the fact that goes back to the, the 18th century I'm they're going to continue to squeeze people they're going to continue to have hyperinflation rising gas prices rising real estate prices all these things that are putting the squeeze on people and he's right you like there's no there's no being buoyant staying at the same level. We've got to raise our aptitude, our skills, our ability to sense opportunity in the world and take effective action on that. And um, I'm going to plug the one of the sponsors of this because we are self-sponsored by the, the members of the Grand Theft World community. But I teach a course called Autonomy. It's a 12-week training course. LD, could you put that new landing page up on screen? And uh, right now we just created... Uh, like a $1,500 freebie bonus for people who uh, complete uh, the process and decide to enroll. And that gives you access to a whole bunch of courses in our University of Reason beyond the Autonomy flagship course. And um, yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of new newness to it. We just finished this new landing page. LD's got up on screen. And uh, any of those calls to action would let you learn more 
in a very transparent way about what skills you could gain, what methods you could learn to use, how quickly you could start changing your life in an effective way and learn how to make a higher value offer to the world so that as these cash flow restrictions keep hitting us, that we're able to stay buoyant, stay afloat, take care of ourselves and have enough that we can be generous and charitable with our friends and family, because this is not going to be a time where we survive by being selfish. We're going to learn how to help ourselves be more self-reliant and that's going to permeate into our families, into our society, and it's going to help to enact real solutions. One mind at a time. Market theory's never changed. It's not going to change because it's based on human behavior. Thomas Sowell, to me, really the greatest American economist the past 30, 40 years said it best in times like these, uh, they don't care. People don't care like necessarily language to speak, what you look like, you know, um, your, your own background, life situation, how tall you are. They're, they they care, they care about whether or not you have skills that can perform the job and that well, you do care so with integrity. Whether or not you care about so, yourself, do you have respect for yourself? Can you conduct yourself well? And then can you be a valuable or indispensable part of a group or a team to get something done that you can't get done by yourself? So well, it's that like depends preparing on the ourselves the point to be is able just to do things skills. to get the work done. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that it all depends. There's jobs that, are, that can be done without being in a team. The point is just having skills. His point was just in times like these, no matter what, no matter how much limitation government puts on the ability to um, engage in certain markets because of subsidi- subsidizing it or government controls or whatever might happen, doesn't matter as long as there's still some freedom or some semblance of freedom within that market. If you have the skills to fulfill it and there's a need for it, they're going you will have a chance of being able to provide for yourself. And so right now, more so than ever, is just developing basic, really basic skills and, you know, starting to, and if you want to specialize in something, do so. That's really time well spent, money well spent. It's making sure that you prepare yourself by developing as many useful skills as you can to position yourself to be able to provide for yourself in the future as we head into really a global recession at best and depression at worst at this point because we know we know what their game plan is they actually wrote a book COVID 19 the global reset i mean it's not like this yeah, is anything reset. new the great reset right but yeah, based so- on the pretense of COVID 19 being the way in which they can initiate it so the point is like they're going to do this they're not going to stop they're going to continue to ramp up all of a sudden now they want to you know billy boy gates has talked about the second pandemic, the third, there'll be a, there'll be a second pandemic. And so like the idea is, and I'll talk about monkeypox, which does not seem to be that serious, but I'm um, not, who knows what it might manifest, but uh, we know what they, what their strategy is. We know what their game plan is. Uh, it's just a matter of the tactics they're going to employ in order to uh, manifest the type of world that they've envisioned over the next 10 years. Remember that's really a 2030 goal. So we're now in 2022. So we have eight more years of this. We'll have to see. It's going to continue to ramp up each year. So we have to position ourselves to be um, successful and be able to deal with the impact of what's kind of, I was talking to my dad about this recently. He's like, I said, the forward momentum is too great. Make sure you brace yourself so you're not injured when this whole thing comes to a crash, whether that's economically or government um, restrictions on freedom and lockdowns and these sorts of things, we have to start better preparing ourselves. So, Yeah. So we have to learn to grow and rise to this occasion. You get basic skills. And then with those basic skills, you learn how to have some higher value skills, skills you can take to market and get paid for not on demand, but through a method or a system of putting your offer in front of enough people where at a high enough rate, 
and then often enough register clicking the uh the cash register you're going to be able to stay buoyant you stay in business instead of an expensive hobby you learn how to provide more value to people than they have to pay you and there's an exchange called the uh, the market this is something that we should be taught earlier in life so <clears throat> if yeah. you're interested in critical thinking skills cogent communication skills creative problem solving skills all the other skills that uh, come along with a course like autonomy you can go to getautonomy.info forward slash ignite and as part of the uh <clears throat> the bonus package i think you get uh, access to at least one part of tony Lo tony myers's logic course so you guys got that going for you too so check it out uh that special will be in effect probably we'll run it to july because we're going to take it away once we start doing heavy enrollment for season eight but right now we're just in the last couple of weeks of season season seven so we're offering an incentive to people who want to get started on their change sooner than later that's how we, uh, you know, that's how we do it. We just add a whole bunch more value. And then maybe you can talk yourself into making some progress and attaining the goals that you've had on your radar, but maybe didn't know how to get started or didn't have the networking and community to help you gain momentum. Those are all things you could check out. Getautonomy.info forward slash ignite. All right. And with that, we're going to go to uh, the next clip in tonight's selection. We're going to go to this week in media malfeasance with Christy Lee, who will be hearing about. 45 minutes as our special guest. So let's check out her clip from this week and then we can ask her about it in a couple minutes. This week's news cycle is zeroed in on mass shootings and who's to blame after one in Buffalo, New York and another in Orange County, California over the weekend. Chances are you heard much more about the shooting in New York, though, than you did about the shooting in California. Bringing you what's ignored, sensationalized, unbalanced, misleading or just plain false. Here's your media malfeasance for the third week of May. An 18-year-old white male allegedly killed 10 people and injured multiple others at a Topps supermarket in Buffalo, New York. But as usual, let's focus more on the shooter than on the victims. Q, how do we blame the right? Rolling Stone, the Buffalo shooter isn't a lone wolf. He's a mainstream Republican. Yep, the same outlet that pushed this lie, gunshot victims left waiting as horse deworber overdoses overwhelm Oklahoma hospitals, is now pushing another lie. Rolling Stone refers to the shooter as a right-wing extremist and Republican, yet in the shooter's manifesto, he criticizes conservatives and calls himself a former communist and left-wing authoritarian. Rolling Stone desperately tries to drag Tucker Carlson into the mix with the shooter's adherence to the great replacement theory, the idea that white people are being systemically, deliberately outbred and replaced by immigrants and ethnic minorities. Other mainstream news outlets characterize this as a right-wing conspiracy theory. Strange because the evidence shows this has actually been promoted by the left. An unrelenting stream of immigration, nonstop, nonstop. Folks like me who were Caucasian of European descent for the first time in 2017 will be in an absolute minority in the United States of America. Oh, and here's more. In a few years, we're going to be a majority brown country. White people will not be the majority in the country anymore. This will be the first generation ever in American history uh, in which whites will be a minority of the generation at some point. And now these same people are saying it's a conspiracy theory from the right Nice try, propaganda puppets, but they're actually proud of these tactics. So much so, they accidentally admit what they're doing. Basically, take this replacement theory 
and now make it the Republican racist replacement theory. Make every Republican answer, do you believe in it or not? So yeah, Donnie Douche just wants you to forget all about his cronies counting on the replacement theory. So how about we have them own this tactic of fear? What can they scare you with next to keep control over you? We don't have the economy on our side as Democrats. So you have to scare the bejesus out of people. The way to scare it is say, you know, this replacement theory, this is not just coming from some dark corner of the web. This is the Republican platform. Meanwhile, they conveniently ignore that it's the conservatives sticking up for the minorities whose babies are targeted and suffer the most abortions. Nearly 40% of all abortions in America since Roe versus Wade have been black Americans, even though they currently make up only about 14% of the population. But let's do a sake circle back to what Rolling Stone left out. Sake! Sake! This is yet another case of law enforcement dropping the ball. As Breitbart points out, the accused shooter had a run-in with police just last spring after making threats. But he was never charged with a crime and had no further contact with law enforcement after his release from a hospital. And rather than pointing to race, what do nearly all mass shooters have in common? A history of mental health, psychotropic drugs, and absentee fathers. We stopped hearing about the SoCal church attack pretty quickly, even though it happened the same weekend as the Buffalo shooting. A Chinese immigrant was motivated by hate for Taiwanese. Why don't the pundits and politicians care about stopping all forms of hate? Why was the Waukesha terror attack also motivated by hate? Just a blip in the news cycle. We know why. The trip, that is something that was important for him to do, but he has visited many, uh, many other communities. This is not, Buffalo is not the first. Many other communities, not Waukesha, not Orange County, and not those terrorized by the New York subway shooter. Is there a theme here? We also saw the dissolving of the disinformation board this week, or is it dead? It's going to pause. There's been a mischaracterations from outside, uh, outside forces. And so now what we're going to do is going to we're going to pause it and we're going to do an assessment. But the work does the work doesn't stop. We're still going to continue the work. The DHS is still going to continue the work. Okay. And instead of holding those in power accountable, as any real journalist should, Taylor Lorenz comes to the defense of the disinformation czar, blaming far right attacks for the derailment of the board. So it's an attack to point out the conflict of interest that Jenkowitz herself has spread partisan disinformation. As Glenn Greenwald points out, investigating and criticizing a Homeland Security official is now harassment and bullying, according to the WAPO and Taylor Lorenz. Only ordinary citizens can be investigated, like the private citizens Lorenz had bullied and harassed, not high-level U.S. security state operatives. And now Lorenz and other lefties, their attacks against Elon Musk for advocating for free speech have only intensified, especially since Project Veritas has exposed Twitter for its biased censorship. The rest of us who have been here believe in something that's good for the planet and not just to give people free speech. And its own hate speech. The left will be like, no, I'm not going to tolerate it. I need a censor. Or else I'm not going to be in but this all-out war has only strengthened Musk's commitment and driven him to say he will now vote Republican. Cue the sexual harassment claims. Bring in the fanbots! Wow, we haven't seen this one before. All this while Musk is asking for proof on just how many users are real people, not bots.
Axios reports this week DHS preparing for violence following abortion ruling. It offers this context. Abortion-related violence historically has been driven by anti-abortion extremists. Really? Because the violence we've seen so far with our own two eyes has been from pro-abortionists, harassment outside the justices' homes, thinly veiled death threats like this tweet. If you have the chance to kill Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, the two oldest right-wing Supreme Court judges, should you do it? And a Molotov cocktail hit in Wisconsin into an abortion clinic? No, a pro-life center and another life center attack in Oregon. The leaked DHS memo also says some racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists embrace of pro-life narratives may be linked to the perception of wanting to save white children and fight white genocide. Again, a much higher percentage of babies being aborted are not white compared to population. So this doesn't even make sense. Reuters hilariously fact checks itself this week after getting mocked for sharing a picture of soldiers in paintball gear. It clarifies the picture is members of the Territorial Defense Force attending a training simulation, something not included in the original post. And many elections this week, anyone who won that the state-run media didn't approve of got headlines like this. NPR, a far-right election denier wins GOP governor primary in swing state of Pennsylvania. What a weird term. He denies elections despite just winning one. I'm sure it's total coincidence that NPR never referred to Hillary Clinton or Elizabeth Warren as election deniers, even though they're on record denying Trump's win in 2016. We have to focus on now as Democrats is we recognize the process was rigged. All of this to distract from the coming WHO assembly to discuss a global pandemic treaty. World Health Organization will quote, develop standards for producing a digital version of the International Certificate of Vaccination and Prophylaxis. Okay. So you may be thinking, well, it's just about COVID and I went along with mandatory vaccines and vaccine passports at the time. How bad could it be? <laughs> First of all, if you went along with that, you should be repenting right about now. Now would be a good time to make sure your representatives are not on board with signing away our sovereignty. For KLIM.News, I'm Christy Lee. All right, that was Christy Lee from Christy Lee Independent Media. Like I said, she's going to be a special guest tonight. We're going to learn about her journalistic career, how she came to uh, start speaking more truth to power than maybe uh, traditional journalists have uh, remained in their roles and seemed very subjugated to saying whatever they're told to say. She's an independent thinker and uh, a, a, you know someone who can look at these stories critically and objectively and kind of pull those best pieces. And that's why she gets featured right after Luke because they both do a good job of kind of setting the narrative for the entire week that now we're going to deep dive into for like the next six hours. All right. So in there we had um, an LD. My audible is I'm going to start going to the Nina Jankowitz uh, disinformation governance board clips, how that was dissolved this week. It's in the, it's in the um, technology, economics, and politics. I have a whole yeah. subsection. There you there. go. So cool. Bunch of different stuff. Yeah. So in past weeks we had covered, this new DGB, the Disinformation Governance Board, was part of Homeland Security. They had this uh, lady named Nina Jankowitz, who I'm sure is a fantastic individual human being, uh, who got in charge. And she's a disinformation fellow for the Woodrow Wilson Institute, these sort of things. So she's done time in Russia. She's done time in Ukraine. She's part and parcel of the entire shenanigans that's going on between Biden and Putin and using U Ukraine as like the prophylactic between 
uh, NATO and Russia. So there's a there's a whole history there. But what it reminded me of, because they're like, we're putting it on pause and she's not going to be in charge of it and this sort of stuff. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you really think they're not going to do this? They're just going to rename it. They're going to cloak it and like let it out there someplace else. Right. So my my example for history would be. Let's go to the Total Information Awareness Group, the Information Awareness Office from DARPA. And this is something that was created, I think, right before, right after 9-11. And it was like, they're going to they're gonna tell you uh, all about yourself because they're going to have all the data that you would ever have, right? So this is a th- thing that once the public found out about the Total Information Awareness Group, let's go to the Wikipedia. Can I get that? Let's see if I go to browser. Let's see if we do it live. There we go. Look at this logo, kids. You see this all-seeing eye on top of the pyramid, like covering the entire world with its surveillance? So when they released this, let's see. Uh, Total Information Awareness Office was established by the United States Defense uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, in January 2002, right after 9-11, to bring together several DARPA projects focused on applying surveillance and information technology to track and monitor, quote-unquote, terrorists and (laughs) other uh, asymmetric warfare threats, allegedly, right? But total information awareness is like everybody's everything, biometric surveillance, all this uh, Albert Borla, put a microchip in your body type of stuff. This is what they've been working on this for 20 years. The public found out about this and they were like, nah. So they had to pull this from the market, right? But DARPA didn't quit. DARPA kept on going over here. Let's go back to the history blueprint. DARPA had uh, this thing called LifeLog. And it was a good project and they, they stopped it right around 2004, like the day before this other thing came on the market, which is LifeLog for everybody. Facebook, you guys might've heard of this. Same day. So, yeah, same February day. February 3rd, 2004. And they flipped the switch and it went from LifeLog, DARPA, secret project to Facebook, Zuckerberg's your front man, just like Bill Gates was the front man for Microsoft and Larry and Ellison the was the front man for Look Oracle. at the description. Like, let me just highlight this. Like, this oh, is God. according to its bid solicitation pamphlet in 2003, it was to be, quote, an ontology based subsystem that captures, stores, and makes accessible the flow of one's person, the flow of one person's experience in and interactions with the world in order to support a broad spectrum of associates and ass- assistants and other system capabilities. Translation, it's so they wanted a mass surveillance program, yeah. but it was difficult to put that in place sort of externally. Well, why don't we get the individual to do it themselves? Yeah. It's a, it's a really incredible And then we'll give uh, them devices strategy. that they'll carry around with them and we can collect way more data than them just using their computer. Yes, exactly. Because old and cell phones, you know, the ones with the numbers that you had to dial, doot, 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 you know, the flip phones and stuff, <laughs> they couldn't get nearly enough information on people to facilitate the growth of their AI models to predictively manage human beings. It goes back to Norbert Wiener's um, command and communication with the human being and his cybernetics books. And like, they've been trying to do this for a long time and they have gotten enough money over the years. Human use of human beings beings was one of his, right? Um, So there's a long history behind all these things that are going on in the news. And if you were just to watch current events and watch the news, without understanding the history that drives the news, you'd be driving blindfolded like most people out there. Rightfully so, because we don't have journalism. You know, this is one of the things I want to talk to Christy about tonight. Like the five W's plus how is how you would connect. Like you would capture six points of fact about a topic to be able to know about it. So who, what, where, when, why, and how five W's plus how is like generally what you'd have to communicate to somebody else for them to feel knowledgeable and understand 
the topic. Journalism is no longer about communicating such things. It's part of the principles of journalism. Right. I mean, they're just now about shaping public opinion. It's all Bernays and Lippmann. It's Bernays, it has yeah. nothing to do with actual muckraking. That's true. Good point. Right. Very good. Point. So she had the opportunity to stay in the corporate world, you know, kind of do the news and, you know, be a local star, this sort of stuff. Or you can be a muckraker and do something like Ida Tarbellish. You know, let's let's look at the these power sources that are disrupting the world and maybe we could do something about it with words and understanding and media and books and internet and all these other things that we have access to so we're not helpless we are vulnerable but that vulnerability could be like outpaced by our learning about this situation right it comes so, back to something that you preach about quite often you did to me early to on I, I open things for consideration slitizing the ignorant masses on the idea of uh, integrity it goes back to the idea of integrity if we're in integral with ourselves and our, the way in which we engage with the world and other people and whether it's our jobs, our families, our friends, so forth and so on, the, a sort of rapport is built up with the, the, the way we act and what expectations we can set with other people, you know, tends to be uh, uh, sort of standardized in a certain way that there can be some sort of a uh, clouds or there can be some sort of currency or uh, some sort of understanding built and trust. That's the word I'm looking for. Trust mm -hmm. and honesty built between the individuals uh, you're engaging with. And for her, it's just like, uh, from my understanding, it's a lack of what she saw in her career as being narrative driven rather than truth driven. And her ability to sort of have to come to head with that understanding and say, am I going to continue down this road that it compromises what she was taught in school as a journalist? in regards to the principles of journalism, in regards to commenting or giving uh, the platform for all viewpoints to be heard in regards to a certain situation. You know, I'm very curious to see her, her thought process and her journey, you know, going essentially from being an award-winning sort of local affiliate out of, I think, Toledo, Ohio, to then going to Alex Jones and not necessarily blowing the whistle, but, you know, being quite open about the nature of journalism because it's somewhat reminds me of the situation. It's very different, but there are pair, there are certainly similarities between what you went through. You know, you worked in the corporate world. You saw how the corporate world operated. You understand um, how the certain high-level managers operate within that, that world and those companies and what they will do in order to uh, sequester profit for their shareholders and, you know, at the expense of uh, the individual. So, you know, it's, I'm very curious to see like what her thought process was there. And how she saw the industry like sort of evolve through her time as a journalist in traditional media. So, and to go circle back real quick to the Just press secretary, you, you know, she all she did was mention that the uh, disinformation government's board is now under the purview of the DHS, Department of Homeland Security. It's what Merrick Garland, I believe, is the head of that, and that's the same one that's labeled that uh, right wing mega white extremism is the number one threat to the United States instead of like the WHO or the WEF, you know, or these other various, the UN, CFR, all these various international, supranational or, or agencies and organizations and their NGOs that put into practice, uh, unfortunately, uh, the world in which they're trying to envision and foist upon us, which is the loss of individual rights and some sort of depopulation, technocratic control grid, um, you know, but it's for the greater good. So there's really nothing for us to worry about. Don't worry it's about the it. Greater good. Could you show me the greater good, Mr. Schwab? Can you show me? Is the greater good in the room with us right now, Mr. Schwab? 
The dude needs to be asked some questions. All right. <laughs> just I'm a just little saying. bit. I'm just saying we have that we power. To go in front still. of a grand jury. Until they do that matrix thing where they sew our mouths shut with the the, the goo or whatever. They're trying. Right? You know, they're, trying. Sure they're trying. They're trying to get that. I'm sure that Borla thing is going to evolve into something wonderful for people's individual health profiles. This is the mRNA vaccine. All right. So uh, this is not about schadenfreude. That's taking pleasure in other people's pain, which is a very popular thing out there. This is just saying, look, we had a small win with the DJ, DGB, Disinformation Governance Board being pulled for them realizing it was awful optics. They're going to come back and try it again. They're going to up it. They're going to you know, do their thing. But we need to do a little Snoopy dance because if we don't <laughs> celebrate, yeah, seriously, look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. If we don't do such things, we're going to burn ourselves out because they just have more shenanigans coming at us. Right. Monkeypox this past week, like it's already been for two years. Like each week it gets crazier than you could even think was believable. Rich, right? How many pandemics happen in the four per, uh, four century? per century? Four per century. Four. Uh, that's so a now, generous number, by the way. But Bill Gates yeah, is going to say that's an pandemic. And then it like happens like on schedule. Come on, man. Come on. It's going to be four and 10. That years. guy is a victim of being in an echo chamber where no one tells him feedback. And he is like so far jumped the shark this point, And he's still out there telling people and people are like, mm, OK, you didn't even graduate college, bro. You're not a doctor. You have no rights that I like just because you have money doesn't give you special rights in this world unless we're going to go with the survival of the fittest. And then we're all going to have to change our social contract, aren't we? Right. Yeah. Now we're in a Hobbesian state of nature. I'm curious. To, yeah, that's a what, Leviathan reference. Ooh, yeah, Tony Leviathan, going deep. Yeah. That's like 1500s or 1600s or something. Yeah. It's like 15th century, if I remember correctly. 1400s yeah. Leviathan. Thomas yeah, Hobbes. I think it's sometime mid late 14th century or 15th century, 1400s. Interestingly enough, though, I wonder how much of his father influence his beliefs i'm just you know oh, bill so. gates yeah all right L, uh, um ld can you do a quick search before we play jankowitz and it's going to be carnegie <laughs> foundation carnegie endowment 2001 metal just type that into google or some sort of search engine that pulls up images and you're going to see ted turner david rockefeller oh, bill gates image. dad tony fauci Nancy Astor. I didn't realize oh, Bill Gates' dad yeah. was in there. Oh, okay. William H. Gates, uh, this junior or whatever. His name I've seen was. that picture tall, many times. So I just, yeah. Well, Did you find that, Elding? Yeah, he's tall we've, and we've his son is pregnant. Before. Yeah, we've shown it before in the oh, come podcast. On. Don't load, load, I didn't want load. people to have to go back and search hundreds of hours of video. <laughs> no, I just. Uh, <laughs> to... All right. So there's a group picture. It's up there. Third. from. Oh, I just yeah, saw it on screen. It's not yeah, third there. from the top. Yeah, error. Of course, they don't want us to Research see, show that to you. Struggling right there, right there. Yeah, that's it. Um, now there is there are versions of this out there with the annotations and the people's names on them. But Tony Fauci's in the picture. Gates's dad's is in the picture. This is from 2001, if memory serves, and it's the Carnegie Endowment. Now, who's the Carnegie Endowment for for go. peace? Right there, it is. David McCullough. Right. Can you read off who's got to love how they name it? Yeah, we've got Bill Moyers, Judy Woodruff, Anthony Fauci, Ted Turner, Bill Gates, Sr., Tom Brokaw, George Soros, David Rockefeller, Barbara Walters, Richard D. Parsons, David McCullough, Memfella, Remfella, not familiar with her, uh, Brooke Astor, Leonore Annenberg, and Irene Diamond. Brooke Astor, of course. I didn't see no wonder because Bill Gates is in the back, Sr. He is kind of tall. No wonder they had him. Yeah, right. David Rockefeller was real tall too. 
until he was 16. Obviously, he had a major hand in Planned Parenthood. He was a major eugenicist, Gates, um, big perpetu- a big proponent and perpetuator of the uh, whole Malthusian doctrine of geometric growth and the belief in overpopulation, all those sorts of nonsensical right. ideas that the public Rome. And then before we go to the Jankowitz clip, I asked the question, like, who is this Carnegie Endowment that we were just pointing to, right? Let's push that button. This is a book called Triumphant Democracy. I have that as well. By Andrew Carnegie, has monarchy versus the republic. And if you stack these up, you might get like a specific geometric shape. And in this book, this is a a first edition copy because I do not believe what's on the internet. So I used to go out and seek such things out. Someone once paid a dollar for this book way back in the day because this book is printed in 1886 right so he's had a plan for america going way back into the 1800s and um let me zoom back out for you and there's a number of passages in here and it's about getting america back into the british empire and having this world state type of idea and you know, kind of transforming the world in his image. And this is where Gates and these other current guys get their uh, their tutelage from the Rockefellers, the Carnegie's, the Fords, all these people that had nonprofit foundations. And then, <clears throat> according to the Reese Committee in the 1950s, were found guilty of un-American activities, changing the attitudes, values, behaviors, and beliefs of American citizens to be more in line with, so they could be merged with the Soviet Union. Speaking of that, Charlotte Iserby wrote The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America, and it's like a 700-page book that details the Carnegie Endowment, Carnegie, Carnegie Foundation, for all these things I just talked about. I am and that's sad- just specifically with education, like a 700-page book spe- spe- specifically oh, yeah. about Carnegie and Rockefeller influence just on education. The Reese Committee found on American activity throughout a larger spectrum, doing with social sciences, departments going and the universities going back to the 20s, 30s, 40s, even as early as the very beginning of the 20th century. And that sort of, you know, unfortunately instantiated itself most conspicuously in the form of the Frankfurt School and postmodernism later in the 30s, 40s and 50s. So, yeah. So um, I was talking to somebody the other day, Mark Steves, he's a booker for Sam Tripoli. He lives here in Connecticut. We were talking and he was asking questions about uh, people who could talk on this subject. And I recommended Charlotte Iserbeet and I sent him to her site and he said, oh, she passed away. So I I guess she passed away in February this year. The first I heard about it was the other day. And uh, she made one hell of a contribution to this topic. I mean, she's right there with Gatto in breaking this open and saying, look, they have usurped our education system and turned it into an indoctrination system to carry out these un-American activities. And she talked about that from like the 1980s all the way up through her passing. So I think we owe it uh, like a responsibility to those people who have like blazed the trail that we are now able to take to see these perspectives and make sure that those solid, substantial, meaningful, proven ideas continue to proliferate into the future. Because if you don't understand what was going on, And how you got to any given place. You're not going to be able to determine where you go. That's how they control people. That's what O'Brien and and these guys did in 1984 or Mustafa did in Brave New World. They would control the history. And history and language. Yeah, history and language. language. Right. And they've redefined so many things to do with that pandemic. So disinformation governance board being dissolved, I think, is a small win, a positive thing, because that's definitely social media driven. 
It was hit by the memes. It was hit by the people making montages and mashups. And it's the independent producers out there putting these clips on their shows that then percolate to people with bigger audiences and got that information out there kind of quick. So I think that's essential to uh, freedom and liberty uh, uh, being maintained and retained. And uh, now let's go to a couple clips where we're going to see uh, the, the canceling of the Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board. So I know you don't have, um, we have a number of producers. Yeah, what do you think is the best? Who so had the best I'll hot take on this topic? In blue here. We have everyone from, I think this is Crowder. We have Tim Poole. We have Jimmy Dore, multiple Jimmy Dores, uh, in fact. So, uh, and we have also Del Big Tree. And that's probably a Jackson report, which we might get to later. Part of the Jackson report is a 10 minute clip from it. I would probably say some comedy with it, Jimmy Dore or Stephen Crowder. Yeah, let's do both of those. And then we'll have our special guest. Or I'm sorry, Russell Brand, not Crowder, but Russell Brand and Jimmy Dore were the two that probably were. Yeah. Both is about 10 minutes. So let's do that first one, Russell Brand, then go to the, we'll come back and then we'll go to the Jimmy Dore clip. Boom. Uh, looks like the J- that Jimmy Dore clip is not found. 404. Oh, my goodness. See if it's somewhere else. You know, because it was funny because Jankowitz had gone after Jimmy hmm. Dore and um, try Max. YouTube. Let me see if I can From find the gray it. Zone. Yeah. Like she had specifically cited the gray zone. <laughs> so that's got to that's got to good. That's got to feel good on their end that they had the crosshairs on them from this department. And now that department has had to yield go reformulate dun, dun, dun. Okay, give us a second we'll go right, to uh, the Russell the brand clip yeah first right, yeah. yeah just go to that one we can get to it and uh, apologies for the uh the intro and channel change audio we just we don't have it tonight so just paint it paint that picture hey, we're making minds. the best of it there's yes. no excuses attitude this is how you get stuff done doesn't have to be perfect. Just needs to be done with excellence. We miss a couple little audio cues. No big deal. It's not the first time we've flown this trip. <laughs> Plus, I got 30 people in the control room watching this from, you know, these are all autonomy students and graduates that are sitting in live on the control room call here, getting their post-production. So they need to see their teacher face adversity, trigger some complexity. This is good for them, too. Nina Jankowitz go to won't be singing any more songs on TikTok. No, but have you right, heard? Let's check it out. Yeah. Ahead, what do you got? There's a clip of her answering a phone call that I uh, got from James Jordan. Maybe we could we could throw that in later. Oh, let's it's check that out. A couple yeah. minutes. Yeah. But for sure. Yeah. Here's Russell. Bad news. The disinformation board is on pause. That means we're going to have more disinformation everywhere. Soon people will be saying that COVID-19 booster shots could be negative for your immune system. Frequent COVID-19 booster shots could adversely affect the immune system. Oh, this is so complicated. Get me a disinformation board now. Lord and Lady God created 5.6 million wonders and here we all are together trying to understand this world a little better knowing that there's a deep wisdom within ourselves and if we can peel away these layers of inculcation we'll get somewhere truthful fast. If you ain't a subscriber yet, subscribe right now. Why aren't you clicking subscribe? It ain't hard. Go on, do it. Use your fingers. Use your fingers on the screen. Subscribe. Click that notification bell too. Join me all the time. At the end of the video I'm going to tell you how to sign up for my mailing list so off platform we can communicate. We can go a little bit white label. We can get some bootleg gear going. Right, there's 
let's have a little chat about disinformation because disinformation, as you know, was invented by Joe Rogan. Luckily, Joe Biden, he's an old man, came up with a lovely new system, disinformation board. He and his friend Compop invented that together. Everything's been a lot better since that singing lady started. Information laundering is really quite ferocious. But unfortunately, the disinformation board is shit. Let's have a look. After being threatened with legal action, accused of being a violation of the First Amendment and facing mass condemnation, the US Department of Homeland Security's DHS Disinformation Governance Board has been paused and its head, Nina Yankovic, has resigned. You can't have a disinformation board without Nina. It's when a huckster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious. Yankovic told Wall Street Journal reporter Dustin Volz that the future of the Disinformation Governance Board is uncertain and that she'll be returning to her work in the public sphere. The Disinformation Governance board's loss is the public's fears gain. By seeing them in Congress or a mainstream outlet so. Where are we going to get our disinformation from if we ain't even got a disinformation governance board? No, that's meant to stop disinformation. God, this is confusing. Joe Rogan's driving me crazy. The disinformation governance board was announced on April the 27th and its goal was to fight disinformation. Good. Right. Now we know what to do. If you got some disinformation, fight it. That's all it is. There's some disinformation. Give it a wallop. We'll be okay. Now, what went wrong? After the announcement, critics quickly highlighted Yankovic's many past comments on free speech, censorship and misinformation. Oh, no, it's starting to go wrong quite quickly, isn't it? We're going to have a disinformation board and this person's in charge. Well, they're terribly anti-free speech and they've actually propagated some misinformation. Oh, shit, this is confusing. Also, it's against the First Amendment. Oh, stop ruining our misinformation board. Oh, Joe Rogan! In an interview posted just two days before she was named as head of the disinformation governance board, Yankovic commented on Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk's proposed Twitter acquisition by tweeting, I shudder to think about if free speech absolutists were taking over more platforms. What would that look like for marginalised communities which are already shouldering disproportionate amounts of this abuse? Just to let you know my position about these complex issues, I don't think anybody should be abused really for any reason for having a traditional set of values, a progressive set of values, for wanting to identify in ways that are considered uncommon sexually or racially. I don't consider those things to be my particular business. I encourage people to become who they are, not just on the surface of their identity, but deep, deep within themselves. And I love people of all varieties and I accept you. I accept you whoever you are. What I don't think we should be doing is controlling and regulating free speech in order to protect marginalised communities, in inverted commas, and then find out down the line that what we've just done is accidentally granted the government more power to control dissent. That would be my concern because I've been watching the government for a little while now and marginalised communities still seem to be suffering and dissent seems to be decreasing and things aren't generally getting better, are they? So if someone's not doing a great job, do you say, why don't you have a bit more of a job? Or do you say, less job. Some of Yankovic's other past comments, including her claiming that free speech versus censorship framing is a false dichotomy, saying verified users like her should be able to edit tweets to provide context and supporting the UK government setting standards for acceptable speech. The idea of being able to censor or edit other people's tweets, that sounds a bit wacky and a little bit crazy to me because it's, that's a form of censorship, isn't it? And applauding the UK government for anything at all. <laughs> Telling you as a UK citizen, you won't want to be doing that. The whole way through lockdown, they were having parties 
the whole time. That's like something, and we're sort of forgetting about it now. It wasn't just the government either. It was the opposition. So whoever you vote for, you're getting someone that during lockdown was having parties. And you start to think, but hold on a minute. Weren't we told that it was not safe to have parties? That was the reason for it, weren't it? It wasn't just you like imposing rules and then you will use those rules however you want to. <laughs> Conspiracy theorist, where's my tinfoil hat? Luckily, I found it had even more ridiculous. Days after the Disinformation Governance Board was announced, a bill was introduced to dissolve it. It had to dissolve itself. I mean, that is Orwellian. Unfortunately, the Disinformation Governance Board is in itself disinformation. Must dissolve self now. <laughs> 20 states also threatened legal action and described the board as an unacceptable and downright alarming encroachment on every citizen's right to express his or her opinions, engage in political debate and disagree with the government. But apart from that, do you like it? That one was a bit annoying. Disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious. While criticism of the board was focused on Yankovic's past comments and the potential of the board to chill online speech, Yankovic framed this criticism as mischaracterizations of the board, which became a distraction from the department's vital work after announcing her resignation. Describing it as vital work, it's ridiculous. Are the government doing really, really well at the stuff they better be doing? Or are they, let's face it, get a little bit distracted by lobbying money, stocks and share stuff that they're trading themselves, various affiliations that prevent them from fulfilling their stated objectives as representatives of the people. Once in a while, you should read your own constitution. Once in a while, you should read the stuff that they say when they open Congress, the Senate or Parliament. Here, for the people, by the people, all of that stuff. And you'll hear that it's everything's just become a sort of dizzying disarray of cat. It's not real anymore. None of it is real. Setting up more boards for disinformation. We're heading into a kind of bureaucratic stasis. We've been given such a clear vision of what evil looks like. It's terrorists that wear particular clothes and carry their rifles and make particular sounds with their mouths. Or it's communism and it's dry greys and bold reds. Well, tyranny looks like what's happening now. That's what tyranny is. The tyranny of technocracy, of bureaucratic language, of the sort of nimble tiptoe through linguistics that I can't see how that helps anybody. Reducing ordinary people's freedoms, facilitating more and more corporate power, giving more regulatory authority to the government. This is not the pathway we should be walking along together. Some mainstream media outlets have gone even further with the Washington Post claiming that Yankovic was the victim of coordinated online attacks. Why don't you edit the tweets. And that the Biden administration let right-wing attacks derail its disinformation effort. Also, who gives a shit about disinformation? Sort out getting baby food. Get the baby food sorted and then move on to disinformation. We got two problems. One, babies are starving. Two, people are saying all sorts of crazy stuff that I disagree with on the internet. Well, let's prioritize that. What's that noise? I don't know. Hopefully it's not someone doing some disinformation, though. Although the Disinformation Governance Board's future is uncertain, this board followed several online censorship and surveillance efforts backed by the DHS. Before the board was even announced, the DHS increased its efforts to identify misinformation and conspiracy theories on social media, was accused of mass surveilling money transfers, and branded online misinformation a terrorism threat to the US homeland. Yeah, they were warming us up, weren't they, for it? They were getting us ready. There were always a lot of misinformation. That's what all that Joe Rogan stuff was. Was. They were getting you and me ready for, there's this thing, misinformation. But they sort of misjudged it, didn't they? Because actually, it turns out people really like Joe Rogan. And generally speaking, even if you don't like Joe Rogan, people like hearing 
diverse opinions. It's so curious and hypocritical and empty and shallow because if what you're saying you're interested in is diversity and helping people of all descriptions and religions and races, I mean, and that's a project I'm really, really on board with. You can't achieve that without open communication. You can't force people down that. You can't go, look, get down there into freedom. Freedom doesn't feel like that. Freedom is messy. People bang each other in the ribs by mistake with their elbows, tread on each other's toes, misspeak, mispronounce, missay stuff all the time. But misinformation and misinformation boards are not the solution to that problem. Open communication, trust, faith, meaningful community, jobs that mean something to you, relationships that mean something to you. When people feel a little more fulfilled and connected, we might communicate with one another a little better. The fact is, the objective of not hurting one another is a beautiful objective because why would we hurt each other if we could avoid it? But I simply do not trust that that has ever been an objective of the United States government. It doesn't make sense when you look at the behavior. But that's just what I think. Let me know what you think in the comments below. Give this video a thumbs up. Subscribe if you don't subscribe yet. We need every single one of you to subscribe. Turn on the notification bell. If you enjoyed this video, have a look at either of these two little guys and join my mailing list. Sign up right now. What? Chris Hayes brought on the now resigned head of the Disinformation Governance Board, Nina Jankowitz. And uh, he's, hey, he's feeling very sorry for all the abuse she took. I just wanted to mention real quick before I lost uh, the facts of that Russell Brand report, this disinformation governance board, why did it have to be created now and not 10 years ago or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago? Why do they want to centralize the processing and approval of what disinformation or misinformation or malinformation might be? Because in the past, people had critical thinking. And they had some supportive journalistic uh, writers, not everywhere in the big places, but there's a lot of muckrakers in smaller newspapers. So back in the day, everything was decentralized. People would figure it out for themselves. Now, in the absence of this critical thinking uh, education that people used to have, uh, let me bring it up here in the history blueprint. I want to show you where critical thinking was removed from public schooling. Critical thinking removed from public schooling. Here we go. Now, there's a lot to this, but you're going to see certain organizations like the Carnegie's, Carnegie Endowment, Carnegie Philanthropy, uh, various other groups uh, using this modus operandi of, hey, if we can take away people's ability to decide for themselves and make them believe that two plus two equals five, that's an Orwellian thing, right? Um, well, that's the point of... Right. The education system. So we mentioned Charlotte as a beat. I'm disappointed to hear that she was an older woman, obviously, um, when I had first heard of her and she was actually still doing interviews uh, with Alex Jones and other uh, media uh, individuals going back almost 10 years ago when I first started working with you. And so it's amazing that she had a long lived life and she uh, contributed substantially uh, to um to people in regards to the work that she had done and exposed, especially, I forget what role she played in the Reagan administration, but she had sort of uh, an insight into what it was going on in regards to education. And that was, you know, a good almost 80 years after the sort of instantiation of the outcome-based education, progressive education school system. And so I think it's important to put that into perspective. We have to remember what, why the Prussian model education system was put into place 
What was the Prussian model? What happened at the Battle of Vienna? What were the Prussians trying to do? Why would we, would Horace Mann in the special letter when he went over there to check out what was going on, why would he suggest that model? How does Dewey play it? Well, how does William Jays play a part in this and the progressive movement um, in regards to the pragmatists, I should say? You know, there's a long history of sort of the philosophic uh, corruption and then dumbing down of individuals in order to support a new industrial vision that we comment on all the time in Bertrand Russell's work, which is sort of a, a sort of or 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 um, uh, uh, trying to think. Uh, there's uh, Orson Welles. There's obviously Orwell as well. There's a couple of individuals that sort of comment on this sort of like futuristic technocratic control grid, like, you know, the paper on technocracy or the ideas of such 1930s Columbia. They wanted, they had envisioned a perfectly controlled sort of closed system, perfect, scientifically perfected society. And schooling was the way in which you get that by envisioning it as being a closed system process of outcome based education in regards to producing a widget like you're producing something on an assembly line the thing you have to take away is people's critical thinking because implicit in critical thinking one of the qualities is our uh volition and so you have to remove the thing the ability for people to make choice and have distinction that's asking questions that's observing one's reality that's the use of reason so in order to produce the type of temperament the type of individual they want in a society they can control so they actually have to Take away the thing that makes us human, ironically. Yeah, our ability to think for ourselves. So usually when educating people about some such topics, I would point them to uh, our interview with John Taylor Gatto called Absolutely. The Ultimate History Lesson. But since we were just talking about Charlotte and we were talking about the Carnegie Group, there is a, a, a multi-disc set that she sent me a couple years ago, and it's on YouTube. So if you typed in Charlotte Israbeat, how we got here, Carnegie and beyond. In that lecture, she talks about Agenda 21, Skull and Bones, Carnegie Corporation, the endowment, critical thinking being removed from schooling, Ford Foundation, military aid to the Soviet Union, Anthony Sutton, all that Wall Street, uh, Bolshevik Revolution, uh, mm. funding of the Nazis, these sort of things. Um, Norman, Norman Dodd and the whole Reese Committee. She does a really excellent job on that. And then socialism and the merging of America uh, with the ways of the, the Soviet Union and communism. So what was her affiliation? She worked on some department in the Reagan administration. I thought she right? was in, in the, the Reagan Reagan administration education? department of education. I'm yeah. sure in education. That's it. Thank you. <clears throat> and I then when so. her yeah. dad passed away and she inherited all those skull and bones books, she sent them to Anthony Sutton, who then wrote a book, um, the American the Secret Establishment. How, or right. Something. And chapter yeah. eight in, in that book is specifically yes. how skull and bones reshaped American education to take out that critical thinking, to put the Prussian education of obedience, Prussian yeah. schooling of obedience in there and keep people like dumbed down generation after generation to the point where they could float a disinformation governance board and it was accepted until there was pushback. So that's why I wanted to bring that together. Now we can go to Jimmy, shut the front door. Let's go back to Jimmy in his garage being funny. But serious. guess what? Chris Hayes brought on the now resigned head of the disinformation governance board, Nina Jankowitz. And uh, he's he's feeling very sorry for all the abuse she took. By the way, the irony is that this disinformation governance board, they disbanded or they paused it uh, because there was so much disinformation about this disinformation governance board out there that was being spread that it gave it a bad reputation. So they had to. So that kind of is 
kind of goes against the whole point of that. Anyway, uh, here she is with Chris Hayes, and this is a special treat for you, Glenn. Here we go. I have watched this happen multiple times in my public life career. Van Jones, when he was at a, a position in the White House, who was run out of office because he'd signed some petition, and Shirley Sherrod, who was a, a officer of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who said something wildly taken out of context. Like, what was the experience of being the focal point? Again, I don't think you can compare those two those things together. I, I don't think what happened to Shirley Sherrod or Van Jones is equivalent to what happened to this authoritarian with a track record of spreading disinformation of this sort of like massive frenzy like over the last few weeks well it, it was really overwhelming chris i mean frankly you know i have prided myself over my career of being a really nuanced uh, reasonable person again as i said i've i've briefed and advised both republicans and democrats i admire some of the steps that the trump administration even took to combat disinformation including senator rob portman <laughs> and his bills against deep fakes and you know funding the global engagement center at the state department so to say that i'm just a partisan actor was was wildly out of context and then beyond that Yes, to say I'm just a partisan actor was wildly out of context because partisan implies some kind of principles. I'm a conniving simp who would do anything to protect establishment power. It's called nuance, Chris. Okay, here we go. It wasn't just, you know, these mischaracterizations of of my work, but it was death threats against my family. Over oh. the last three weeks, I have maybe had one or two days I didn't report a violent threat, something like, we're coming for you and your family. You and your family should be sent to Russia to be killed. Encouragement of me to commit suicide. Um, all of those have been forwarded to the Department of Homeland Security's uh, security services. And, you know, that's that's not uh, some. So she uh, so. Oh, my God. Someone on social media said we're coming for your family and you and your family should be sent to Russia to be killed and they encouraged you to commit suicide and you reported it every day and then what did they ask you to maybe look up what the word threat means and stop bothering them does that did that happen it's also I'm not buying, by the way, the I'm coming for your family shit. Like 99% of the country assumed you were a single cat lady. Nobody thought you Nobody thought you had a family. Uh, hey, what was it like when everybody hated your shitty ideas and job? Chris Hayes is a hell of an interviewer, isn't he? Here we go. That is American. That is not how we should be acting when we have disagreements about policy in this country. I think we need to learn how to Censor. be adults in the room. Um, and I don't have time for that childishness. I'm not going to let it silence me. I'm going to... So she's calling those death threats childlessness. I don't have time for that childishness. Then why are you bringing it up? Why are you mentioning how horrible it is? Why are you reporting it to the Department of Homeland Security if you don't have anyway? She can't even keep her lies straight in this interview. Okay, here we go. Go forward and, and continue uh, building awareness about this threat in the future. All right, Nina Jankowitz, I'm very sorry that happened to you, really. Um, and thank you for taking some time tonight. I really appreciate it. Ah, that's that's Chris's concerned I'm pro-women look. That's his face, right? That's his, I'm really sorry that happened to a lady. All right, anyway, uh, Glenn, do you want to comment on that uh, at all? Oh, fuck yes, I do. <laughs> First of all, I that by far my favorite part of that exchange is when Chris put on his, like, earnest... <laughs> chivalrous look at the and 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 he like adopted that like gravely concerned for the vulnerable woman yeah. the like liberal compassion voice and he's like i'm so sorry this has happened to you what the fuck has happened to her like getting tweets saying 
hey, you should go to Russia and like kill yourself. And I'm going to come and make sure you get your just desserts. Like that's something that happens to me every day in like a 20 minute span on Twitter. I don't fucking report it to Homeland Security when that happens. It's just like anonymous idiots on Twitter, like sounding off. You know, is it any wonder that she's best friends with Taylor Lorenz, like constantly making herself the victim? This was a Homeland Security official. I know. She was going to be a high. Official. Oh, he's freezing. Phyllis Force ever invented all of history. And she's supposed to be like the marginalized victim because she was going to like seize government power inside Homeland Security to decree what is and isn't disinformation and monitor the speech and the political activities of citizens. And now she's the victim to whom you have to express your like solidarity and for whom you, you extend your, your pity and concern because she got a couple of like totally banal and standard tweets from anonymous people on Twitter. You know, she went on um, CBS later that day. And she said that not only was criticizing this disinformation board and her it's self disinformation she said it was endangering national security <laughs> oh my God. to do so because this disinformation board and she were so important they were going to like protect the american border and protect the homeland that to malign this work meaning to criticize the government basically makes you a traitor you're like and you remember from the like the 2002 carl rove Dick Cheney years, like anyone yes. who criticized the government or questioned the government meant you were helping the terrorists and were a threat to national. That's exactly what has been rejuvenated here. And of course, Chris Hayes, like on his knees and simping for a Homeland security, security official, never bothered to mention, hey, like, don't people actually have the right position that the ACLU even in the era of it's like completely partisan posture said was kind of disturbing? Like, is that really an inappropriate thing for people to do? And I'd also like to know, what specific disinformation has been spread about her? Like the only one she cited is that she was a partisan. And her proof of that is that she worked with, because they like love Liz Cheney. They love Adam Kinzinger. They like right now are working with Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham who are supporting Bush Biden's war package. That doesn't mean you're not a partisan. How about when she tweeted in 2016 in the middle of the, the woman, if you say she's a partisan, you're guilty of spreading disinformation, probably should be reported to Homeland Security. She tweeted, quote, Maybe Hillary Clinton's most important point so far, quote, a real Donald Trump presidency would embolden ISIS. Hashtag, I'm with her. Ah. Nothing partisan about that. I'm with her. Hillary Clinton's most important point, Donald Trump would help ISIS. She also, in 2020, endorsed the CIA disinformation. She wrote, quote, back on the, quote, laptop from hell, apparently, that believed the laptop is a Russian influence op. So for a year ago, she was spreading disinformation to help the Democrats win. She has like she's basically like a resistance cartoon, like a caricature <laughs> of a liberal idiot who's now running all over the media, claiming that she's the victim again because of mean tweets. While Julian Assange rots in a prison that the British press calls the British Guantanamo and journalists are being murdered in Ukraine and like real journalists are being threatened or actually for whom we cry and shed tears the way Chrissy Hayes was doing because she got some mean tweets and he's like practically offering her some therapeutic hug. This, these are the kinds of people, I mean, she's like the classic insane liberal cartoon and they wanted to put her in charge of the homeland security disinformation board but i think what has happened is something that is worth noting this is the final thing i'll say before i finally get rid of you 
is the fact that she's such a ridiculous figure, like she's such a laughable kind of joke, you know, like sort of a classic Karen, you know, I'm going to call the Homeland Security manager on you if you criticize me on Twitter. It's kind of distracted from the gravity of, of how dangerous this is because they're saying Homeland Security is that we're pausing this program. They're not saying they did anything wrong. They're saying our messaging was wrong. Our propaganda wasn't good. So we're pausing it to go back to the drawing board to re-propagandize you about what we're doing. But they're also saying there are numerous other programs already underway that this board was supposed to coordinate where Homeland Security is, quote unquote, monitoring and combating disinformation. Why should the U.S. government be involved at all in determining what is truth and falsity, in designating things that are disinformation? As Rand Paul said, and amazingly, we can only hear something like this from Rand Paul, not a single Democrat or member of the squad or Bernie would ever say anything like this. The most disinformation has come from the U.S. government itself. And he cited examples like the Gulf of Tonkin lie that that led to the Vietnam War, the Pentagon Papers that Daniel Ellsberg leaked that revealed lying on the part of the Nixon administration by about the Vietnam War, Iraqi WMDs. You know, that's what Rand, we need Rand Paul to say that because no Democrat would because the Democrats worship the U.S. security state. There you see Chrissy Hayes giving like acting like Oprah, holding the hand of this like, you know, woman who is about to be a Homeland Security official and not criticizing or challenging her anyway. Liberals love the security state. So now we need Rand Paul to point out the truth, which is that the government is not here to protect us from disinformation. The government is here to spread disinformation. That's exactly right. Glenn Greenwald using some adult language there. It's like he couldn't wait to jump in and be like, this happens to me all the time. Why is she crying to Homeland Security? All right. So that's uh, that's a good wrap up. We got the Nina Yankowitz or Jankowitz. Say it how you like. Uh, Russell Brand was doing both. I was think I, at one point I thought he was talking about Weird Al Yankovic, who uh, I have more respect. Down for. in Albuquerque, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, I had to. <laughs> All right, so welcome back to Grand Theft World. It's time for our special guest. We have in studio tonight Christy Lee from Christy Lee Independent Media. Uh, we feature her work regularly at the beginning of the show because she does a kick-ass job. Uh, in her media malfeasance, weekend media malfeasance uh, clips that she makes every week, giving you a rundown on things that are censored that you might have missed that definitely aren't being advertised to you through mainstream media. Christy, how are you doing tonight? Good. Thank you so much for having me on and thank you for featuring my work. I really appreciate it. Anybody that has gone independent um, would tell you that it's not easy. (laughs) So any kind of support that I can get is very much appreciated. Well, thank you for making time in your busy schedule to uh, to join us a little bit here tonight. I got to ask that Freedom Lane. Is that an actual lane or is that like, did you risk going to jail to get that? Um, that, that is the property of my husband. And I believe he got that in Baltimore. And I do not know how he got that, nor do I think I should disclose. No, we don't. And we don't know statute of limitations <laughs> on such things. But I used to have a signed collection similarly in the past. And I was just interested in uh, how that was acquired and if there was a good story behind it. I, right, so- I honestly don't even know if I know the full story, but good, it, that's probably it, even it has worked very well, like for what we're going for. And um, I do know it comes from his hometown of Baltimore. So that's about all I know. All right. Fantastic. I wanted to start off by asking, like, did you go to public school? Let's talk about your education and like maybe naive entry into journalism at one point. Like, what are the origins for you, where did you start thinking that, you know, journalism was something you might have wanted to do? Um, yeah, let's start there. Well, I was homeschooled all the way 
pretty much up until high school. And um, in high school, I did the school newspaper writing it. I remember trying to write exposés on um, how the uh, the male um, classmen were being persecuted unfairly by the authoritarian <laughs> principal. And I don't know. Um, I had fun with it. Uh, in high school, my parents used to call me their little reporter. And um, I, I just didn't really think that it was feasible, though. You have so many advisors in life telling you like, oh, well, only, you know, 2% of people actually make it on television. So maybe you should look at this or that. So I kind of bought into that for a while and was like, okay, well, maybe I'll be a teacher or a lawyer. And, you know, finally, when I got to college, I was like, you know what, I'll just try because worst case scenario, I have a fallback plan, you know. Um, so I just, you know, started out in print. I worked for the community newspaper as well as the college newspaper. Um, I had a lot of fun as an opinion columnist for a little while in college and, and got my first taste of trolling and hateful people. <laughs> and uh, um, then I, I worked really hard with internships and I made it happen. And um, obviously it didn't happen easily. Um, I feel like it would happen a lot easier these days because now news stations are desperate for help because people like are realizing how phony it is and they how little pay you get. Um, and so I do not believe it's, it's, it's as competitive as it was when I was trying to get into the industry, but, you know, failing forward, long story short, I got to be the lead anchor on the news station. I grew up watching so grateful for that experience. So many good experiences. And I do like to say that because as much as I am critical of what it's become, um, so many amazing experience experiences, in on that road and, and being able to be in the community and being able to be somebody empathetic in many times, what were people's worst day of their life. Um, so it was really grateful that I was the one covering the story and could have compassion. So, I mean, it's definitely not all bad, but, um, boy, it sure did get bad <laughs> toward the end of my career. So it was about like 13 years in television news. Um, and then, you know, half of that time was as a the main evening news anchor. Um, but yeah, those last few years in particular had, it had just become so insane. Well, it makes a lot of sense now that, uh, I got your answer to the question. Cause you know, I always assume most people like myself are homes, uh, like not homeschooled, but public schooled. And then your answer, as soon as I heard it, I was like, Oh, it makes total sense. Yeah, and when I asked, I yeah, I asked Del big tree, the same thing. I was like, Hey, once upon a time, what gave you the idea that you could be a producer on TV? Because it's not something guidance counselors are encouraging people to do. And he goes, oh, I was homeschooled. And I was like, oh, yeah, ding, ding, ding. Uh, we're homeschooling my son, but I went to public school and Tony went to parochial school. And we had similar trials and tribulations of like he got a better logic and reason education than public school offers in most sort of places. Classical liberal education. Right? Yeah, classical liberal education. The education, the liberal education used to be an education to make yourself free so that you could gain, attain and retain freedom that was the education to do it. We don't have that uh, anymore. So you going from homeschooling to writing for high school, then writing in college, and then you get hired by the local TV, you know, network, your six o'clock news, 11 o'clock news, your whole family, everyone, you know, watches that at night, you get to do what uh, mobile on the scene reporting first. What was the, the climb inside the, the company? What did you start out with? Like most people, like the, the metaphor is the mailroom. They start in the mailroom. What was your first job at the TV station? 
My first job was um, what they call, or what we used to call, one-man band, um, which I believe they now call multi-skilled journalist or <laughs> multimedia journalist. I'm not sure. But it was just called one-man band when I first started, and that was literally doing it all. Um, get Setting up your interviews, going out there and shooting them, uh, editing tape to tape. I'm that old. I know you guys probably didn't realize that. <laughs> I'm quite old now. So I, we were like literally doing the, the tape to tape. I believe it's called Gosh, I'm so far removed now. Linear editing, yeah. but um, um, and it was up against that deadline, and it was uh, wow. You know, the first two weeks that I had been in the business, and of course, there was some excitement about being on TV back when people actually watched it. Um, but I, I, it was so much pressure and so many nerves that I literally cried every day after work for two weeks straight and almost wanted to throw in the towel. But I'm so, so glad that I didn't and that I pushed through because um, I definitely have some shy and insecure aspects to my personality. And um, being forced to stretch that and even today continue to try and, and stretch those aspects of my personality is just been great. And I think, um, a testament that anyone can get outside their comfort zone and do it. Now, the only thing that I really didn't do, um, was production, um, which many people do. They, they, they spend some time as a, as a producer before they report or they are a news anchor. And that was something that really wasn't something I did. So, um, it has been interesting, uh, to now go independent and kind of go back to my roots of one man banding. Um, but now with the addition of, of production (laughs) and I gotta say, I mean, I have been lost in many ways and it, I mean, I'm really having to, to learn this aspect of production and, and marketing. And it's been such a slow process and frustrating because, because you look at other people, you know, and like, gosh, it seems like it comes so easy for them. <laughs> but I assure you, know. you it doesn't. It, <laughs> I promise you because I've been <laughs> in this for 10 years. Like so much easier for everybody else but me. But I guess, yeah, we all do that. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm still learning and growing. If anything in the past year, you've made incredible strides because it seems to be so professional. So you translate it or sort of uh, transmutated from the sort of mainstream perspective to the independent. And I see the increasing uh, understanding and the ability to put it into action each week in your editing. Because I noticed early on, I'm like, okay, she's a lot of focus here. Okay, there's some, you know, editing mistakes here. And I only noticed that because I sat with with her transitions and her dissolves and her flips and her wipes. I've tried to scale back. I like that you're trying different things. That's so great though. Um, What type of freedoms were you afforded? early on when one man banding, because this talking about going back to like when you first got started, yes, there was the pressure of the deadline, but I'm just curious, what was it like 10, 12, 13 years ago with like the freedom with what you're allowed to report on? Back well, I feel like, I feel like this um, business has always had its own bit of cruelty. And what I mean by that is um, for somebody that it's in their heart to be a journalist and, and a dream for them, there's um, this deep, desire, uh, like deep inquisitiveness, like, like it excites me to be curious about things. And, and, and sometimes the things that I'm curious about would seem out there for other people, but I always think like, well, if I'm curious about this, surely other people must be curious, but those, um, and I've, I've had it in every newsroom, those editorial meetings where you come in and you're expected each and every day to pitch it, pitch like at least three 
ideas that you can actually potentially turn. Oh, it's scary. <laughs> I mean, this is why a lot of people in this business do end up having anxiety issues because, because you're expected among everything else that you're doing to be trying to, to, um, turn stories. That, I mean, that you can actually, you know, do something with, but not only that you it's, it's like this game where everybody shows up at this editorial table meeting and you're all expected to do these pitching of these stories. And it's just like, you're being judged by everyone at that table. And, um, and usually, I mean, some, sometimes I had, um, a good, producer or manager, but a lot of times it was people were like, that would not be afraid to say, oh, that's a stupid idea, (laughs) you know, or, um, or, you know, maybe our advertiser wouldn't appreciate that, that story. Maybe they wouldn't say it in those words, but euphemize it in some other way. Get the point across. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, but there I had, and it was a mixed bag. I mean, sometimes I would have freedom. I mean, I specifically remember, uh, when, um, back when it was just flu vaccines that we were talking about. Um, I, I think it was about the time that the, one of the documentaries had first come out and this was quite a while ago. Um, and I had pitched talking to people that were the people that were promoting it in local theaters. And they did actually let me go out and talk to talk to chiropractors and things like that, that were advocating for this movie. So, um, but then not every news station would have allowed that. So it it does really does depend on who is managing it, but I definitely did have experiences that I alluded, alluded to before that I was thinking to myself, something about this does not seem ethical or, or right, you know, as far as, um, with certain stories, even if it was simple, as simple as, you know, um, oh, cause I'm from the Midwest. And, and so it's like every year we had to do this, like car safety story. It was, it's like, expected. this is so stupid. It's like, really, we're doing this again. Um, but they, you know, we would coordinate with the sales department, you know, on who we should get our interviews from. And, um, the sales again, department, that, yeah, sales, like, sales and marketing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's and I mean, that's always seemed like slimy to me. Yeah, and and that's a silly example because, you know, okay, it's car, whatever, but it still seems slimy to me. And, um, then it, there were other examples that were outright, this is not right. Um, and there's two that come to mind there was a major advertiser for, um, a, a basically a Christmas thing that happened in our community every year. And, um, one of our reporters had dug up some dirt essentially. And, um, they, ended up shutting it down completely. They were like, oh no, we are in competition with the other number one to be sponsored by this business. And um, so they they shut the story down completely. And I just couldn't believe that that, that was happening. <laughs> yeah. Even if you're not willing to lose your job, or even if you're willing to lose your job over, they're not necessarily willing to lose their job because when the advertiser leave, leaves, funding gets cut. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a very important story that had... Uh, important ramifications and, and it didn't get done. So I'm very vague with that example because it was, I wasn't the one doing it. The other one, it can be a little bit less vague because it happened to me personally. Um, there was a, a mom that, um, had been dealing with awful bullying of her son at this, uh, charter school. And I hate to say that because I do, I typically love charter schools, but in this particular case, um, she had all the documentation, there were police reports and this school was just so obviously 
trying to hide what was going on. Um, and so I, I was thoroughly investigating it. I had the police reports. I had all the documentation of the malfeasance on the part of this school. And, um, just when we were about to release all of the, the evidence, um, I mean, in, in my report that I had worked on and I finished editing and everything, the news director had this backdoor meeting with the superintendent of the school, like a good old boys network, basically. Um, and he, he, he gave the superintendent a heads up, like, just to let you know, like the story is coming out tomorrow. And then what do you know, the mom that had entrusted me, you know, with this, this terrible story, um, to tell it, she calls me and she's like, I have to back out of the story because, um, they're the, the school board and the, the, um, superintendent is, is calling me and, and threatening me and, and whatever. So basically this woman had an important story to tell about bullying that affects a lot of other schools. And she basically got bullied out of the story because my news director, um, had a backdoor meeting without me included and, um, allow, gave him the heads up to shut down, down the story. Like it was just every bit of it was so sick and infuriated me because I had all I done the due diligence. I had everything to, um, back up what I had uncovered. Uh, so, I mean, that was another case of it was just like, man, this, this business can be really foul. <laughs> Do you remember a couple years ago, there was that, uh, re- reporter and she had done, uh, an investigation on Jeffrey Epstein and then they shelved the whole thing. They said you couldn't do it. And they got pressure from Buckingham palace. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, these aren't isolated circumstances. I think you just encountered like the bottom layer of these other power structures that do exist and do run press and, and news agencies now for profit since 1996. Cause it used to be a, like a nonprofit for the benefit of the public. We're going to take a couple hours a day and present the news. It was part of the regulations. And then they kind of merge that and they're like, no, news agencies now have to be profitable. Yeah, and therefore yeah. that's a form of like not censorship, but it's catering mm-hmm. to those corporate sponsors who make but the that sickest news part a- of it yeah. is that they'll act like they um, are above above these things that they're that they are working for the community and that they would be um ethical in these circumstances. I mean, that's how they advertise themselves. Watch any of the commercials and they're like, trust, dedication, community. That's who we are. And it's like, no, you aren't, <laughs> you know, and, and you're getting worse by the day. Um, another thing that w- really always bothered me is as soon as social media was implemented, because I was there as it was just becoming more of a newer thing. Um, and every news station that I worked at since social media was implemented, they would have a big TV screen with everybody's names on it um, and our competitors names. And it would show the stats of how they were doing on social media, um, engagement, likes, followers, um, increases. And it was this big competition in every news station I worked with. It was like the same thing. And um, I found that, you know, I would work maybe two weeks on an investigative piece and I would share that story on my social media and I would get eh, like decent I get engagement. But then I would maybe on my lunch break, if I was lucky enough to get one, go try, let's say, um, Sonic's 
newest pickle slush, take a selfie with it. And my engagement would, it would make me be at the top, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, and so, so then, you're being rewarded for doing the wrong things. It's a bottom line. It's a bottom so line. At the effect, end of the, yeah. yeah. At the end of the week, people would be like, Oh, Christy's doing such, such great work. She, she, she's at the top, but I knew I'm at the top because of a stupid selfie with a slushy for goodness sakes. Um, but this is like what we're being rewarded for, like you said. So, um, social media really also, I think has destroyed, uh, the integrity of journalism because of, of stupid, like things like that. And I mean, you'll notice a lot of news reporters will be like, what's your favorite candy bar? Well, that's so that their engagement rate go, it goes up because everybody wants to weigh in on what their favorite candy bar is. And they can feel personable with other individuals. Right. I mean, but there's it, a homogenization. Yeah. There's that. Did you notice that in fact, like with the social media revolution, a sort of like homogenization of like all these different news outlets, news anchors sort of talking about more inane imperial sort of like this childish sort of stuff but at the same time all talking about the same sort of stuff like that's something that's sort of been a phenomenon lately where it's sort of like parroting all the same talking points yeah it's funny because i i do believe that you know especially when it you're like the lead anchor or whatever that there is an element to yeah i mean your viewers they want to feel like they can trust you and so they do want to see a little bit of your personal side I think that's valuable but the darker side of it is just as people have been suspecting that now news media is um, contributing to the divisiveness and anxiety and unrest that we all feel. And why is it? And why are they perpetuating this? Well, because we are actually told in our social media training and all of that to when we push a story out there, like try and frame it in a way that you can you know, ask a, a question above the sharing of the article that 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 will maybe spark some um, d- discussion. But what they really mean is try and find the most uh, salacious part of your story. Ask people what they will think that will make people argue in the comments. So, I mean, this is intentional. Okay. This is intentional when they're having um, some some highly contentious things and they're putting it out and they're putting out out in a, in sometimes an intentionally biased way because at the end of the day, the more people that are arguing in the comments is more engagement, more engagement, more engagement. Oh, and this person's going to argue with this person. And so that they can take to their advertisers be like, look how much engagement we have. So you, this, this is how much we're going to charge for advertising, or this is why you should advertise with us. So, so they're using people's emotions to have to basically get people divided, get people arguing because that's what sells. If that makes sense. Weaponizing emotions. Yeah. In order to use the ranking algorithms in order to go to advertisers to get more funding. I mean, it's, it's a vicious self perpetuating. Yeah. Vicious cycle for sure. All right. So the, the transitioning between, the one man banding. And I got a couple of questions. Like, did you have to, you have to come up with a story. You got to pitch three stories. They decide on one. You go out and do the thing. You got to find the people, set up a tripod, light, camera, microphone. Did you do all that yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. See, that's why you're armed for being independent. They had that, <laughs> they had that churn and burn position. They expect people to either take to it or not, but it's a tough gig right, yeah. to do all that sort of stuff. And then once you moved out of that, now you're sitting behind a desk, you're anchoring. Um, did you write your own prompter scripts? Like, how's that work? So uh, basically, I did write a lot of it, but a, a lot of, okay, so there's there's not much control that you get over 
national or network news blocks. And so the really only control that you can maybe get is writing the um, toss, you would say, the intro and toss, and um, the tag out. Uh, That is traditionally pre-written for you. I would always try and write that in my own words it's because I was also hyper aware of the fact that all these videos were going around with anchors yes. saying the same thing. And yeah. so I was like, I yeah. do not want to be That's on that video. Big. So I'm going to make sure I rewrite those <laughs> completely. So um, a lot of the um, prepackaged stuff uh, will be written for you, but you obviously are encouraged to it. If you're a good anchor, you'll rewrite it. Now, what happened to me in California is not only was I like rewriting it in my own words, but I was having to spend extra time being like, where is the source on this? Like, what is who's saying this statement? Like, why are they expecting me as the anchor to just say this statement, which I don't think that I have the authority to say and not provide a source. So I was like trying to find sources. Um, I I was noticing that, uh, especially the stuff again, coming from network and national suddenly had all these adjectives in place. I'm like, why is this word here? You know, all of a sudden I'd never seen it before in my life. There was all these sentences that would, would say, um, erroneously said without evidence. I'm like, why, what, (laughs) you know, why can't we just say what the person said and then say what the person said that disagrees with the person. Like you literally don't need to say said, the principles of journalism, isn't yeah, it? Getting yeah, both exactly. sides. Yeah. So um, thankfully in California, actually, my co-anchor was of the same mind. He'd been in the business for a very long time as well. And he and I would like, just look at each other and be like, what is going on? Cause I mean, it, it was really bad, really fast. When was that? Like what year time frame were we? So um, I was in California in right when the pandemic hit. And okay. that was the kind of ironic situation. Is that um, the KMPH? Where, yeah. Fox uh, okay. Oh, yeah. So um, that was the kind of irony of it is because I was a Midwestern girl and I wanted to challenge myself because I was sick of like doing all the same stories every year and wanted to try and dig into another community and challenge myself. And then I get there in California and a pandemic breaks out and, or so we're told, <laughs> you know, sure. yeah, um, <laughs> we, we certainly do. Um, uh, and then, uh, and then it was an election year. And so I, I went to this other community, like excited to talk about but this community would care about and different things. And, and then suddenly the whole entire nation was every single day talking about the same exact stuff. You know, we had the ticker, we had, you know, the, the same medical authorities that we would go to all of the time. Um, and it, it, yeah, it was just ridiculous. It, it was so ridiculous. And that's what I mean. It was like just so quick, so fast that we were, were all a bunch of puppets. That's what I keep on referring to is I just feel like everybody became a propaganda puppet, you know, and I that's was- what it was. I mean, it was very interesting and sort of relieving to see someone of your stature willing to go on something like Alex Jones and expect that's where I first I do the show. I'm a co-host of the show, but I also do the show part for, the, for each uh, Sunday night. And I discovered you and Alex Jones talking about while well, I was talking to my doctor and he's taking hydroxychloroquine, but I can't talk about these things. And I'm like, who is this lady? And then I find out that you're award winning. I thought that was out of Toledo, but for California, I get that mixed up. But, you know, we saw some of your, Rich and I saw some of your earlier work and we're just like, this is really fascinating to see someone that comes from the mainstream and is willing to have a sort of like 
come to Jesus moment, you know, sort of a sort of heart to heart with yourself and realize that like, this is not what I thought it was. And now it's as conspicuous as it possibly can be. It's as obvious and out yeah. in the open as it can be in regards to what's happening and what I'm not allowed to talk about, what everyone else is talking about. And it's completely contradictory. So what yeah. was that thought press, process like? First, I want to say it's completely not obvious, very inconspicuous, any insecurities you had. It seems like you just, <laughs> you embody them and engender them in such a way to put them in action. So you actually go through it instead of allowing to sort of inundate you. So kudos to you. Because, I mean, you went from going to mainstream media and going great to Alex Jones and being willing to tell your story, which is, that's a pretty big shift. What was that like? <laughs> what was your thought process like, for, you know, going to something from, you know, your traditional media to, you know, down to the Alex Jones studio down in the Infowars studio I mean, down in Austin, Texas. For someone like you, you must be, I mean, and I've heard this like, oh, you're so brave. And it's just like, you didn't see all of the torment behind the scenes of like, well, you, you know, did that this- whole like self-documentary thing where you yeah. sort of like, calm. Yeah. I've, um, I, I didn't even know you knew that, but yeah. So, um, that's the thing. Like for me, it was a journey and it wasn't just like this flip, like screw it, drop the mic. I'm out. You know what I mean? Like, which some other people did and that's great for them. But I, here I was a mom of three across the country. I couldn't just, I knew what was happening was destructive and, and I didn't feel good about it, but I couldn't just be like, you know what? I can't do this amount. Obviously I was vocal. I, I brought the scripts that didn't have sources in them and all these adjectives in them. I brought them to my leadership and, you know, I definitely oh, you did. Okay. I didn't, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Okay. I wasn't, I wasn't quiet about quiet about, uh, excuse me, quiet about it. Um, not at all, but, uh, but yeah, I did. I also didn't feel like I could like, again, as a single mother of three across the country, just be like, I quit and like not have a plan. So, um, also, I mean, there was this emotional element. This was my childhood dream job. You know, um, I had so many great memories. I, I was proud of my awards, um, I, that I'd gotten from the associated press, you know, best anchor, uh, best enterprise reporting, best investigative piece. You know, like I worked hard for that stuff and to think like, what? Like, you know, this is like a big joke now, (laughs) you know? Um, yeah, it was tough. It was a journey and and it's just like, it was almost a grief process, you know, that I was grieving for what I, um, always loved to do and what I knew journalism should be. And it just wasn't anymore there. One of my first YouTube videos, uh, when I was still employed as a lead news anchor, um, I did, uh, I wrote it up after I had anchored from home because that was one of the times that I had to anchor from home for some stupid COVID reason. And I didn't even have COVID. It was just for some reason I had to anchor from home. I don't even remember, but I I had just finished the the news. So it was like 1130 PM. And I just had all this pent up frustration about like, how are other journalists not seeing what's happening? You know, we need to get back to the fundamentals. So I kind of like wrote myself up a script and I talked, I, I called it journalism 101. You can still find it on my YouTube channel. It's like your Jerry Maguire letter. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. and, and I mean, I was, I was like as safe as I could be, if you will, um, because I was still working as a lead news anchor, but I, I called it journalism one one and, and I, I, oh, that was my tipping point. I think there had been like a Gallup poll that we even had in our news, um, 
our news program that night talking about people's mistrust of news. And so that's basically how I, I rationalized putting it out. Like a lot of people, you know, po- polls show that people aren't trusting the news right now. You know, maybe it's because we need to get back to the basics. And let me take you behind the scenes of what journalism is supposed to be so that you can spot what is true journalism and what is not true journalism. It was basically that. And so I, I tied in, you know, the the tenets of journalism, things like holding those in power accountable and, um, examining conflicts of interest and uh, examining people's motivations and and just kind of broke it down. Um, And yeah, that was one of the first things I did while I was still employed to kind of like blow off some steam of my own, if you will. Um, And then it's a cathartic journey to write things out. (laughs) It's a very important aspect. Yeah. And I put put that out there. Um, One thing that was also interesting is while I was still employed as a the lead news anchor, I, I simply um, posted a different definition of propaganda and kind of ex- expanded on it a little bit, but nothing crazy. It was just pretty much just the definition of propaganda. Um, and uh, and uh, I went to boost it on my Facebook page and Facebook wouldn't allow me to. They denied me boost, uh, boosting the definition of propaganda. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> A little strange. They won't why take they your money interested? for that. Jeez. I, I know. I'm like, why won't Facebook let me share the definition of propaganda? Something is weird. And, and this is before you transitioned to this was before this being independent yeah. media. Answer, yeah. Right? Um, so I was, I was safe. I mean, I wasn't doing anything crazy. Um, just kind of like talking about, like I said, the fundamentals of journalism and, you know, sharing the definition of propaganda, but I guess I wasn't allowed to. Um, You're only allowed to if it's part of, you know, one of the major organizations that's sponsored. Such I, guess, yeah. I guess so. Um, so as far as the journey from that, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I had reached out to a bunch of different independent because I was like, I want to do this like I was trained to do it. Like I studied what journalism is supposed to be. So I, I, I can't do this traditional thing anymore because obviously it's just gone completely corrupt. So I reached out to different independent um, places. Uh, my parents uh, had been fans of Infowars. I thought it was a bit what? crazy. And I was like, oh God, that's, <laughs> that's some crazy stuff. Uh, but even my husband, you know, had followed some of his stuff. And um, this was when, when we were just dating, I guess, at this point. Uh, so he's like, why don't you send them an email to an I was like, okay, fine, whatever. So um, I, I I emailed all these different places. The only two places that got back to me uh, pretty quickly was um, Infowars and uh, OAN. Hmm. And um, did yeah. you contact Project Veritas at all? I think I did. I mean, I when I said I just threw out some emails, Everywhere, I did. Yeah. I just kind of did like a mass, like any like independent operation that I had heard of, I was like, oh, I'll send them an email too. But yeah, I was actually surprised. I don't know. I, I mean, I guess I was surprised that I didn't get more. Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised too because yeah, <laughs> there's only a couple yeah. groups that would have budget. OAN is yeah. now heavily censored. I would think maybe uh, like at one point, Ben Swan might have been into oh, Ben Swan would have done that. Yeah. people. Tim Cass can hire journalists, Infowars. 
but did you write it to anyone in specific at Infowars? Did you like write to Rob Dew? Did you like get somebody's email to get make sure it got in front of them? Or how did you? I had no idea who Rob Dew was. I think <laughs> I, I think I found like just an, an email and um, Rob was the one that did end up getting back to me, but I didn't know who he was. I like looked him up on LinkedIn and it, he was like, hasn't been active on there in years. <laughs> so, so uh, I don't know. But um, that was a whole process in and of itself because it's like, now that I'm there, like and contribute, I see how crazy it is there. Just it's just, oh my goodness. Um, but but at this being outside of it, I was he so he had emailed me and then I didn't hear from them for like two months. <laughs> and so I was like, what's going on? But yeah, that's just how it is there. <laughs> now yeah, now, I, now I know. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's grown since, but I was down there for like a week in 2013 when we released State of Mind, the psychology of control. And I remember um, first off, I'd watched Alex for years. And so it was cool to be there. And so I could get the reality of, oh, it's just everyday normal people like me who are working here. It didn't seem like some secretly funded Rockefeller operation. Like everything there looked really legit, you know, as far as like the resources and the people and what they're doing in the warehouse and all these sort of things. And I remember being surprised at how tall Rob Dew was because, yeah. you know, he, he's like got probably six, six. He's a big. Dude. Yeah, he's, he's, a, like he's a, a tall guy. I mean, that in um, a way. I like Chewbacca. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, I I think God really wanted to build faith, which I still struggle with. (laughs) I'm a worrier. Like I I think, I think analytical minds do that. We think of every possible outcome and um, God's really had to work on me (laughs) with that because he didn't give me an answer of what my next step was going to be until like the last minute. I had no idea what I was walking into. Like they didn't say I was going to be offered um, a sponsorship or anything like that when they told me to like, they're just, they were just basically like, Alex wants to meet with you. And I'm like, okay. Um, so I finally got that worked out and went there and um, had a discussion with him. And um, they, they basically were like, well, if you, you know, if you do this, you know, we'll get you here and we'll, we'll make this happen. And, but I, I was very distrustful. I was like, I didn't know whether I could, I mean, I didn't really know them that well. I mean, I'd been in traditional news for so long that I didn't, I mean, they seemed a bit crazy. And I told him in the meeting, I was like, I just want to do news. You know, I want to do what I want to do. You know, chances are, I'm not going to agree with you about everything. And I don't want to just go sensational, you know, cause I know that's kind of your thing. And, um, and, and he's like, well, what do you want to do? You know, <laughs> it's like, I feel like any, any, t- any time people like talk about Alex, they have to do some kind of a voice like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, right. I'm not video. Yeah. yeah. He's what like, ideally, like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I want to do this. I want to do news analysis. I want to, um, I said being independent, you know, since faith is such a big part of my life, I want to, um, integrate faith too. And he's like, oh, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. Um, but yeah, it was scary because he's like, okay, let's make it happen. And you know, I'm like, didn't even know what hit me. And, and he's like, you want to come in the studio, you know? And I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is like, this is really happening happening now. Uh, ha- yeah. yeah. Happening and, now. And he yeah. wasn't going to wait. Like he doesn't, he, like he's I'm either doing it or bye, you know, like that's yeah. kind of how he is. Yeah. You have and, his attention right now. So you can take this action and continue, or he's going to move on to the next thing. And that's when you said uh, it's really crazy down there. I would describe it as like, works. I would describe it as yet to be organized. Cause I remember <laughs> when I went down there, I had a PowerPoint for those, for his team to be like, look, you guys need some like project optimization, getting things done, David Allen type stuff around here. Cause I've, as a viewer, I could tell, 
it's not a whole lot of time. They're always just reacting to stuff, right? Which yeah. is the nature of their business. Yeah. But there was a, anyway, they were so busy. I was there like four days. I didn't get the chance to do that presentation. And we spent yeah. time in the boardroom. And well, stuff, I remember we the way that. you got your interview with Rob Dew on the nightly news segment they were running at the time. It was like just random. It just sort of happened yeah. because you mentioned that you were a whistleblower and it's like, oh, he's a whistleblower. Get him on. It's just like, what, 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 what? you know, all of this happened so quickly and just off the cuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how it does happen. But I mean, th- imagine me, um, you know, who, who failed for it, you know, uh, had it just put, I put so much into what I wanted to do. And I was proud of what I had done. And then in one, in like two minutes, I was supposed to decide. Cause I knew that the minute I was on in wars, yeah, was there was no looking back there. Right. You yeah, can't go back true. from that. You can't like it. So it was, and, and I was very much put on the spot. Like you're either doing this thing or you're not. And, and I mean, this was a ton, a ton of trust. I mean, I told him too, I'm like, this is a ton of trust I'm putting in you. And he's like, well, I got to trust you too. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, so I, I still had my agent out of New York when I was sitting. My agent did not know that I was at. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you that much. So, um, so I still had him. And so I was like, Oh my gosh, like, if I, I can't, know. I can't just show up on his, in, in his studio without like, at least giving them a heads up. So I like stepped out. I like wrote an email, like it's just, is bad, but I'm like, um, you know, after much consideration, I really thank you for everything that you've done for me, but I've decided to go independent and, you know, thank you. Yeah. It was like very terse, like kind of yeah. feel bad about that. But, um, and so then like two minutes later, I was like getting a call, but I like silented it. And then I, and then like two minutes after that, I was in the studio next to Alex about to tell my story. So it was like all that fast. Yeah. That's where I first, dis- yeah. That's where I first discovered you and heard your story. And I'm like, we started featuring your media almost immediately, but that's, now, if that's he was crazy. Better, yeah, if he sorry. was better planned out, he could have done like the Morpheus thing and said, here's the blue pill. You can go back to network media or here's the red pill. You can go independent. <laughs> but it was like that though. It was like, it was so being put on the spot. I mean, obviously I had been struggling with it. I was even like documenting, like you said, um, this kind of journey of, of what I was going to do next. And right. many other people were in the same boat because of the pandemic and, and not working and not sure what they were going to do. Um, but like, yeah, in that moment, it very much felt like now we're never figure this out. <laughs> you know? so. Yeah. And I think that's why that I had the, that. Sorry, well, I was just going to say like the, the, when people were like, you're brave and courageous, I also see your perspective of that, like trying to work without ethics or integrity or recognizing obvious conflicts of interest what are you doing there? Why do they need? Because there's a group of people that want to shape the, the minds of the audience and they're above you and they come down to a point and then you're their salesperson who builds trust and sends it out to that audience. And when you're reading those teleprompter scripts a little too studiously and you're asking those questions, at some point they're going to exchange that part. They're going to pull you out like a dead battery of the matrix anyway. So it's good that you made like the jump voluntarily that you, you, knew, you knew exactly what opportunity looked like. And you didn't talk yourself out because a lot of people would talk themselves out of doing that. Mm-hmm. They would have that risk aversion. They'd oh, I got to do, I got to check with my agent and I got to set people's expectations. But Especially you saw the, the boat middle of leaving a pandemic. and you jumped. You're like, I can make that boat. And you made it happen. And that's a really good example for other people. Well, thanks. I mean, and, and it's, it's, 
it's a it is a it's an ongoing journey. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what I want to do every day. Like, where do I want to put my attention? You know, even the media malfeasance thing was just kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't have that pre-planned, but I was kind of doing that every week anyways. I mean, and I was definitely doing that over the whole past year when I was looking over my scripts and when I was seeing what everybody else was talking about, I was like being, you know, why isn't this being talked about? Why are they hyping this up so much. I mean, and that's kind of what I do every week. Now, when I look at what everybody's talking about is like, what's ignored, what's sensationalized, um, what's just plain false, you know? And, um, it's, it's crazy because like just this, this last week, I was like, oh my gosh, as I'm like trying to finish writing it. Um, I'm just like, it's just so much. Like, it's like every week there's more, there's more. It's crazy. I mean, when I first thought of the idea, I was like, well, can I really, you know, fill, like at least three minutes, you know, and now I'm like trying to keep it under 10 minutes every right. week. Cause it's just so right. much. I've noticed yeah. it's gotten longer and longer. I mean, that's the same I know, issue I cut back because uh, gosh, no, I, mean, no, I actually Freedom like needs uh, a longer like attention span. Yeah. I actually like the longer segments because okay. I really appreciate the amount of information you're, you attempt to fit in. And also some of the quick cuts you do to some movie scenes to bring some sort of, you know, some levity to the, the how Saki, intense Saki. that's been really yeah, fun Saki, i'm not right? gonna yeah. lie um, the editing's been really good you've been getting thank you really a lot better with it each that's week, like so. something i felt like i didn't really get to do um as much with traditional news as be uh, as creative as i wanted to be i mean i i would with like stand-ups or maybe you know working in like puns or something but there's only so much creativity that you can have like when it comes to standard news so now I've been embracing more and more like, how can I make this a little bit more fun, <laughs> you know, and engaging because, you know, a lot of these subjects are so heavy, you know, and, and so I think it's important to try and be aware of this information, but also, you know, keep your sanity. <laughs> yeah, keep your That's exactly. I mean, that's the other thing I sort of I need to ask this question now. I mean, were you aware of sort of the, the larger narrative, the larger perspective of what's going on, the meta perspective? what's going on from a geopolitical analytical sort of situation of, you know, these round table groups and these NGOs and what's. No, I had no idea just how bad, like I had no idea just how bad, like, so that's why I think like Dr. Malone and I connect so well Mm -hmm. is because um, he wasn't aware either. No, like we both like knew that like things were getting worse and and things were getting um, more and more unethical in our spheres of um, careers. But like it's been a journey for both of us. And it's just like we've. Yeah, I even said in one of my that I interviewed him right after Joe Rogan. Um, and that was the interview that I was like, so would you say you've been red pilled? And he's like, that's when he's like five, five thousand or something crazy. Yeah. Um we played but, that during an intermission clip on our show. So it's, it's, yeah. that's such a great clip. Yeah. yeah um, but yeah, because it was like that. My very first interview with him, I was like frantically trying to to get things connected in my corner of the house we just moved into and in, in Texas. And here's my first big interview. And, um, I was like all nervous and things weren't working right. And, you know, just looking back to that, um, and, and ha- our conversation and how he was like, so, um, conservative about everything, like saying, like, I still think, you know, the elderly and immunocompromised should get it, but I just, I'm not comfortable with the way that, 
that this is that they're ruling this out and everything to now when I do an interview him, he's like, this is crimes against humanity. Like, you know, yeah, he's come a long way. He really has. And he like of of all people, like he was working in DARPA and Dietra Mm -hmm. and these sort of things until really red pill himself and and be willing to look at that information because a lot of people would have that thing like you had. It's like, oh, I've done a lot of good work in this industry. And now if I go over here, like, you know, what's what's on the other side? And that keeps a lot of people from either making the change or blowing the whistle or, you know, speaking out or any of these types of things. That, well, I think uh, it helps in the awakening process, we'll say, because like I said, both he and I had had experiences where we're like, eh, this is a little off, but it's just, we just didn't know just how bad it was. But now that we have been outside of it long enough and are looking back, wow, that really was bad, as bad as I suspected, you know, yeah. it's, it's just like, you're almost like thinking back and, and reliving things and being like, oh, so this is what was really going on when I was just suspicious, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, I mean, I definitely have a totally different, obviously picture of Alex Jones, you know? Um, cause obviously all my time was spent, um, with trying to generate stories and doing traditional media. Um, and you know, my mom, I, I would make fun of my mom because my mom would be like, do you know this? And I would tell the people, I'm like, oh gosh, I love my mom. But like, yeah, she's so depressing to talk to because she's talking about. <laughs> she's watching this. police state 2000. It like sounds like what my parents say. I got a, I got a call from, this is a funny story. I got a call, uh, or no, an, e- an email sent. Um, this was when my son was in second or third grade. And I got an email back um, from someone at the school that was saying, we just needed to make sure that you knew that there was an incident on the bus. Um, Your son was telling another, and this was like, like literally like second or third grade, super young. Your son was telling another person on the bus that, you know, robots were going to come and and take over and blah, blah, blah. And and they're like, that's an astute child he's aware and they're like and they're like uh and then i talked to my neighbor about it and she's then my neighbor was like yeah he said that he heard all this from his grandma and i was like oh my god (laughs) mom is telling telling my like eight-year-old about about all these conspiracies you know um it's just so funny to think back on that because like now that i am seeing the evidence and i i've gotten to know alex and just i see what a kind and generous person is he is you know not how he's painted and just how much research he really does do of course he has his sensational flair and his care his character but you know he he spends a lot a ton of time on on research and and backing things up and um the documents i've seen them yeah. got the documents um, <laughs> so yeah it was just so funny how yeah my perception well, i think the the juxtaposition between you and dr robert malone because Early on, he was certainly sort of, I don't want to say self-censoring, euphemizing his statements a little bit, but he then was softening the edges because he yeah. wanted to speak with diffidence and uncertainty because sure. the information wasn't really all there yet. But then he read what the World yeah. Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab were into. Yeah. And it's like, well, they document all this stuff. You know, it's a little yeah. bit of revelation of the craft, so to speak. And that's when he started really being aware. Yeah, he watched willing the to say, one. He's like, yeah. oh, shit. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, this is a. Uh, this isn't some crazy conspiracy theory. That's just how they paint it to misdirect. So people don't look at it and critique it and criticize it. And uh, it's, it's an interesting, I think it's very important for people to see because Richard and I have been in this for over 10 years. He's been much longer. I got into it back in 
2010 when I first met uh, Richard, but you were a whistleblower back. When was your case? 2003, 2004? I went to court in 2006, but it happened in 2003. 2003. Okay. So, I mean, you'd been in this I didn't discover InfoWars till 2004. Then started uh, stuff started making a lot more sense. So mm-hmm. Alex has been doing this 25 years. He's had a broad spectrum from when he was making the hardcore documentaries to just the radio show. But like up until a couple of years ago, it was hard to communicate this information to people because oh, they didn't want to believe it. They so yeah, th- there wasn't enough evidence ask, yet. But now I'm gonna switch the table and ask you guys yeah. something. Yeah. Um, because this is what I do. I ask questions. I don't I don't necessarily like being on this side of the microphone. But um, so this is an honest question I have. So um now that I'm doing this and and now that like the in my, in my view, the, the news is being caught and, and, and all these things are happening. I feel the sense that, you know, a lot of more people are waking up, but then I'm like, do you think that I feel that way? Because now I'm on this side. And, and so I, I just feel like pe- more and more people are waking up or, or do you guys think more people are getting more aware of all of this? A hundred. That's a good question. First off, because it's like a self-checking algorithm to see if what you're thinking is reflective of reality that exists. That's a healthy thing. I would say it's a hundred percent. People are waking up easily, quickly, more in in bigger numbers. I had somebody. I was I was at a local business. I was checking out at the counter. The woman behind the counter started pitching me on like World Economic Forum, nine eleven, all this sort of stuff, and I was like, great, because. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that was, would have been me trying to convince her like, Hey, you should check out loose change or who killed John O'Neill or some documentary. And the tables have turned because they've been so obvious and they've caused people personal pain, anguish, loss of loved ones without getting to see them. Like these were cruel and inhumane things that were done to 208 countries at once in lockstep. So yeah, it's not just because you started working at Infowars. Okay. Yeah. It's more conspicuous. Yeah. When I Years ago, I mean, when I first started working with Richard, I'd spend time. In fact, I sort of lived with uh, he and his wife for a couple of years trying to build up a studio, trying to get the message out there. And I said, this is hopeless. I never said that's Richard, by the way. But I did say it silently to myself. I was like, because people don't, they're not, there's not this sort of a front. They're not sort of accosted by what you and your wife had gone through being whistleblowers. So they don't see it from that perspective. They're having, they're living their life. They have their families. They have their jobs. They just don't, there's this disconnect in society. It's not that conspicuous. It's not that obvious. So, you know, for, at that time, it just felt like it, we're up against sort of an impenetrable force right now, an impenetrable wall, I should say, buttressed by it. And there's no way sort of to, to tear that down, to break through it. Um, then they did what they did in uh, 2020. And I said, well, okay, so this is the first time I've ever been able to talk to my father and my mother about what I engaged in 10 years ago. Um, why I didn't go down the standard path my friends were going down in the corporate world and doing the family thing. And not that I don't have those aspirations, but I want a little bit different life course. And while I was spending so much time trying to get the message out that I might not be able to do those things if our freedoms are going to be taken away like this. And uh, now I can actually have legitimate discussions with my father and be like, do you know about the World Economic Forum? Do you know about Klaus Schwab? Do you see, he even came up to me recently and said, you know, I know Biden's completely incompetent, but it just seems like there's something bigger going on. And I'm like, that's what we cover on our podcast. First time I ever really can talk about what I did in the past with a sense of confidence, a sense of appreciation for what Richard taught me and what I was able to learn by spending time with uh, he and his wife. And then also be able to share that in a way that I don't feel not resentful, but worried that I might be castigated as being, you know, 
a self conspiracy theory, the thinker kiss conspiracy theorist or someone that just didn't actualize his potential in other areas and all these sorts of things. No, it's they've they made it easy on on us. And the, the, the bigger issue I have, and to point out your question, people are waking up, but then again, we have to remember there's a thousand catch webs in alternative media. So there's yeah, like issues. Q. That's Q why I teach. Out there yeah. as a right. That's right. That's why I teach logic. People were, who are waking up and it's like, well, they'll just misdirect them with some red herrings. And there they are over there now serving the, the opposite purpose. Yeah. And then there's the issue of, I have a lot of friends, white collar, you know, lawyers, doctors, um, it, life's going well for them and yeah, still participate with them. They have their families We're spread throughout the country, but we still hang out and do our gaming and whatnot every once in a while. This past week, they were talking about the wonders of the vaccine and the importance of getting the booster. And I'm like, I literally, my one other friend, uh, who's also a lawyer, but he's more conservative and he he's woken up. He's even like, did you hear about the World Economic Forum? Because after they all get off, we stay on Discord and we had a heart to heart. He's like, I'm not, I didn't get the vaccine. I'm not getting the vaccine. I'm not doing this. Like, there's this good, great reset. Have you heard about it? I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, yeah. I don't, do you have, I heard about it. Just wait till you see the podcast we've been doing. So it's just, it's encouraging, but at the same time, I also see the sort of Matthias Desmond and was it McDonald, the other, the, the, the um, uh, psychiatrist out of California that talk about the mass formation psychosis where people, you know, the, the dividing line has been made as obvious as it can be in regards to, you know, this sort of apocalypse or revealing sort of going back to the etymological root of apocalypse, sort of like great revealing that's taking place and sort of us being sort of positioned against one another based on what's happening because like at the same time that people are waking up a lot of them are getting caught in catch webs or a lot of them are sort of just going along with the flow i think because they're afraid of compromising their their relationship with their wife their relationship with their family their relationship with their co-workers and that's what i see with my friends because a couple of them will well, they ask have questions once in a while too that's right? true too yeah. that's true too so there's there's a it's but it's becoming more conspicuous that's the thing like at this point you know, it, you can't, it's hard to argue against the position that Richard has researched and that I've been a part of now for, and Alex Jones, obviously, and so many other great independent uh, uh, media personalities for decade plus that have been into this. It's hard to argue completely against the position, except that you can't just throw out coincidence theory anymore, um, especially with how much information we have at our fingertips. And so at this point, they sort of just ignorance, go along to get along, you know, uh, weaponizing sort of innate fears from our evolutionary path as human beings being, you don't want to be sort of ostracized from your social groups because that's equivalent to death, so, so to speak. And so we still have these fears that's still being weaponized against us in the form of psychological warfare. So I, I, for us, it's like, how do we, especially in independent media, how do we bridge the gap to still maintain diffidence to still speak with rationality to still uh, have sort of um, skeptic, healthy skepticism, not, you know, uh, not overtly skeptic and skeptical of everything, but healthy skepticism to question things, try to find the truth and not get caught in these different areas that allow people to sort of heuristically label us as like, well, if you believe in Alex Jones, you must also believe in flat earth or the moon, you know, aliens or something crazy like that. And it's like, sure. no, like we can, we can separate those as being completely different in kinds. Like, here's the evidence. I can point out what Klaus Schwab is saying, you know, I'm not going to point out what some you know, individuals that is not a scientist or a geologist or, you know, a, a scientist of some that doesn't have expertise or specialization in some capacity and don't understand how those processes work in science, try to tell me about some crazy theory of how the earth formed or something like that. And we don't have to be, it doesn't have to be this false association between the two. Um, and that's, that's what we try to do. We try to sort of bridge the gap with, that's why I started working with Richard and he calls himself a forensic historian, all those books behind him. He's trying to document a trail 
Because the interesting thing about the power elite is they kind of comment on what they've done in history, whether it's the Rothschilds, whether we're talking about the Warburgs, we're talking about the Carnegies, the Astors, the Rockefellers, and what their intentions and goals for the ideas of moving towards world government and the abuse and use of science to instantiate their vision and manifest that vision for world control. I mean, this goes back hundreds of years, and they had an idea really at the end of the Enlightenment for getting rid of the idea of God and religion and any sort of spiritual sense. And they would become that in the form of this new ability to conquer nature through science. And we're seeing the worst effects of that through what's happening today in the manifestation of the vaccines and uh, nanotechnology and biotechnology and this, the whole global, the, the 5G network and all these sorts of things that are used to sort of collect data and use it against us, to gaslight us, to confuse us, to, track trace and database us as jason Burmes likes to say so it's we're still up against quite quite a force but at the same time i agree more people are waking up but at the same time i remember my process of waking up and that was there's a there's a lot of anxiety there's a lot of frustration i had to take some time off it's not easy and so it's just how can we build the bridge so people can get across it without stumbling or falling off the side and hurt injuring themselves metaphorically speaking so they can get to the other side. So they can find that there is community over here. There are people with compassion and empathy for what they're going through and still can find footing with a new perspective because it's, a, it's changing one's identity in a sense. You know, you come up believing one thing like you did, Christy, and all of a sudden that whole thing is shifting in front of your eyes. Like that's a psychological change. We wrap up our, our work life, our family life, our beliefs into our identity. And so it's, it's a sort of ego death, like process, sort of a psychedelic cathartic process. And it's, and, and it's almost like a, a death of, of how people perceive you as well. I mean, because I I talk about that sometimes too, because having been, um, born in the, in the Midwest, I, like I, I was born, went to school, college, um, and, and grew my career on the same community. And so because of that, uh, the community was proud of me, like rising to the top, if you will. Um, and so I, I had a taste of being the community's little sweetheart, you know, and sure. That's a great point. And I'm seeing charity events and, and things like that um, to suddenly <laughs> persona non grata, <laughs> yeah. like my, literally my stupid newspaper back home was just continuing to write news stories on, on me. And I'm like, dude, I, I don't even live there anymore. Like, why are you guys still writing news stories about me? Of course they wrote a news story after I appeared on Infowars, you know? And so that was polarizing and, and probably weird for people back there too. Like what our news lady, like, like, like what happened to her? <laughs> I, mean, I, I got, I can only imagine. All from grace. I know, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's also being comfortable with that, like being comfortable with yeah. like, okay, I had the experience of, of being well-liked and respected to now some people want to curse at me and, you know, and troll me and, um, yeah, sure. but I mean, it gets easier, doesn't it? Like, I, I mean, now it's just like, laughable to me not only is it laughable but i do i feel sad like and i feel compassion um for people because it's like wow like you guys really all are the same like it's always the name calling it's never like ever any well thought out rebuttal or debate it's always just shutting shutting you down or calling you names it's like the same thing every time it's like so 
it's like a big eye roll. It's like, wow, man, you guys are so lost. Um, it's the opposite of and of course there's people that are like really proud of it. They're like, Oh, I can't believe I'm seeing my former news lady. Like on Infowars is great. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you get it both. What's the relationship with your mom? Like now it sounds but, yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh. It's so funny. My, my husband was, he, he had to run cause we still own some property, um, back home. We'll say in Ohio. And, um, he, he's like, Oh man, your, your parents, he's like, they're so proud of you. They're, they're like fangirling, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm like, that's so cool. Cause I mean, a lot of times my, my parents, I grew up, I grew up with my parents being so busy. I mean, they were entrepreneurs, which I mean, is instilled a lot of the, you know, the good qualities in me, of course, but like there were, there was a lot of, you know, being the baby and being like, notice me, like, this is what I'm doing, you know, and, and never really feeling like, have I done enough for you to be proud of me? You know, like never, really feeling that for whatever reason um probably more me than them but um so it is funny to me like oh they, they like like they really into what i'm doing now that's cool <laughs> you know so and they sound yeah, like they're the type that it's more meaningful before. than what you were doing before too so it's good that you can be supported that they get the value of that that it was a good decision for you as an individual but it's also a good decision for freedom if we want to yeah. have freedom we got to yeah. do this and you had a much easier go of it than david ike did because he was a footballer and television presenter. And then he had a psychedelic type experience and came out and told everybody on TV that he was like the son of God and he was Jesus. And I'm sure yeah, he got trolled got for several years on that. Yeah, and now he crazy. fills Wembley Stadium, you know? So they try to keep us in line with like ridicule and these sort of peer pressure ideas. That's how they move the mRNA vaccine out there, right? Peer mm-hmm. pressure, experimental drugs, the two things our parents told us not to do it all became a, a way of life. So as these things go, you made a very graceful uh, and eloquent transition. Extremely graceful. Yeah. Yes. The, well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I mean, that, that's like the best case of the worst case scenario right there. You know, <laughs> well, one, one, one more thing I'll add to this um, topic though, is uh, uh, just cause it was, it was something I was just talking about. Um, it, and we touched upon is when, is that danger to like, almost like go too far with it? Um, and what I mean, (laughs) calm down. Uh, What I mean by that is, um, like keep, keep the same attributes that brought you to this place, like that brought you out of the propaganda bubble, like keep those intact when you go through the, through something like this, meaning like, don't get sucked into, you know, the most extreme things, you know, like the Q stuff or, um, you know, but I I support anybody that like wants to talk about Q and speculate about, I support their freedom to do that. Right. Right. They have the free speech. Let's dig in. Let's talk about like snake venom and like, look at it. Like, fine. It's great. Freedom. You know, that's, that's what this is all about. But like, just keep that skepticism. Like I'm still, um, skeptical of anybody that I, that I interview, even those that I, really like i'm still like but there's always a chance that things could be not as they seem because because i don't want to ever lose that critical thinking and that you know what brought me to this place questioning everything so keep questioning everything always you know in my opinion that's my advice on the situation and then um a little side part of that is i there's there's because of this whole situation. We do have people in the community of freedom. We'll say the freedom community that have, uh, arguments and beefs, right. 
Yeah. Drama. It's kind of frustrating when we Just see people in this freedom community that are fighting and, and turning against each other and calling each other out and calling each other grifters. Cause it's like, wait, you know, like we have got to figure out a way to be united, you know? So I was kind of, um, pressing, uh, this interview hasn't come out yet. So, um, <laughs> so I'm, but I can talk about it. Obviously it will be coming out soon. I just talked to, um, uh, a doctor, um, uh, there, there's, there's infighting with like Dr. Malone and Dr. Peter McCullough and, um, and the, the doctor that will be on with Alex tomorrow. And I was like saying like, okay, why are you, you know, why is there this beef? And like, why do you want to like, what can you do to like bring more, more unity? And he was just saying like, well, I mean, I'm just, just always going to just follow the data and I'm going to call out people when I feel like they don't have enough data, you know? And I guess like in talking through it, I was like, well, at least the thing that, that I think is common to even those that are disagreeing within the freedom movement is the fact that they're willing to disagree. Yeah. That's the importance of free speech. Like yeah, right there, like, you're, you're, you're giving a, a reason why, because otherwise go about don't, the disagreement in a constructive way so that the audience ends up learning from that process. That was the idea of traditional debate, a classical debate in like the scholastic sense back in like 12th, 13th, 14th century was like the audience is supposed to win because you move towards truth. It's not supposed to be who positions themselves to look best in the debate by, you know, being sort of a bully in it or just, you know, um, so the, and this is the so biggest I guess, issue. I guess my point being is, is like for, for those that get like frustrated, like me, when you see like the infighting, know that the thing that is the unity part of it is that even if there's infighting on this side, th- at least they're all willing to have the infighting. At least they're all willing to disagree. At least they're all willing to debate each other because in this side, they're all lockstep, you yeah, know, and, and right, agree. Right. so there that's is right. still something beautiful about even when there's people arguing on this side, because they're free to do so. And it's important because it's an extremely complex topic. It's extremely mm-hmm. complex science. The data is not clear, um, especially because as Malone is and others have pointed out, it's highly sanitized. And so we're having to take data from, you know, uh, there's this, the studies that released on the government website, I think of Ireland or Scotland, that then were taken up, taken back. Del Big Tree covered it. There are the studies, you know, the, the Pfizer documents to the, the judge finally saying, no, you have to release this information. We're not going to give you 75 years. There's been the FOIA request regards to gain of function research. There's just been so much and it's very complex. So trying to parse through it all, you know, my biggest issue when I've been a part of this alternative media thing for now for so long, has been the fact that people get, so I mentioned this before, this sort of catch web. And this is the reason why I teach logic. It's the reason why I got into critical thinking and the, the trivium of seven liberal arts is to help give people the ability to understand and make uh, explicit the processes of how the mind works, reason, logic. And so they can at least come to a topic and not have to rely completely on just what trust what the expert says that that Verkundian fallacy, but make sure that they can at least approach not what the expert says, but the evidence that the expert is relaying so they can then go in and critique that for themselves and come to their own conclusion. Um, I think that's one of the crucial things because what I see too much and what's happened too often, and Rich can speak about this being a whistleblower and having experience with what happened on 9-11 and the truth movement within the 9-11 community is like there's so much infighting, especially on how the towers fell and all these sorts of things. And there's so much derisive content and divisiveness that sort of emerged and manifested out of that. That some people argue was a sort of like a co-intel pro sort of Hoover sort of situation. I, I think it was just people. There's a lot of people in alternative 
uh, perspectives that just haven't engaged their critical thinking faculties enough and they just jump, okay, the media is lying to me over here. So therefore I'm going to jump to the most extreme conclusion over right. here. And that's what I get most frustrated about because I've had to deal with everything like, oh no, you know, people come to me and say, well, you know, viruses don't exist or this doesn't exist or that's this way. And that's, I'm just like, oh man, like let's, we can have some nuance. I'm not saying I won't look at the data, but let's have some nuance this discussion because now you're representing some very complex ideas. And let's not just jump to the most extreme perspective over here. And, and there's also cases where there can be more than one thing true at the same time. That's true. That's which, very which true. Which sounds like a very relativistic thing to say, but I'm saying there are some people that- um, I mean, also the, and- yeah, exactly. Yeah. There are also some people, uh, some people, some doctors that that uh, believe in the vaccine um, just because they they don't have all the information, and there's just kind of like right. an ignorance element to it. And there's also uh, doctors and bureaucrats that that know the fully know the damage done and um, are pushing it for the means to an end. You know, yeah. evil, sinister reasons, and so both of those things can be true at the same time, right? Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's on, it can be very much an also and. I think that's the, a lot of times we get too much in this false dichotomous either or thinking it has to be, oh, if it's not this way, it's a, this way. You know, so it's not, you know, well, COVID-19 isn't what they said it was. It's hitting then one it does, Then disease doesn't exist or something. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's step back and say like both things can be true. Like it just, mm-hmm. they may not have told us the truth about it, but at the same time doesn't mean that there might not be something going on here. Let's look at all the evidence. And we also have to be willing to change our perspective as new evidence comes in. That's another thing people don't, once they get, and that goes to what Jordan Peterson talks about, this sort of ideological bias we have as creatures. We are fundamentally religious creatures, first and foremost. And I can speak to that. I understand that. I grew up in a religious household. Um, I study Aristotelianism and Platonism. I understand that aspect, especially in ancient theology and philosophy. It's a part of our species and it's a beautiful part, but it can be weaponized against us. So you have to be very careful, and especially in, in a culture, in a milieu where there's a thousand different perspectives on things, we tend to form our identity around what we want to believe. Mm-hmm. And so there's that old Nietzsche saying, like, when you stare in the abyss, sort of the abyss stares back at you, but there's, when you stare at the abyss, your own ideology, your own beliefs stare back at you. That's sort of the way I reframe that. And so it's like, we have to be careful how much we give into like, what we want to believe, whether we're from the alternative or from the mainstream. And that's difficult. It's difficult. My mentor and my teacher once said to me, he taught the, the trivium and critical thinking to children, uh, to homeschool children, actually. And the reason why he did so, because he said adults are too ideologically biased. <laughs> it was too difficult for them to separate what they want to believe as part of their identity of who they are and be able to come up as healthy, critically thinking individuals that are willing to change their perspective as new data comes in. That's something you have to sort of instantiate at an early time in one's childhood. As a famous saying, they attribute to the Jesuits, who knows where it came from, but give me the give me a child until he's seven, I'll show you the, the man. And that's something always I get fearful of because I'm like, but we have to change adult perspectives because that's what they're going after the most right now. I mean, that's children certainly are being unbelievably affected, but adults, if we don't sort of find common ground with what's going on, at least get back to the idea of a solidarity, that we appreciate freedom. We appreciate our individual rights. I talk about this when I run town halls, people come to me and ask me all these different, very crazy perspectives. I'm like, we need to find the universal in this, like the shared common humanity we have as a people and like what, how we can move forward together. I don't care if you believe in this theory, that theory, whatever, in the alternative, we need to find a way to come together and move forward or else we're going to end up through this infighting, destroying ourselves from the inside out. And then the powers that be are just going to be in sort of enjoying sort of in a, uh, 
that that Netflix Korean film, but that's sort of like a <laughs> ridiculous uh, sort of game. Squid Game perspective yeah, where they're watching us just kill each other over it. It's like that is something that bothers me. It's something that really gets to me. So I, I completely I share in that that concern and sentiment with you, Christy, is in regards to how to how to navigate the the milieu of the alternative world because it is a crazy situation. It's a very different, but you know. I also wanted to ask, what was the influence uh, of your parents being entrepreneurs on you going independent? <laughs> oh, I mean, I think it was like um, it, that was instilled in me, you know, from watching them. Um, I mean, yeah, they've been a huge, a huge impact in just being able to navigate all these twists and turns. You know, um, they have that. My, my dad was a farm boy you know, and, uh, you know, he went from being a janitor at a hospital to a respiratory therapist to, um, being, you know, like you hear so many times being too good, rose too fast, too soon, caused jealousy issues, you know, that pushed him out into the financial field. And then again, rose too, too fast, too soon. There was another reason that just kind of like pushed him out. And, and so he, he built a business from the ground up. Um, you know, there was times in my childhood as he was making these changes where, you know, one year we had like one Christmas present and then the next year we were like, great. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's the beauty of, of being an entrepreneur is you can go from like the lowest of the low. There can be all these outside forces of like people being unjust and, and liars. And I was exposed to that early because I, I was like seeing this happen to my own father, you know? And then, so he basically went on his, his own and built a business from the ground up. And so, yeah, it's been extremely inspirational in that regard. And, um, I feel like has given me more compassion and understanding of what, what he went through some of the politics of, of his situations, you know? Um, cause in small ways, it's like similar, what was your experience like being homeschooled out of curiosity? Cause it's something um, we promote quite, quite a bit. And it's, it's, yeah, I'm just curious. It's so funny it. to me. It's funny how accepted it is now, because when I was homeschooled, I was a total weirdo to everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ostracized in the yeah. yeah. I mean, me growing up, I mean, I remember constantly being like, if I would run an errand with my mom, they'd be like, Oh, what are you doing? Aren't you in school? You know, like there people would, adults would say that all the time. And, and, and then when I um, would visit a school, you know, I I was homeschooled. There were times that I was homeschooled through a school and people would be like, yeah, like what you're homeschooled. And then when I um, went to school, it was like a culture shock and people were like, what do you mean? What's homeschool? You know, not like that's, it's not like that anymore. Like it's, it's way more readily accepted. Yeah, the pandemic um, has made it acceptable. Yeah. Right, right. right. Especially what but, the parents were seeing, what was being taught the children in school. Right, right. But but yeah, it, w- it was a, a culture shock for me, though. I'm not going to lie. Um, not that I was sheltered. I mean, I went to church. I did social things. Um, but like just going from, um, you know, if I needed to spend like an hour and a half on math and only 20 minutes on reading, I could, you know, um, to suddenly like, no, you only have this amount of time to pay attention to this subject. And then you have this amount of time for this subject, which ended up being a lot of wasted time. So, I mean, 
Ugh. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. And then just like the, the social aspects of it, you know, I, I didn't get some things at first, you know, like being in the, in the cafeteria and the girls, we'd all get up and be, and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing. They're like, well, we're all going to the bathroom. I'm like, well, I don't have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like just little things that is yeah, like the clicky like, sort of nature. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, and then me being able to talk to my teachers, that's what all the teachers would tell my parents is like, it's just so fascinating that she actually like wants to talk to us, you know, and she can talk so well with us, you know, she can um, read and write so well compared to all the notes. Well, I mean, what, but there's elements of, of, you know, which is really sad with school yeah. that, that they, um, ingrain at you from an early age to be just in your peer group, your own, your age, your, only your age group. You know, the beauty of homeschooling is that like with siblings and, and when you get in homeschool groups, you can be like teaching and learning from each other and you're interacting with different ages. The sad part of, of public schooling is the fact that you're ingraining people at a very early age to just be in their close knit common group, you know? And that's part of the function of schooling. Going back to Alexander Inglis, the early 20th century, what this, I think it's called the propiedutic function, but basically the casting of society as right. a, sort of a British caste or Indian caste. And that's actually a part of what was envisioned as part as like this sort of scientific management theory, outcome-based education around, well, education, hence why there were sort of different schools that the elites would send their children to and the sort of social groups that they would be uh, you know, a part of, and that's, that's unfortunately by design. And it's interesting, like, what, what would you say your homeschooling experience did for your career or your career move or how you sort of got into journalism or how you're able to be so willing to question things? Like, what was your, what values do you think, if at all, maybe, maybe it's the opposite, but what values do you think you took from that homeschooling environment and were able to then sort of, uh, sort of, put into your, your career moving forward, um, compared to maybe what you experienced in like the public schooling system. I think, um, and, and every family does it different. My, Mm -hmm. my mother did homeschooling very unregimented, um, and very, uh, flexible which there are some bad aspects of that. I've had to, I, I still struggle with wanting to be regimented and wanting to have a schedule or wanting to get up early if I don't have to, you know, that's, it, that's still difficult to, for me this to this day. Um, but on the good side of it, uh, there was more reflection time, more opportunities to be curious, more opportunities to want to dig into certain subjects for longer if I wanted to, um, independent thinking, critical thinking, um, I think are all so much better in a homeschool setting. I just think it fosters that, um, that better. I mean, because there's so many different directions you can take it. If, if your homeschooling situation allows for that, you know, you can take a day to go like, Oh, I'm really interested in, in this, like, let's, let's plan a field trip this week and you can just do it, you know? Um, so I really like that about it. And then I have, I'm, I probably will have the very best memories of my time, time with my kids from when I homeschooled them last year in California it was just so nice to like sit around and read a book together. And obviously we're doing it at different levels and, you know, there would be eye rolling from the oldest when the younger one would take so long to get through one page and things like that. But there's great memories and there were great memories of like my daughter assisting my youngest with some math and I, just 
it was that just... was the importance of the one room sort of dame school concept before progressive education was that the older kids would also gain the confidence to help teach the younger kids too. Yeah. And sort of gives you a sense of your own confidence early on to know, wait, I kind of do understand this. And I can sort of, you know, they say the best way to understand to know that you understand something is to teach it. So it gives that early on. That's a very beautiful experience. It's, it's difficult because like, would you say it impacted your social life at all? And because a lot of, a lot of the contention that people thought it's all, oh, you know, that you won't get the proper socialization. That's what's so That's hilarious a- about it is, do you know how much my mom would hear from people like, oh, but they're not going to be social enough. They're not going to be social enough. And then it's just like, and then I grew up to be like one of the on most TV. social yeah, jobs right, that you could possibly have. Yeah. Like that is like, what and not like? afraid to go on Infowars from being a right. mainstream. Like that's, yeah. that takes a lot of good an incredible transition and to happen so and to, and to be able to willing to make that choice for yourself like that's where people go in the schooling system i think are much more risk averse to rich's point whereas like if you're you live in a household of entrepreneurs you're homeschooled you're willing to make decisions risk, for yourself risk. calculated risks yeah that's right. for, be- for benefit and gain yeah i definitely um see that aspect of it like i i am always i'm willing to try and fail over and over again if i have to rather than to have never tried at all i fear regret of not trying um or taking a leap on something more than i do of of doing it and it not working out if that makes sense that makes total sense that's where Um, we develop meaning in our life even if we (laughs) fail at least we know we've tried to do something like we actually took actions in our life yeah and um and that's what i that's the biggest thing i hope to instill in my 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 children is to just never be afraid to just try you know um and i mean to that end i'm so glad i had the opportunity even though it was so hard to homeschool all three of my kids by day and then anchor the evening news like for an entire year but i mean it goes to show you that even you know with me being a single mom like i was able to figure it out i was able to make it happen for that year and and so you know if anybody and that is, was during a pandemic year and, too, yeah with the lockdowns and, and in, in california which had a very sort of oppressive legislation yeah, and, I'm, and i'm sure it wasn't perfect and you know i'm sure there was the drawbacks or whatever but i mean but they are going, they're in public school this year, which obviously has all of its own sets of challenges. And, you know, they've gotten great grades. Like, you know, my youngest has been on the honor roll. So it's just like, oh, they missed out an entire year of school, but clearly they didn't miss out too much because they're doing fine, you know, back in the school system. I have, right? to, I have to ask you though, um, with them being back in the school system, I know a lot of the interviews you've done are with parents and these school boards and you've even confronted uh, I think in Texas, a uh, school that was teaching some obviously very uh, absurd and pornographic material. Like it's that to me, the whole the postmodern sort of Frankfurt school, like that it's becomes it's so over the top. It's hard for parents to believe it's actually happening. So how have you been able to navigate that with your own children? So it's happening. I, I guess it's school to school based on the superintendent or what materials they're, you know, where what. What, what, where they're contracting out for the materials, reading materials, and what teachers they have on staff. I mean, how are you navigating all that, knowing what you know with all the interviews you've done? Well, it's crazy. I mean, and then there's, you know, some people, you know, even InfoWars viewers that are like mad at me for even sending them to public school. So it's like you can't please everybody. Um, but I mean, Everything that has happened to me, you know, God has a reason for. And, you know, I was like, so excited to move to Texas and to get back some normalcy. And I was like, I was just like, 
per- thinking it was be different. And then to like find myself in this like terrible school district where I have another battle to fight. It's just, it, I do chuckle to myself like, okay, well, this is where I was meant to be so that I could push back and I could um, help organize these the, the resistance at these school board meetings and things like that. Um, I, I hate it. It's like, I do hate it though. At the same time, like I'd much rather be like homeschooling my kids again. Um, but it's just, it's, it's just not in the cards. It's right not now. a reality for most parents. Like as parents come to me in the town halls and say like, I want to homeschool my children, but like I'm divorced or I'm working 60 hour work weeks is to keep up, you know, the life, you know, life, what we expect as far as income and all these sorts of situations. And I'm like, I get it. Like, I get it. Like, it's not, yeah. it's a very difficult process. It's more about yeah, how do you navigate situation that. Is different. And, and, yeah. and my husband and I, um, I mean, we're dealing that my kids have had to go through, um, uh, like two moves in a short period of time. Plus I just got married, um, in July of last year. So my kids have been through so much change already that, um, they needed structure. Like I, I emulated the way that my mom did homeschool. We woke up late. We, we did our, we got the school done. A lot of of it, they did independently. And, you know, with all these changes, he and I agreed that like what we can, what we can best do for these kids is give, get, give them structure. So like, it was important to send them at least this year to school to just get them back in a routine and, and have that structure and have opportunities for social experiences because of all these changes. And, you know, I'm trying to build a business out of nowhere. I can't right. devote my time at this point to, to that and, and the kids. So it's just, I mean, it is situational, but like I was getting back to before, if you could only do like one year, like I did like just the one year, like my, I've, I've homeschooled my daughter th- three of the grades, fifth, sixth, and then also, also eighth. The, uh, last year was the first time I had homeschooled my two sons, but in just that one year, that one experience, I feel like they're so different than if they hadn't had that well, at least one year of homeschooling experience. Like it's, it's just so valuable, even if you as a parent can only find one year to do it for. I just, I just feel like they need that. Every kid could um, gain from them a different perspective. Right. And it was a hard year. Like I said, I was a a sick of Bob of three across the country and I had to do it, but I mean, it was hard. So, but so what I'm saying is if I could do it for one year of my life, you know, in that situation, then anybody could, can do it at least one year and just see how it goes and see what it does for your child, because it's going to bring things out of them that, um, they didn't have before skills, the way they think about things. You know, I, I feel like there's so much better armed and prepared going back into the school this year, um, because we've had to have, we've gotten to have really unique conversations and, um, I am able to tell them in my own way, what the school is going to try and do to them. Talk about that, you know, and so they're very aware and they're my little informants in many cases. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my daughter, like a lot of the video and, um, and the pictures and stuff that I've been able to get that was to the credit of my child, you know, that being armed with a phone and taking the pictures and we have these discussions and, you know, she's getting to, to be an investigative journalist while still in high school. <laughs> so it's really kind of cool. Journalism for the next generation. Yeah. Christy, I wanted to thank you for taking an hour and a half of your, uh, action packed evening. Being a mom's not easy. And, uh, being able to carve out time to be on the live stream. I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to make it happen because I don't know what time your kids go to bed, these sort of things. I really appreciate you making time. Where can people best support your independent work? Well, I mean, the one thing I'm counting on to always be there is my website, christyleetv.com or klim.news, same place. 
Um, other than that, obviously you can go to my band page, freenews.news, or just go to band.video and you can find my little face and, <laughs> and see that Band. video. Band. video. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He had to say it a bunch of times before I got what he was doing with that. Cause I was like, why does he keep saying band.video? I'm like, Oh yeah, I get it. I get it. And now I know lots of people on band.video. It's a, it's a wonderful place to spend a few hours. Uh, yes. You can get sucked in there too. Um, <laughs> and then, I mean, I'm continuing to expand what platforms I'm on. I'm on a lot. Rumble, obviously Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, as long as they'll have me, who knows when those will go away. Um, and then, uh, bit shoot bright uh, I'm on locals and you know, I'm just, I feel like I'm like always adding, Oh, here's another one. True social gab. And it, it's hard, but like, I, I, I try and give a little piece of me everywhere I can with those, all those different avenues, but yeah. Clout hub is another one. But you everything fantastic job. is Christy Lee TV, like that pretty much on everything. It's Christy Lee TV. So. Outstanding. All right. Awesome we're going to have work. you back really again in the future because yeah. this is a good kickoff introductory conversation for our audience. I'm looking for more. I'm looking forward to more hard hitting uh, interviews and uh, your media malfeasance pieces as we go forward. I'd also like to see you have like a course in the future to teach journalism to this generation, the next generation. I think those types of things uh, need to be purveyed. And the people who are still working in that environment wouldn't have this juicy perspective that you've developed through your, your hard-earned experience. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be a dream come true. Fantastic. All right. Well, you enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Awesome Bye. conversation. Yeah. LD, thanks for arranging that. And uh, yeah, that was, that was fun. All right. So now we got this sizable Ukraine and Russia situation. Wow. And we're going to have to apply our critical thinking. So all that stuff we just learned with Christy about how to evaluate these claims, these sort of things. What I noticed was there's 40 billion being denied in this country, but we sent 40 billion over to Ukraine. Uh, I got this story up here. Uh, Jimmy Dore covers it. Let's go ahead and uh, go to why we might send all this money outside the country for foreign aid when it might be needed inside this country to benefit the people who, from whom the money was extorted in the first place. Let's go to Jimmy Dore. One second. Oh, right on. Audibles. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong. I, I, wrong. I was just so looking for the right section. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, it's a uh, very beginning. Sorry. Yeah, it was a put on the spot. Hey, that was an awesome interview. Uh, so rude uh, to I the super guests. Appreciate I never, I never uh, chime in, but you guys ask all the good questions. So. Uh, right on. Yeah. She's uh she's done a lot of hard work. I'd I'd like to see people like her get more exposure to the people who need yeah. that news, which is like all of our friends and family, basically. So keep it coming. She bridges that that divide too, coming from the mainstream. I just I love the way she can sort of bring her experience from that and then use it in her analysis in an alternative fashion. It's something it's very digestible. Um and she just does a great job. She does a lot of really good like last week with her media malfeasance, she pointed out a bunch of fallacies I just taught in my course in regards to straw men and uh, advericundium, experts say, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. It's very intelligent. The weasel words that people it. use to shape yeah. your language while you think you're getting news, you're getting propaganda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. I'm ready for you. Nah, we bought you enough time. That's <laughs> hey, guess what? The Senate voted for final congressional okay for the $40 billion Ukraine aid. Oh, (laughs) 
What a relief. Ooh, I can exhale. Oh, I was afraid they wouldn't get their fleecing. Again, just just keep in mind how much money that is. The entire recording industry, music recording industry in the United States generates $12 billion a year. They're giving $40 billion to you. The entire recording, no matter what, from, from Beethoven to Frank Sinatra to Snoop Dogg to whoever is popular today, is it Blake? Am I right? Rihanna? Are they still popular? I don't even know. Uh, Cardi B? Wet ass. They're not as popular as you. They're not as big a hit as Ukraine, am I right? Uh, no way. So no, all that money is only $12 billion. They just sent $40 billion to Ukraine aid. That could end homelessness in America. We could have did it. We could have ended homelessness. But instead, we decided to send that money to Raytheon and Boeing and Booz Allen so they could put that billions of dollars in their pocket. The Senate overwhelmingly approved a $40 billion infusion of military and economic aid for Ukraine and its allies on Thursday as both parties rallied behind America as both parties rallied behind America's latest and quite possibly not last financial salvo against the Russian invasion. The 86 to 11 vote in the Senate. Guess what? Uh, you think uh, the 11 was Bernie Sanders? No. Who was it? They're all Marjorie Taylor Greene or something. No, these are senators. These are all Republicans, oh. though. The 86 11 vote gave final congressional approval to the package three weeks after President Biden requested a smaller $33 billion version. And after a lone Republican opponent delayed Senate passage for a week, that was Rand Paul. Every Democrat and all but 11 Republicans, every Democrat and every Republican save 11. Many of them, supporters of former Donald Trump's isolationist agenda, backed the measure. <laughs> it's isolationist agenda. So every Democrat and all but 11 Republicans. So, so the 11 Republicans voting against this were supporters of Trump's isolationist agenda. Is that how you read that? That's how I read that, right? It's, it's, it's written a little awkwardly, but I think that's what they mean. Biden's no, no, many of that. Wait, 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 wait. Well, they're just saying the, they weren't all supporters of Trump, is how I read. Many of them supporters. So, but many so of these many? eleven. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That they weren't saying many of the eighty-six. They're saying many of the eleven who voted against it. That's yeah. what I was talking about. Biden's quick signature was certain as Russia's attack, which has mauled Ukraine's forces and cities, slogs into a fourth month with no obvious end ahead. That means more casualties and destruction in Ukraine, which has relied heavily on U.S. and Western assistance for its survival, especially advanced arms with requests for more aid potentially looming. So more. So you, we're going to give money to Ukraine, but we're not going to give money to the United States American people who are sleeping under every bridge in every city. <laughs> this is amazing. We got to fund more evacuations as yeah. their missions. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Help is on the way. Really significant help. Help that could make sure that the Ukrainians are victorious. That is never going to happen. The Ukrainians are never going to be victorious in Ukraine. Just so you know. And who said that? Chuck, Chuck Schumer said that. We got to help Ukraine be victorious. He's, all the enthusiasm for helping another country's people 
Why if there's any enthusiasm for, well, if we could bomb our cities in America, then we would be funding that. We would fund the shit out of that because then Raytheon and Boeing could make all that money. And those are the ones who, that's who's doing this, you dummies. Why do you think Chuck Schumer wants to do this? Because he's being told to by his donors. That's why they're doing this. Look at all $40 billion. That's more than three times as much as the entire recording music industry makes in a year. You know how much power that gives you? $40 billion. Do you know, uh, did you watch the reports on, you know, with Afghanistan of how, uh, you know, it fell immediately and they thought it was going to take like way longer to fall? Yeah, they, it took they, like five seconds. No one, yeah, because no one was allowed to say this isn't going to work out. Like you were, because that's not, that's being negative. Yeah. Like, where's your positive <laughs> yeah. winner at it? You know, so, I, so the same reporters, by the way, talking about that are looking at this and not connecting it. That's correct. <laughs> like, well, help is on the way. Really significant help. Help that could make sure that the Ukrainians are victorious. That's Chuck Schumer saying that. The vote was a glaring exception to the partisan divisions that have. So they're not the Republican and Democrats are only divided on pretend issues. They're not divided on important issues like $40 billion to Ukraine or screwing the American workers. The, or keeping us from health care. They're, they're on board for all that. Or keeping the minimum wage down. They're all the Democrats and Republicans agree on all this stuff. Uh, they agree on this. This vote was a glaring exception to the partisan divisions, the pretend, phony, surface level partisan divisions that have hindered work on other issues under Biden that promise to become only less bridgeable as November's elections for control of Congress draw closer. That includes Republicans blocking Democrats from including billions to combat the relentless pandemic in the measure, leaving really because Joe Biden just told the cities to take some of that one point nine trillion dollar COVID relief fund and give the rest of it to the cops. So the AP is doing their own propaganda here. Of course they are. Oh, really? The Democrats wanted to have more COVID relief. Well, there's what? Why did you? Why did Joe Biden just say give all that COVID relief to the cops? So this is a bipartisan. Republicans and Democrats all voted for this, and as George Carlin reminds us, the word bipartisan usually means some larger than usual deception is being carried out, and that's what's being carried out right now. This is them pretending that we're helping the Ukrainian people. This is nothing but a fleecing of the American people and a direct giveaway. This is a wealth transfer to the military-industrial complex and to the most corrupt country in Europe, which is Ukraine. Last week, the House approved the Ukraine bill, 368 to 57, with all of those opposed, all of those who opposed were Republicans. Now, I pointed this out that the only people who are anti-war right now in government are Republicans. And so for me pointing that out, people were saying that I was standing for the Republicans. Go ahead, pause that. LD, <laughs> in the, I'm sorry, than I'm that, sorry. you're standing for Trump isolationism. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> uh, in the Grand Theft World production chat, like from a week ago, I dropped that clip of uh, the arms dealers on the news channels selling weapons a big montage uh that fits in really well with what jimmy was just saying we got the gist sending money overseas let's see like who's beating that war drum and then the other thing before we play that clip real quick ld is um 
I'm going to tap out and turn hosting over to Tony. I'm going to check out the rest of this episode from the, the production room, but I've had a, a migraine for like 36 hours now and looking into these lights, it's not helping it. So I'm going to tap out, turn it over to Tony. We're going to go to LD right now for this clip of the, the war mongers, the masters of war selling you on sending a whole bunch of weapons overseas to Ukraine instead of helping people in this country with our own tax dollars. Who's, uh, whose clip is that? Oh, uh, okay. it was a oh, month. No, yeah, yeah, you found it. Um, okay. The first it's one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So can the U.S. deliver the heavy weapons? The U.S. has contributed, I think, nearly $2 billion in aid, militarily, economic, uh, since this war began. Can the U.S. be doing more? The most important thing right now is the weapons, weapon systems, the weapons they need. They need to have stingers and the javelins, but they also need anti-aircraft uh, uh, capabilities. They need anti-missile capabilities. They need anti-tank uh, capabilities. There's a lot of weapon systems, the weapons they need. We have to bring these weapons uh, to get the weapons to the Ukrainians, to move these weapon systems, to deliver those weapon systems, make sure that the Ukrainians are getting the weapons with uh, anti-missile capabilities, Patriot missiles, the S-300s, the S-400s, weapon systems. Additional aircraft, as many weapons as necessary to provide weapons, so sophisticated weapons, whatever possible weapons can be provided. Undisclosed conflict of interest. He works at a firm whose clients include Raytheon, the second largest military contractors in the world. The most important thing right now is the weapons. We should arm the Ukrainians, providing weapons, providing supplies, defenses to arm with weapons, with ammunition. We have to simply do more, to do something more, to do more. We will have to do more. More direct involvement of some kind will be inevitable. More arms, more and more, more and more pressure for us to do more and more by way of supplying weapons, arms. Undisclosed conflict of interest. He's on the board of directors at Lockheed Martin, the largest military contractor in the world. Arm the Ukrainians, anti-tank, get them armed drones. We need to make sure that we get them air defense systems. And ammunition, lots of ammunition. Whatever we can get them, we're going to have to continue to arm the Ukrainians. Undisclosed conflict of interest. She's the chair of the BAE Systems Board of Directors. And by the way, I've been always for us to update and modernize our, our nuclear arsenal. That's important. We need to continue to flow weapons. Flow the weapons. They need missiles. Anything they ask for. We need to get the weapons. Weapons systems. Heavy weapons. Weapons. We ought to be giving them anti-ship missiles. Missiles. Combat chads. Good fighter. Ammo. Howitzers. Plenty of firepower. Everything. Tanks. 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 The javelin. Get those weapons. Weapons systems. The S-300 is a good start, but boy, have we got better kit than that to offer, frankly. Patriot, that additional offensive capability. These are systems, missile defense systems. Order now. The weapon systems, weapons, shopping list. We've got a lot of systems. Weapon system, additional combat power, those weapons, missiles, weapons. Undisclosed conflict of interest. He's an advisory board member of a firm with Raytheon on its client list. 
There's going to have to be increased sending of stingers, increased sending of weapons. On top of those uh, weapons, more and more sophisticated weaponry. Over and over again, as we give the Ukrainians more advanced systems or surface-to-air missiles, we've, of course, been providing them offensive weapons, stingers and offensive weapons, javelins, javelins with surface-to-air missiles, weapons, anti-ship missiles, drones, tanks, tanks. The Ukrainians are going to need those more sophisticated weapon systems. Need surface-to-air missiles and air defenses, counter-rocket, counter-artillery, counter-mortar, counter-missile, surface-to-air missiles the billion dollars of more security assistance. That's what the way the world is going to have to go in responding. Undisclosed conflict of interest. His client list includes Raytheon. We're going to have to engage in a long, indirect war. This is World War 2.5. World War 2.5. It'll last for a very long time. Well, what the U.S. should be doing is more of what we are doing, which is we need to be supplying as much as we possibly can. Munitions like anti-tank javelin missiles, shoulder-fired missiles, small munitions. Undisclosed conflict of interest. She's on the board of military contractor Booz Allen, and her firm's client list includes Boeing. Aircraft. We should also be trying to get them some more planes and some aircraft to fly. There's talk right now of the U.S. giving Poland some fighter jets so that Poland can give those MiGs that the Ukrainians know how to use. The volume of weapons, armor operations, armored vehicles by the hundreds, these weapons are exactly what what they needed and what we have been talking about uh, for a couple of weeks ourselves. Undisclosed conflict of interest. He was the longtime chairman of AM General. We're going to have to find uh, ways to keep that equipment rolling. Let's do more. More? We need to get more. Uh, more of what we've been giving. We should have been pouring more and more. Providing them with the aircraft. Provide aircraft. Provide long-range artillery. They need much more. More heavy weapons. More armor. More tanks. More everything. Anti-aircraft. More anti-aircraft. More stingers. More javelin. Anything else we can provide them. I would include anti-ship missile capability. Surface-to-air missile. More the same. Keep pouring in the uh, air defense systems that we have and the Stinger missiles, the Javelin armed UAVs, deploy armed UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles that are armed, more of that needs to be done. Start going on the offense. I would intensify and try to kill as many as I possibly can. Undisclosed conflict of interest. His client list includes Lockheed Martin, the largest military contractor in the world. I want, uh, I'm sure just like you, uh, want to see as many weapons as possible. Yeah, I was just going to say, I couldn't agree with you more. Sending in the weapons, it's not going to be enough. Maybe it's time, as the commercial says, to send the very best and start sending in U.S. weapons. Weapons that will be constantly coming their way. A thousand missiles a day. Like, this isn't the end. We're going to keep this spigot open here and keep flowing arms, many uh, powerful weapons. And what I think we're settling into is is going to be a, a long uh, war. This isn't going to be a war that's measured in months, but, but likely years. This war will continue to go on. This war is something that will likely go on for, for months, if not years ahead. And Vladimir Putin would love nothing more than our tension to get diverted. So staying focused on this front and center is, is our obligation here in the media. Another fascinating, but very true and very sad situation in the state of our media in regards to conflicts of interest and what's the reality between this $40 billion funding package to the Ukraine. Um, uh, Jimmy Dore did a great job pointing out the corruption. We've highlighted this, highlighted that on the show. Uh, um, I don't know for how many weeks now. It's been probably over well over six weeks. We've gone over the off Battalion and Victoria Newland and um, situation in regards to the over the coup that existed in 2014, that was sponsored by George Soros Foundation and our State Department. 
And it goes back many, many years before that. I talked to Sana, who's a GTW member and subscriber that uh, uh, had a long conversation about the history of the Ukraine. And, you know, we had a number of uh, commentary on that. So I'm not going to sort of belabor that point. I think it just goes to show exactly all the elements of the history that we've been talking about leading up to this point is about a weapons situation. But least conspicuously. So from the World Economic Forum, it's about the continual movement and justification for world government on sort of a, a rung down from that is this idea of resources, military. So funding the military industrial complex. Um, that's what that video just showed, but also just the conflicts of interest in regard to shutting down um, the pipeline from Russia to Germany and making sure uh, that the, the sort of liquefied sort of natural gas or whatever it is that we, that our interests are in America, which many Republicans are being and Democrats for that matter, uh, major donors to their campaign, um, uh, campaign uh, coffers essentially come from these organizations, making sure that we can send over energy to Europe. Now, of course, the infrastructure isn't quite there and it, you know, we have to sort of put it in a whole different state of matter and put it into a liquid state, ship it over there, so the infrastructure isn't quite there, but as long as the war exists, now they have the justification for increasing profits to support that. Hence why there seems to be a lockstep with Republicans and Democrats in America in regards to um, not only the funding for the military industrial complex, but also the massive uh, the, the fall, windfall profits, essentially, you can look at from that perspective uh, for energy companies. American energy providers. And they, interestingly enough, I guess they're not going to provide that for American energy because, you know, carbon or something, uh, that whole anthropogenic global warming scam. But now they're going to ship that over to Europe because they can't get it anymore because of the, the Nordstrom pipeline or whatever it is. So it's just, uh, you can analyze it from so many different dimensions, I think is what I'm trying to point out. You can analyze it from the standpoint of global control from the World Economic Forum, from the UN, from the CFR, from these roundtable and these supranational organizations that Richard and I talk about all the time. You can analyze it just from the understanding of industry, resources and profit. That's sort of the angle that Jimmy Dore takes. Both are correct, um, but both, you can't just isolate one and say that's the only reason. There's multiple reasons. It's a multidimensional, it's a complex situation that requires a multidimensional analysis from the, the standpoint of a movement towards world order this just helps to perpetuate that because the growing conflict is going to create a situation of crisis and, and deflection red herrings and straw men developed around the idea of food crises and potential cyber attacks and grid issues or issues with the, the electrical grid and all these sorts of things, especially food crisis in places in the Middle East that take most of their wheat um, or get most of their wheat products from the Ukraine, which is the breadbasket of Europe. So there's, but at the same time, so it helps to perpetuate then the, the, this whole obnoxious narrative that we've been unfortunately sort of gaslit with for so long now in regards to this misanthropic anthropogenic global warming nonsense, that it gives them the ability to continue to ramp that up and say, you know, this allows them to perpetuate and hasten the, the great reset. Um, and argue, you know, the issues of carbon and argue that we need to change you know, there's another reason because of this perpetual war to change uh, the industries and the way we do things and the way we do supply chains. And so that's all a part of it as well. And uh, so it's just, it's a very tragic situation all around because it's the people, what's for essentially for a geopolitical goal, whether that be from the 
conflicts of interest, these individuals going, these talking heads going on to these mainstream media shows, perpetuating the sort of uh, the, the war, uh, war ban for more and more funding in regards to helping the whole quote unquote Ukraine situation, the same situation that we created, by the way, by destabilizing that nation and actually funding uh, neo-Nazi groups or radical groups within that organization, like Azov Battalion. Have we done that before? Yeah, I saw Mika Brzezinski with Joe Scarborough. It's not like his her father wasn't part of Operation Cyclone and wasn't a part of the whole Mujahideen, which then led to Al-Qaeda to help fight against, be a hedge against the Soviets. So it's not like, you know, I'm just noticing patterns, but we might as well um, uh, not comment on that because they're not allowed to talk about such things. Point is, it's the people that are suffering are the individuals, uh, both in the Ukraine and in Russia. Uh, the, the normal everyday civilians and then also us because of the it now gives a justification to do unspeakable harm. OK, so we're runaway inflation. Let's print another 40 billion dollars. What's the WEF or what's the uh, Bank for International Settlements and Vanguard and uh, IMF? Um, there's a couple other major banks that have come out and stated, oh, in six months, there's going to be food shortages. Well, now they have the perfect excuse. There's Ukraine. Nothing to worry about. It's just Ukraine. It's because of Ukraine that we're going to have food shortages. It's not because of the uh, uh, the reprehensible amounts of spending, uh, printing and spending that have been done for the past, oh, I don't know. Let's think about it. Um, since Bush took office, uh, each year, it seems like the next administration or each new administration tries to outdo, outdo what the previous one had done. Bush printed tons of money for the, Afghan, the war in Afghanistan to go, get, go after al-Qaeda, supposedly, ostensibly. Instead, we were guarding poppy fields, but nothing to see there. And then we get into um, uh, Obama, and Obama has to bail out the banks. Don't worry, it's to bail out the banks. So he prints like double the amount. I forget. I remember reading a statistic once that seems like each one, and then Trump got in office, and even Trump was outdoing, and they he would have gotten a second term. They said he would have printed more money than Bush and Obama combined. And so we're sort of at a point where it's like, but no, the inflation's occurring just because of the Ukraine. Oh, man. People's perspectives are so myopic, and it's very frustrating, and we have a job to do to educate them to understand this is a larger perspective, a larger process. There's a reason why we're going to be experiencing a lot of very tragic things that we already are and are going to continue. That's going to hasten. It's going to ramp up, ramp up, and we need to be prepared for it, as Rich and I and many other alternative media hosts have been talking about. Ukraine is going to be the uh, the Ukraine and Russia war is going to be the sort of justification, the rationalization, just means irrational reasoning, a contradiction as to what is manifesting down the road in regards to great issues or food issues and all these other things and the argument for needing to go on a global id and all this sort of nonsense and the importance of you know coming together as one world and one government and so forth and so on anyways i could go on and on about this one of the bigger problems is we have the jimmy door clip talking about tv war experts revealed as paid shills we're going to skip that um let's do this quick uh at the end of Kim Iverson had a good piss for Ukraine war reporting insults American intelligence. Let's go to quick. Uh, it's the second from the bottom. LD. Let's play the Kim Iverson clip and then we'll go directly to the Brian Wilson. I might have you cut the Kim Iverson clip a little bit like after her monologue. Uh, and then we'll go into vaccines lockdowns. I need to finish feeding my cats, but it's a tragic situation. I just want people to be aware that there's multiple angles they need to understand with the Ukraine situation. There's the resource 
and industry supply chain situation. And then there's the World Economic Forum, there's the UN, there's this whole world government angle too. That is sort of the meta angle, but both are in play here. Both are true. And we can't isolate one and just look at it as though it's just, this is the reason why. It's a multidimensional complex situation as to why we're experiencing what we are with that. So let's go to Kim Iverson, and then we'll go to Brian Wilson. Kim, tell us what is on your radar today. Well, it seems to still be extremely difficult for us to get any real reporting on the war in Ukraine. The only thing we keep hearing in our news is Russia is being pummeled and any day now they're going to run out of supplies, give up and go home. If you remember, there have been numerous reports coming out like this one from Newsweek on March 15th claiming Russia was mere days away from running out of resources. Or like this report from the Daily Mail two weeks later saying essentially the same thing, that Russia's war effort had stalled because the Red Army couldn't get supplies. Well, we've been unable to get a clear picture of what exactly is going on in Ukraine. All of the reporting has been, quite frankly, piss poor. An important figure, like how many casualties have occurred on either side, is still nearly completely unknown to us. For example, estimates of Ukrainian civilians killed run somewhere between 3,800 and 25,000. That's an enormous difference. Same when it comes to estimates of troops killed. The Ukrainian government claims their military losses are somewhere around 3,000. The U.S. puts that estimate somewhere closer to 11,000. The estimates aren't any better when looking at Russian casualties. Russia claims they've lost about 1,500 troops, but the U.S. claims that figure is in the tens of thousands, even upwards to 60,000 troops lost by some estimates. Basically, it feels like pick a number, any number, somewhere between 1,000 and 100,000, and it might be right. Now, I understand things change in war moment to moment, and people are being unfortunately killed all the time. But this range in casualty numbers, especially troop casualties, is absurd. These soldiers are all accounted for. The military knows who's in each battalion. They know their names. They've given them numbers. And they know who doesn't make it at the end of each day. They know if it's 100 soldiers who don't make it or if it's 1,000 soldiers who don't make it. So why the wild estimates? Now, when it comes to how much territory has been successfully defended by Ukraine or lost to Russia, we're still very much in the dark as well. We get the runaround in reports and at times they even flat out insult our intelligence. Just these past few days, Mariupol fell to Russian control. The city had been mostly under Russian control, minus a steel plant that was still under the control of the Azov Battalion. The battalion had been in pretty bad shape, uh, but they were under orders not to surrender until the other day when they finally were allowed to. Now, rather than report the reality that Russia has captured Mariupol and hundreds of Azov Battalion fighters have surrendered, the media gave us headlines like these. Breaking news, Ukraine ended its combat mission in Mariupol and said fighters were being evacuated, signaling that the battle at a steel plant was over. Or like this headline here, Ukraine says Mariupol steel plant combat mission completed as hundreds of troops evacuated. Evacuated. These headlines make it sound like Ukraine had come in, gotten their men out when the exact opposite happened. The fighters surrendered. The Russians rounded up the fighters and transported them to Russian-controlled territory, where they're now being held as POWs. And Mariupol is under full Russian control, likely never to be considered part of Ukraine again. 
Now, why can't we just be told the truth? I think that's the ultimate big question. With all of the fighting against misinformation, why are we being fed a diet full of it when it comes to the war in Ukraine? What are they afraid of if we know all the details, the wins, the losses, the triumphs, the tragedies? What is the problem with us knowing all the details? So I want to show you this clip of Mick Wallace addressing the European Parliament, which he is a member of. Now, Mick is an Irish politician who's part of the left-wing political coalition. And unlike many in the, on the left here in the U.S., in Europe, the left-wing politicians actually call for an end to the war through peace talks and often call out the establishment lies we the people are being fed. Here he is talking about U.S. journalist Seth Harp, who has reported that it's impossible to get factual information out of Ukraine. Thanks very much, President. Um, Russia engages in disinformation and propaganda. So does everybody else. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on the comments of the U.S. investigative reporter, Seth Harp, who recently got back from spending a month in Ukraine for Harper's Magazine in the U.S. He was conducting research and has been doing some interviews and his experience is striking, if only for the limitation and obstacles he faced in trying to cover the war. Speaking about access for journalists in Ukraine, he said, no one is able to visit the front lines. No one is doing interviews with commanders. No one is going to the field hospitals. There aren't good casualty numbers. And it slowly dawned on me, he said, that it's just a result of the extraordinary restrictive immediate environment that's over there. It's much more restricted than in any war zone I've ever worked in, he said. He described the media centres that had been set up by the Ministry of Defence over there, how streamlined and comfortable, he said, they were for Western reporters. But he says it's almost impossible to get information that doesn't come through the centralised channel. So there's a great deal of homogeneity in the reports that are coming out of Ukraine, largely because reporters are just going and hanging out at these centres and they're all getting the same material. Now, what's clear is that the narrative about the Ukraine war is tightly controlled by the Ukraine Ministry of Defence, and with all the checkpoints, it's impossible for journalists to gain access to anything resembling the front unless with full approval of the Ministry. Anything that deviates from the narrative that comes out of this highly choreographed show is condemned as Russian disinformation. When in fact, what, what I am describing is a smoothly running propaganda machine policing the narrative so as to suit the NATO Ukraine perspective. The one-dimensional approach is at the expense of possibly reaching a genuine understanding of what's really going on. Yeah, so we don't really know what is going on. And Robbie and Bree, you know, the big question that I have is why are they not allowing us to know the truth? Why is it that journalists in Ukraine are unable to get to the front lines or to or to talk to commanders? We have one guy that's on YouTube, Patrick Lancaster and the people that he's with. He's on, he's been on the front lines in Mariupol watching his videos as har are harrowing. Um, but other than him, who's actually there and you can see him interviewing people in Mariupol. Now, that was a very he was he was uh, alongside Russians, Russian fighters uh, interviewing people in Mariupol. They gave a very anti-Ukraine perspective on that. But it was at least I mean, but he was talking to people. I mean, he was walking up to him. You could actually hear the interviews and hear their responses. That was better than what we're getting out of mainstream media. It's an interesting point uh, the individual pointed out in regards to Zelensky. He didn't mention Zelensky specifically, but Zelensky did nationalize the media over there and shut down most of the, in, uh, I can't say they're independent. Some of it was Russian oligarch owned, certainly. 
I don't think all of it was, but he made sure that there's a sort of homogenization, homogenizing effect of the media that runs through essentially whitewashed through a government first to make sure it's a government sponsored approved message that will then get out um, to control the narrative. And that's what this whole war is. It's hard to know exactly what's going on at all in any respect. And, um, and it goes to show the importance of remaining sort of uh, skeptical from both sides about what's being reported, and especially from our own State Department. That should speak for itself. I want to circle back, Saki style, real quick. Um, in the chat, LD, uh, see here, there was a question asked in regards to where we found that clip about the uh, the influence, the uh, financial influence of individuals that then go on mainstream media as these talking heads. Where did we find that clip? Where did uh, Rich find that clip? Yeah, Do you uh, Weapons for Ukraine. It's Matt Orphalea or Orf for short. But, is that on yeah. YouTube? Or is yes, that it's, on, on, it's on YouTube. Matt Orphalea. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, weapons for Ukraine. Number four for Ukraine. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate I'll share that. the link again out there. Okay. Awesome. I appreciate that. Thank you, man. Yeah. And so it's, I wanted to get that perspective in there because it's important to realize that it's not just, so I talked about the multidimensional aspect in which we have to understand the ultimate goal, the sort of grand chessboard uh, style, the, 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 um, I think that was Brzezinski, right? Ironically, Grand Chessboard. I'm not getting that confused with Kissinger. I hope not. No, you're, Anyways. You're right. Hmm? Yeah, it's Brzezinski. Brzezinski. Yeah, it's a classic. Yeah, it's an absolute classic in regards to... In fact, I should probably bring up that book. I will, actually. I'll see if I can find a digital copy. Because right now, I do apologize. I'm, obviously, people are familiar in our community. I'm in the middle of a move. I did move. I just have to unpack. It's a story in and of itself. So just bear with. Uh, let's go to this... Brian Wilson clip. This sort of caught my eye. It's a little bit out there. I don't like to usually push this sort of narrative in regards to nuclear war, but there were some war drills conducted in Austin, Texas, uh, nuclear fallout war drills. So I'm just curious as to what the hell is going on in sort of lo local municipalities and townships and responding to or preparing for to respond to a nuclear threat, which we should be very dubious about. Where is that coming from? What type of threat? You know, Let's, uh, let's get into this. I know supposedly the big narrative is that Russia has the largest nuclear stockpile, intercontinental missiles. So whether that's fully true based on at least what's available to us based on the evidence we have available to us, what we can extricate ourselves in regards to um, what's available. Yes, that on paper, that's that is true. But who knows? But let's go to the Brian Wilson clip now and just get a three minutes perspective, a short clip on what this nuclear fallout situation is like. The federal government is openly preparing for fallout from nuclear war on U.S. soil in Austin, Texas. What do they know that they aren't telling us? 
The, the self-proclaimed exercise is called Cobalt Magnet 22 and is led by the U.S. Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration. They brought more than 30 local, state, and federal agencies together to conduct a major radiological incident exercise, meaning they simulated a nuclear attack on a U.S. city. Obviously, they're preparing for war with Russia as the U.S. government gets more involved in supporting Ukraine, both financially and militarily, and NATO continues to expand membership eastward, something they promised Russia in 1990 that they would never do. War with Russia would definitely escalate to nuclear bombs, but who's gonna strike first? Texas citizens were told to expect to see protective clothing and radiological detection equipment in the field, as well as low-flying aircraft and groups of first responders acting out the radiological incident at various locations across the city. The exercise is meant to enable government personnel to practice protecting public health and safety. However, the fact that this is even taking place is an indication that the federally run intelligence agencies believe nuclear war is not only possible, but probable in the near future. So what are they privy to? What does the federal government know that they aren't telling the American people? Could a nuclear attack be coming to the U.S. homeland sooner than we are allowed to think? Perhaps this will be our only heads up. This is Brian Wilson with Infowars.com. Very disturbing. Uh, while that was going on, just checked out. Here's the National Nuclear Security Administration website. Come on, make it bigger here. There we go. So let's just check this out and see what they have to say. Another one of these uh, drills are being held, and we all know what goes on when or what happens seemingly after they run drills. Not always, but it's a portentous sign of what might be coming in regards to. So let's just get into this cobalt magnet exercise will bring numerous agencies together to ensure preparedness washington more than 30 local state and federal agencies will hold a major radiological incident exercise in austin texas during the week of may 16th through 20th this was this week or this past week excuse me the cobalt magnet 22 exercise which is led by the u.s department of energy's national nuclear security administration brings numerous agencies together to ensure preparedness against radiological threats Cobalt Magnet 22 is the culmination of 18 months of planning by local, state, and federal responders taking place at very 18 months. And the Ukraine war started back in February, third week of February, somewhere in there. Huh. Okay. Taking place at various locations around the city, the exercise will simulate a radiological attack, enabling response personnel to practice protecting public health and safety. Providing emergency relief to affected populations and restoring essential services. So let me get this straight. They're planning this 18 months ago. So we're like in the beginning of the pandemic, we're towards the beginning, getting to the middle of the pandemic, where we had no idea that there's any issue in regards to nuclear fallout. We're all sort of uh, raptured by this, uh, this, this new narrative, this situation that's completely novel for most individuals in regards to lockdowns and what's going on with COVID. And, you know, all this sort of nonsense that they were starting to plan this already. This goes to show, of course, then again, now that we know the history of the Ukraine and what happened with the, the Maidan uh, coup and um, uh, the uh, Victoria Newland and Strobe Talbot, obviously, and Hunter, her husband, 
and all George Soros and his open foundation, but it's under a different alias, obviously. But uh, the influence they had on the UK, Ukraine, especially in the, the Maidan coup that took place, that installed the puppet government, that allowed the sort of destabilization of the nation to continue to occur. And then, of course, a part of that is this whole NATO situation, which I think I don't think I ever got the opportunity to show individuals and get myself back on screen here. Sort of the purpose of NATO from the Quigley perspective, which we always have to be, I don't want to say dubious of Quigley, but he sort of was a mouthpiece in a way. Um, he was just a little bit too honest in regards to the intentions, goals and ideas and uh, vision of the Council on Foreign Relations since he had, uh, you know, multiple years being able to go through their private records. Some say it was, I heard 20 years. I've also heard it was two years and it took him 20 years. I, I have to look up that specific point. Either way, he had, he was a lot one of the only to allow access into the pr private um, papers and private publications and private communications of the Council on Foreign Relations and what their goals and visions were, especially in regards to NATO and especially the role that the U.S. would play as sort of the, the key hegemon within the NATO structure. Um, they would be essentially the, uh, the war dogs, if you will, the ones that would actually enforce uh, this policy. And so this encroaching this grand chessboard, if you will, of encroaching and pressuring essentially a wounded bear or wounded, very lethal animal in regards to Russia, another nation that's been completely destabilized as well, especially after the fall uh, of the USSR and all these. And they essentially use that. I mean, in fact, if people aren't aware, aware and this is sort of a loose association, but check out the movie. I think uh, Nicolas Cage is the uh, it's hard to call him a protagonist, but one of the main actors in the film called Lords of Lord of War. I think it's called Lord of War. Check that out and see, uh, you know, it's obviously fictional or it's a fictional movie, fictional, fictional film, but it does show you sort of angles as to what happened in the Eastern Europe that obviously did go on in regards to arms trading, arms dealing, um, the importance of making sure there's these private consultants that are backed by um, U.S. agencies are, are selling uh, these arms, promoting proxy groups and proxy forces, destabilizing these newly formed European, Eastern European countries, such as Ukraine after the fall, uh, Yugoslavia, Bosnia, and all these various, uh, especially along the Crimea, the importance of the Red Sea, we got into that, so Sevastopol, the, the, the control of the, the Black, the Red the Black Sea, excuse me. Um, there's so many elements at play here. And the important thing is the continual destabilization and using NATO as a form of a weapon to pressure, 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 and also create these sort of like uh, proxy forces in these destabilized regions along Russia's border, Ukraine being the most conspicuous because there's been a long history of the Ukraine being really Russian, part of Russian identity up until the 18th century when they wanted to form their independence. What a surprise. Uh, in regards to that whole 18th century was just the overturning this whole that well, was the, the, the fire in the minds of men this new national sentiment is rising up and of uh, nation states and getting rid of the old the old sort of kingship model and um, they were certainly part of that movement wanted to see themselves as Kazakhs or the indigenous peoples of that region didn't associate them as uh, Muscovia Kiev Rus and sort of a Russian sort of Kiev sort of have their own Orthodox church, own perspective, own culture um, as part of that tradition, which goes back for many years, for hundreds of years, going back to, um, you know, before the Mongols, I think, invaded around that same time. 
when they formed a coalition to go against the Mongols. That's a story. Point is, a lot of what's being fed, obviously, just like with Mujahideen, I guess this all goes back to Brzezinski, is creating a narrative that isn't true, telling a lie, perpetuating and propping up these proxy forces with these neo-nationalist sentiments, forming uh, for false forms of history. Rich talked about this earlier. They, 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 hit, they tell a different brand of history. They leave out neglected aspect fallacy all over the place. They you know, very conveniently tell only the narrative they want to to perpetuate the sentiments and the sort of groups that they want to uh, engender the qualities that will help move it in a situation that will believe that, no, 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 we are different. We don't share anything in common. This isn't a support of Russia, by the way, because this is before Russia was a nation in the, the way we understand Russia as well. Um, but at the same time, then it's also the control of language. So I have a friend from the Ukraine and he exhibits those exact same things. They see themselves as completely separate, completely different. And they also uh, 100% on board with any narrative that comes out of the Ukraine. And they don't see the larger history of what's going on. So on the flip side, we have sort of ex-KGB, Putin, also what economic forum class of 92, young global leaders. Um, he's with this Ukraine war. This just hastens the, the great reset agenda. You know, it gives them the, the narrative they need to prepare, to push this whole energy crisis, this global warming nonsense that I talked about. Um, uh, I talked about energy crisis, food crisis. And, you know, allow the continual destabilization of the world's supply chain so they can justify the need for a great reset, which means what's that track, trace and database, everyone total technocratic control, top down control grid, Jeremy Bentham, Panopticon style control. Uh, and that's that's been the vision. They, they, they We saw it conspicuously through the, what happened with COVID. And now we're seeing it also hasten with this whole new myopic focus, as I mentioned, on the Ukraine and Russia. And now they're transitioning to what we're going to get to in a second here with monkeypox. So it's just one thing after another, after another, just fear, fear, fear. If we continue to give our energy into this type of fear collectively, we're, end up going, to, we're going to end up manifesting the worst elements of the human soul, psyche, the worst elements of what we can manifest as a species, since we're capable of the greatest good and seemingly the greatest evil. So it's really an indictment against our own spiritual and psychological aspects of our species. And we need to be careful and find ways to hedge against that by creating community, finding love, finding solidarity, finding the universal and what makes us human and not getting caught up in what makes us diff- supposedly different from everything else. And so I just wanted to make that aware because when we go back to this NNSA situation, 18 months, 18 months of planning, that's very, very disturbing to me. Um, knowing that they were already doing this at a time where there is no indication that we're going to have a nuclear struggle. Not with China. Yes, there's belligerent activity in the South China Seas, but there's no indication there's some sort of issue with China or Russia at this standpoint. And now we're dealing with potential for nuclear fallout. And obviously, I mentioned the, the issue that supposedly, at least on paper, Russia has the most, as the largest, by far, the largest nuclear arsenal and uh, have the intercontinental missiles to be able to send that nuclear arsenal uh, and be able to hit countries all over. And they, they've demonstrated that, at least through their form of a State Department over in Russia, what they could do to the United Kingdom. And so who knows? It's all propaganda on both sides. Could this be fear mongering? Could this be preparing people? on the wake of being exhausted from COVID-19 to be now scared about something else that's completely different or separate. It's actually not totally separate. We'll say different from COVID because since the COVID narrative was getting exhausted and so they needed to pivot 
uh, who knows, but it's something to be aware of. With that, let's move into the vaccines, lockdowns, and therapeutics section. Uh, this is a voluminous section, and it's probably one in the board. <laughs> God damn it. Um, so there's a number of things I think that's important to get on this the record for this time capsule we call Grand Theft World. I think let's first go to the Greg Reese bit. Let's get that on. So let's go this. Let's do this, LD. Um, just one above where you're at. Greg Reese, uh, New World Order prepares a final attack. Let's transition right from the Greg Reese into Paul Joseph Watson. I'll come back for quick commentary. And then I want to go into this Peter McCullough for a longer uh, interview talking about the truth of monkeypox, plan for the next lockdowns, what's, what's the next great move. So let's first do those two videos, Greg Reese, Paul Joseph Watson. I'll come back for a quick commentary and then we'll jump to Peter McCullough. Many of us didn't see it yet in early 2020, but today millions of us are now aware of the emerging one world government and their deceitful plans to seize power hidden under the guise of world health. And many of us are now awake to the fact that this so-called new world order is religiously paganistic, luciferic and satanic. So it's no surprise that their coronation ball climaxes on May 28th with a devil-horned moon and the Jupiter-Mars conjunction, which is believed to bring success when starting a war. Their big week of megalomania begins on May 22nd in Switzerland, with both the World Health Organization's annual World Health Assembly and the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos. In Geneva, the WHO will be voting on a pandemic treaty known officially as the Zero Draft Report of the Working Group on Strengthening WHO Preparedness and Response to Health Emergencies. This pandemic treaty will make them the directing and coordinating authority on international health. The WHO's Zero Draft Plan includes regular simulation exercises, global surveillance, more vaccines, more censorship, contact tracing, and digital vaccine passports. In Davos, Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum's annual meeting theme is History at a Turning Point. Their agenda includes more vaccines, more censorship, and more LGBTQI resilience. The same week in Indonesia, the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction is holding their annual global platform where they will be planning for regular ongoing pandemic simulations, more global governance, more money to fight climate change, and ultimately accomplishing the United Nations 2030 Agenda, also known as the Great Reset. After the New World Order's narcissistic coronation week ends with the devil-horned moon and the Jupiter-Mars conjunction, Klaus Schwab and his fellow Satanists can celebrate with their friends at CERN. And then what? In March of 2021, the Nuclear Threat Initiative conducted a tabletop exercise simulating a global pandemic involving a monkeypox terrorist attack something that Bill Gates has told us to expect. 
The Biden administration has just bought millions of doses of monkeypox vaccines, and mysterious cases are now being reported. The final assault of the New World Order will involve a man-made bioattack, food shortages, FEMA camps, rolling blackouts, and endless riots. Violence may save your life someday, and it might save our freedom, but it's not a solution. If we really wanted to solve this problem, we could all peacefully convene at our local government council and demand either their allegiance to the Constitution or their immediate resignation. Because the New World Order is not going to surrender, and the entire U.S. government is under their control. This coming Memorial Day, remember and honor the ancestors who died for our freedom, because it may very well be our last. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. It offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. The WHO has called an emergency meeting to discuss the worldwide outbreak of monkeypox. Oh joy, another global viral infection. Britain's monkeypox outbreak has doubled in size with a further 11 cases announced today. The virus has also reached nine other countries with 34 suspected cases in Portugal and 49 in Spain. The first case was imported from Africa by someone traveling from Nigeria back to the UK. The Telegraph reports that the virus has, quote, an unusually high prevalence in gay and bisexual men, thanks to the increased likelihood of blood contamination due to things I don't really want to talk about. The Nigerian CDC has warned its citizens to stop eating bush meat, which is a cause of monkeypox spreading. Yeah, part of their diet in some areas of the country includes monkeys and rats. Some cultures are better than others. Unsurprising then that Nigeria records 3,000 monkeypox cases every year with the actual number probably being significantly higher. Such bush meat is available on the black market in ethnically diverse areas of London, where the majority of UK cases of monkeypox have been recorded. The British NHS urges people on its website not to eat bush meat. Disclosed TV reports, quote, in March 2021, NTI partnered with the Munich Security Conference to conduct a tabletop exercise simulating a global pandemic involving an unusual strain of monkeypox caused by a terrorist attack using a pathogen engineered in a laboratory. Viruses created in laboratories then released into the world? That would never happen. But there's no sign yet that this current outbreak has anything to do with terrorism. Monkeypox expert Professor Anne Remoyne says the virus needs skin-to-skin -skin contact in order to spread and isn't very transmissible in humans. Why is it spreading so fast then? She says the general public should not be too concerned at this stage. But then Dr. Ramesh Adalja at Johns Hopkins says it can spread, quote, through respiratory droplets. So which is it? Both, I presume. Sky News reports, quote, exactly what's driving the UK's largest ever outbreak of monkeypox is a mystery. Scientists have long warned that it could mutate into a more transmissible form. No doubt control freak technocrats and perennial mask wearers are rubbing their hands at the prospect of generating more hysteria. Of course, the biggest issue here is what kind of flag or emoticon people will have to add to their Twitter bios to show the appropriate level of concern if this becomes the new current thing. I can't believe it's monkeypox season already. I still have my Ukraine decorations up.
fantastic reporting by both Greg Reese and Paul Joseph Watson. We know uh, the ritualistic nature of these individuals, so I'm not surprised to understand there's a certain astrological uh, conjunction between what Mars and Jupiter, I think it was stated, and this weird devil horns thing. It's very strange. We know the symbolic, their love for astrology and sort of old ancient sort of pagan traditions that is outlined by like Sir James Frazier in the Golden Bell and uh, others. And we, I remember commenting on this, talking about this in town halls in regards to a lot of like ancient Egyptian and Sumerian rites and rituals being a part of essentially uh, propaganda promoted by the State Department going back to the Obama administration before. So we know they certainly have a love for this sort of, I, this sort of ritualistic and symbolic uh, behavior. And so it's you know something to be aware of. Uh, at the same time, that the course of what economic forum is hosting. Um, are their annual meetings and we have this whole new monkeypox narrative what's that about we have the ukraine and russia war continuing continuing to escalate i think we have the sort of scandinavian but we have fin- finland uh was it sweden i believe too maybe denmark uh they've i know finland i believe was uh one of them for sure very small countries by the way but still have agreed to join nato so we have continuing pressure being put on uh uh, on Russia to maybe do a the most unthinkable and unspeakable act that could be done in war in regards to large scale act uh, large scale in regards to, to using nuclear technology who knows but there's a lot of really crazy shit going on I don't want people to be too scared about it but we need to be aware we need to be aware of the narratives we need to be aware of what they're trying to gaslight the public with what they're maybe trying to scare us with trying to get us to comply with or to respond to and focus on when they may be trying to attempt to do something else. So just want to make aware of that. One thing I do want to point out in regards to monkeypox, I'd gotten this on the record before many times back in past episodes to make this bigger. This just had better formatting before, but I can't find that right now. But this goes back to 2018. It's called uh, Senate Hearing 115.720 from the U.S. Government Publishing Office. Uh, facing 21st century public health threats, our nation's preparedness and response capabilities, part two, hearing of the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, United States Senate, 115th Congress. So that refers to 115 up above, second session. On examining facing 21st century public health threats, focusing on our nation's preparedness and response capabilities. Let's just do this little search here. Of course, pox. Through this paragraph, we are also now in an era where there is incredible power in biotechnology and science. This power is almost entirely for the good. <laughs> uh, sorry, let me re- let me repeat that. Uh, this power is almost entirely for the good with the development of new medicines, better agriculture, improvements to the economy and more. But with every new technology, we need to acknowledge the potential downsides of accidental or deliberate misuse. It is now possible to engineer new traits into old viruses. For example, it is becoming possible to take the lethality of one virus and combine it with the contagious qualities of another virus. And last week, scientists published research showing how they synthetically could create horsepox, a close viral relative of smallpox. We don't have the oversight system we need to fully understand or manage these kinds of developments yet, either in the U.S. or internationally. Whatever we do about this, we need to ensure that we don't slow down science that drives so many good things forward. Mm. We also can't ignore it, like gain-of-function research. Sorry, I'm being facetious now. But anyways, to end this, but we also can't ignore that new risks are becoming possible. Well, that's interesting. So now we have the situation with the supposed monkeypox. 
and see what we're going to get to uh, Peter McCall here in a second to give us some perspective on what this is and something to be scared about, something that's even real. Like, what is this whole phenomenon that's been making rounds and a little bit in the mainstream news, but not much, mostly in alternative media and try to get a stand, an idea of what's going on there. I do know it's, it's just curious coincidences. Bill Gates comes out with his new book, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic, I believe. Um, then he comes up with the germ theory team. We had that on a week or two ago, talking about how he needs to coordinate with this new team, I think, a part of the World Health Organization, which he's the second largest funder of. I think it's China and him. Maybe he's the first now because we backed down under Trump. I think we re-engaged with our commitments to fund the World Health Organization, but he still stands in the top three. I believe he's top two in funding the World Health Organization. Forming a germ team that's sort of a, a group within the World Health Organization. And they're trying to get this pandemic this uh, pandemic preparedness treaty pushed through. Uh, hmm, just a lot of really strange coincidences. And then we have monkeypox. Let's not forget about that weird incident in my state of all places in Pennsylvania, uh, near Scranton, I believe, which is where good old Joe Biden's from, you know, right? So up in the sort of northeastern area of the state, there is that crash. I forget on what interstate. And that lady gets out of her car. She goes and checks what's going on. It's supposed to be cats is what the driver told her it was. And, oh, a monkey pops out and bites her. She didn't get monkey pox. There's no indication of that. I'm just saying, oh, wait, they're using monkeys to do experiments on? Oh, that's interesting and strange. I think Luke commented on that before. Um, if not, maybe I'm just... It's a confabulation my memory talk because I remember watching a clip this week where they're talking about how they're not going to send monkeys to be used for experiments anymore for these incidents that's been going on. A lot of crazy shit going on. So, and a lot of very strange coincidences all happening at the same time. Oh, yeah, there's all those bioweapons labs that we funded in the Ukraine, by the way, that we're not allowed to talk about, but Russia seems to now have uh, per, um, procured through their military actions. God knows what. You know, and most anyways, I could die tribe on this forever. Tony, have you have you seen this nti.org post? It was it was cited in the Greg Reese video, I believe. Uh, Chris McMillan shared this with me. And so nti.org, this is from November 23rd, 2021. Strengthening global systems to prevent and respond to high consequence biological threats. So. I guess this has been described as sort of the event 201. Well, go scroll, scroll down a little bit. Of the next current thing. Stop, stop right there. So it says this report strengthening global system prevent and respond to high consequence biological threats results from the 2021 tabletop exercise conducted in partnership with the Munich Security Conference. So we need to find out, we need to do some general grammar on Jamie Yasev, Kevin O'Prey, and Christopher Isaac. So we're going to have to get Maddie or someone on yeah. figuring out who these individuals are. This is some crazy And I'll share, the, I'll share this link. And if you go to, uh, if you download the full report oops, on the site there and go to page 12 of the PDF, there's a timeline of a May, oh, 5th, that's interesting. May 15th, 2022 attack and yeah, sort of. In oh, the that's crazy. Right now. Well, how coincidental. I mean, I mean, it's this coincidence theory over and over again. Oh, yeah. Uh, sure, it's nothing. Yeah. What they call it, patternicity, fallacy, apophenia. Go back to that real quick, LD. If you can bring that the, up. Uh, PDF. Or uh, let me, uh, or send it, put it in the, yeah, there, there. So May 15th, well, that's about the time we heard about the monkeypox. And then June 5th, it looks like it ramps up to scenario move one. 
they call them moves like they're playing a game of chess or go or something like that or checkers well in this case it'd be chess or go much more complex games so move one scenario um are you kidding me it says monkeypox outbreak in i can't read brinia 1,420 cases that's one wait when was this conducted this was uh let's see the post is uh november 23rd of last year 2021 um but no sorry the march looks 20, like march 2021 holy is this we just let me bring this up because this is fucking crazy well yeah it's just nothing to see here just apophenia everyone holy shit exercise summary developed in consultation with technical and policy experts see the gobbledygook they pull up here the fictional exercise Scenario portrayed a deadly global pandemic involved in unusual strain of. Are we kidding me? I think I did see this earlier in the week and I sort of laughed because it's like Event 201 all over again, where it's, it was a coronavirus, right? With Event 201. And then what, three months later, we have a shutdown. Um, right. Not three months, it was like six months. Well, that, that took place in like October of 2019. Then we were locked down in the first or second week of March, five, six months, something like that. Point is, Brinia, fictional nation of Brinia. <laughs> Brinia, and the first case was documented in Great Britain, the UK. That's interesting. There is a lot of real, really strange synchronicity, synchronicities going. Yeah, I do remember reading this now because I remember the 270 million fatalities. The reason why I remember that number is because they also hyperbolized or exacerbated the number as part of the 201 event simulation of the coronavirus. They said it was going to be some 60 million dead, I think, 60 plus million dead. Now they're saying this is going to be 270 million fatalities worldwide with this monkeypox. Now, traditionally, monkeypox is like um, is like uh, Ebola in regards to you have to come into flesh on flesh contact. Um, but now they're saying there's water droplet transmission, or who knows, there's probably some gain of functional chimeric action in the background. Um, but report findings and recommendations. Let's look at the key findings here. Weak global detection assessment and warning of pandemic risks. The gaps in national level preparedness, gaps in biological research governance, and insufficient in financial, excuse me, insufficient financing of international preparedness for pandemics. This all is very ominous, or especially it's, it's within this sort of a casting of the silhouette of this whole pandemic treaty. Hmm. Weak global detections. It's all about detection and dissemination of information, which is the, especially the resolutions of the treaty. That's what they deal with is how it'll be coordinated and um, uh, coordinated and sort of uh, used as a central hub and sent out to all member nations, how the who would act to do all these sorts of things and how they're, you know, this whole thing will go about. Gaps in national level preparedness. Yeah. I mean, this is all about coordinating from a centralized group controlling the flow of information, how it's being disseminated. That's what I was looking for, disseminated. This is really, really crazy. The fact it's monkeypox. Yeah. Now you were asking about those three individuals there on the website. Oh, yeah. So I, I just jumped in their bios. Um, oh. Jamie Yassif. Uh, first thing that jumped out to me was Chatham House in her... Uh, Previous experience. Oh um, man, Chris Policy Isaac bias. from uh, he's the next one. He's uh, 
Biosecurity Fellowship at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Bioinformatics. That's, and the third that's one, part of genetic game. Kevin O'Prey. He didn't have a link on the website, but uh, here's a here is a what is it? Top Cadmus Human uh, Homeland Security Advisor. Yeah, Homeland Security. That's what jumped oh, out to me here. Senior officials exercise. This is interesting. Yeah, there's a lot to sort of extricate from these individuals' backgrounds, and it'll be that that requires some in-depth reporting. Good find, though. That's a good start. That's a general grammar. We have to find the who, what, the when, the where. In this case, the who. Who are these individuals? You know, what are their backgrounds? What are their ethos? Their sort of specialization and expertise, if you will. And uh, what sort of ideological biases might they have being a part of said organizations that already have a clear-cut goal and uh, mission statement, if you will, charter statement as to what they intend to do. Very disturbing, extremely disturbing, especially on the the heels of the past pandemic, uh, COVID-19. They essentially simulate the exact same thing that's now manifesting at the same time frame they have on what page 12 you highlighted. Just absolute insanity. Um, At the same time, they're trying to get a pandemic treaty, which is going to be, by the way, the topic of the intermission is going to be mostly dealing with the pandemic treaty. So let's let's now transition and see what what the hell is this whole thing. First of all, I'm not going to cover this because it's a little bit too long, but Tim Powell had an interesting um, uh, production. U.S. orders millions of smallpox vaccines. I'm sorry, let me put myself back on camera. I don't have my stream deck set up yet. Sorry, everyone. You know, moving sucks. Um, anyways, U.S. orders millions of smallpox vaccines and then global monkeypox outbreak. Experts say remain calm. So now all of a sudden there's a reason to have to utilize smallpox vaccines, which is supposedly the only thing that can fight against this. Um, mm, let's see. Okay, let's go to Peter McCullough. So that's the headline that Tim Pool sort of did a little dive into, but we're going to go to the Peter McCullough right below it. Exposes Bill Gates's plan for next lockdown. The truth of monkeypox. Start around two minutes, and we'll display the whole thing. And then uh, we'll come back off some commentary. We'll watch just a couple more small clips and sort of lead us into the intermission. All right, you got it. And Dr. Peter McCullough and John Leake. He's a best-selling true crime author that has reverse-engineered their operations, and you guys are knocking out of the park describing what really went on. You want to get more into the propaganda. We're also going to talk some about Bill Gates predicting uh, the smallpox, monkeypox, uh, and so much more. You know, I can tell you that we've never had so much news regarding uh, microbial threats to the human population, and one can only surmise that so much of this is contrived. There's a lot of hype, and as you said earlier, John, it's, it's a PR sales campaign. So when you see a PR sales campaign for like the new Mustang, you know the new Mustang's coming out or the new Tesla, and they're just telling you the new thing's coming. We're going to take all your rights. We're going to save you. Yeah, um, you know, they call it a, a funny friend of ours out in Utah um, said the other day, they call it uh, Operation Warp Speed. It's actually Operation Warp Spend. It's, it's Warp Spend. So... Uh, Public health crisis, 
un- mass fear. Everybody's terrified. Oh my goodness! You know, we'll do anything we can to you know any any kind of no, no matter how much it costs. Get out the the checkbook. Start printing. So it it triggers like the financial crisis in '08. It, it triggers a flood of money purportedly to deal with the emergency. So, so that what happens is it begins- How many trillions extra got issued by the major governments? Has anybody, if you quantify, I haven't done so, it. So, How many trillions got issued worldwide by different governments? So the CARES Act of, of March 26, 2020, created overnight 10% of the U.S. GDP. Just just like that. Just, just with a click of a- And we wonder why we have inflation. Right. And then so but just think of the bonanza, though, if, if you are positioned as these guys were because they'd you know, been working on this, the, the, the planning of this, publishing their, their prospectus. They're in control of the world medical response. Correct. So all of this money, you have then positioned your, your nets. You're like a fisherman who's ready for the school to swim right in your nets. So they got away with this. And we, you know, here we have the same, the same guys, the same, the usual suspects. They're at it again with monkeypox. Here we go. You know, the news just popped: uh, monkeypox, an orthopox virus that is in the same family as smallpox, causes a pustular type of. Uh, illness, a skin-based illness, very little respiratory component, and is from animals to humans. There's been, over the last half century, several hundred cases. Listen to this, Alex, 700 cases. Since there's a case in the United States, the announcement was 13 million doses of a pre-manufactured live attenuated vaccine for monkeypox. Boy, they sure guessed right on that. That's a hyperbolic response. Can you imagine the company that hasn't had any sales on their monkeypox vaccine getting an infusion of millions of dollars of cash? And it's interesting, in a paper in New England Journal of Medicine by Grossenbeck and colleagues, when they studied uh, an oral drug that we also have for monkeypox called Tezovirimac, also known as T-pox, when T-pox was studied, in the introduction to that paper, it was stated a single case of smallpox would be a worldwide crisis because of this charged fear that the pox viruses were going to be specifically used for bioterrorism. And then there's Gates hyping it. In fact, let's play the clip of Bill Gates uh, last year saying this is coming, there's going to be a bigger attack, something like the pox virus, and now it's happened. And so I'm hoping in five years I can write a book called, you know, we are ready for the next pandemic, but it'll take tens of billions in R&D that the U.S. and the U.K. will be part of that. It'll take probably about a billion a year for a pandemic task force at the WHO level, which is doing the surveillance and actually doing what I call germ games, where you practice, you say, okay, what if... Uh, a bioterrorist brought smallpox to 10 airports, you know, how would the world respond to that? Uh, you know, that there's naturally caused epidemics and bioterrorism caused epidemics that could even be way worse than what we experience today. And yet the advances in medical science should give us tools that, you know, we, we could do dramatically better. So you'd think this would be a priority. It, it, the next year will be where those allocations have to get made, including this global um, 
pandemic task force. So he tells us the next big thing in November of last year, and now, like clockwork, it's here, and they've got the vaccine ready. Wow, that doesn't look suspicious. Fortunately, there's an oral medication. We have a stockpile of 2 million doses. Uh, almost all these cases come out of the Congo Basin. Uh, and, and there was an outbreak in 2003 in the United States, 70 cases where there was some mixing of some different animals in pet stores actually from that part of Africa and spread, did spread to humans. But it's self-limited, Alex. It's easily treated with these drugs. It's mainly a cutaneous skin lesion. The only mortality that occurs is in regions where there is no general uh, medical care support when patients do get more ill, get dehydrated, etc. But, you know, people should really examine this very closely, though. I mean, uh, th suddenly he's talking about this, this, this monkeypox. I mean, I remember looking in a tropical disease book years ago. I used to hang out in Africa, and those same pictures of those children that were infected with it, those are 30 years old. And then, you know, suddenly he's talking about the next bonanza that's headed our way and then just what prescience what and then so i don't know if you guys remember it was 2003 there was there were guinea pigs that were housed with ghana pouch rats i mean what kind of bizarre pets that people have the guinea pigs got it from the the ghana pouch rats that were brought in from africa and then it spread to about 70 people in the united states there was no hysteria and talk of we need to buy 32 million doses of vaccines. We have now been conditioned to be hyper vigilant and hyper alert to this to this kind of thing. We're being turned into hysterical nennies. Uh, exactly. What's the word? Uh, hypochondriacs. It's true. I have to tell you. Yeah. You know. You have such a lead time on this illness. There should be absolutely no panic. It's almost analogous to chickenpox and someone having lots of uh, pustular vesicular lesions. It's readily identified. We can manage this. Uh, the treatment is actually very well tolerated. T-pox drug taken twice a day is perfectly fine. We don't need 13 million doses of a vaccine and have people start. Clearly, to it's more hysteria. Vaccines. What about, uh, Doctor, the, the, the studies and links that we've seen? Uh, and I was talking to Dr. Fleming last week, and he was saying that that the type of virus that they use in the virus vector J&J &J and others is linked to, and I've got some of the studies, but I'm not a scientist like you, doctor, that that's causing these weird, acute types of uh, hepatitis in children's livers. It's related but not causative, and I look at it this way. Uh, in a recent paper in Lancet Hepatology, uh, from uh, the UK and actually from Cedar sinai in LA, the authors described that virtually all of these cases of hepatitis, the children are exposed in some way to SARS-CoV-2. Either they've had the infection, people in their family have had the infection or have taken a vaccine or the children have taken the vaccine. That's actually setting up the childhood liver with uh, Wuhan spike protein. And then there's a superimposed exposure from adenovirus 41, which is typically uh, very mild. Now, adenoviral vectors are used in Johnson Johnson and J&J, &J, but it's probably not related to these cases. What we need to do in each and every case is we need to understand what is the SARS-CoV-2 exposure to the children in order to find a path forward. Some of these cases have resulted in transplants. Some have been fatal. Mm. Um, the other thing that before we get too far away from it that, I, you know, I wanted to talk about was um, there are um, clear precedents for what we're seeing. You know, in 2001, about three weeks before Dr. McCullough was interviewed by Tucker Carlson, um, there was a huge book that was published um, here in the United States called Empire of Pain. It was a 
it was a publishing sensation. It's about the Sackler family of New York that started uh, Purdue Pharma. And it, Oxycontin. Oxycontin. And um, it, it's a marvelous book. I mean, hats off to the writer. Um, he describes how this very clever family from... Hold on, John Lee. Let's talk about the parallels with yeah, this yeah. when we come back. Okay. We've got two more segments with our amazing guests. Then the amazing Mike Adams is going to be taking over in the fourth hour. Owen Schroyer, The War Room, 3 p.m. Central only on the InfoWars Radio TV Network. Over 350 radio affiliates, over 200 TV affiliates. They're not shutting us down. Ladies and gentlemen, Ultra 12, the highest quality B12 you're going to find on the market, has been sold out for many months, but now it's back in stock, sent off oh, yeah, for a limited right. time. Get your bo- Co-author, John Leake, of the powerful new book, The COVID, The Courage to Face COVID-19. You, you were getting into a parallel of this has happened before. Yeah, so in the midst of all of this madness um, in 2021, this this big book is, is published um, called Empire of Pain about the Sackler family of New York, which acquired um, a, a small pharmaceutical company back in the 50s. Arthur Sackler was the sort of founder of, of the family, and he started off in the advertising business doing ads for Pfizer. Um, he, he had a real knack for medical propaganda, for biopharmaceutical uh, propaganda, I mean, pretty much all of the bag of tricks of, of marketing drugs now um, was invented, pioneered by Arthur Sackler. He then realized, you know, I shouldn't be advertising this stuff. I ought to get in on the action myself. So he, he purchased this company, Purdue, and then they discovered this molecule that had actually been invented back in Germany in the 20s, was deemed to have a high addiction risk by the lab that invented it. They said, this isn't going to work. So Sackler and it was actually his brothers, they said, well, you know, this is great. Let's market this and let's downplay the addiction risk. Let's obscure the potential harm of this. And it's a fascinating book because you, you see how through academics, through, through FDA uh, approval guys who are captured, how they're able to in- introduce this dangerous molecule, which then became an enormous scourge of American society. And it was actually marketed through nursing. I remember as a young doctor, uh, where nurses started these initiatives as pain as the fifth vital sign and actually trying to grade pain on each and every patient, even in non-painful conditions. And we were, we were somewhat pushed and, and, and forced to, to prescribe narcotics, actually, to patients post-procedure. This really took off. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had five or six surgeries, and every time they're like, do you want painkillers or you're in pain? I'm like, no, I don't want them. Right. I was in a minor surfing accident, which I got cut by the surf surfboard fin, it was very easy lacer- laceration to treat. They stuck some staples in it. And as I was walking out of the, uh, the ER, this nurse says, you want anything for the pain? And I said, well, you know, what do you have in mind? They're drug dealers. I, I mean, for all she knew, I was an addict that was, you know, intentionally cut myself in order. So, I mean, but the point is this, an extremely harmful molecule that is then spread on a mass scale throughout our entire society, creating you know, a true public health emergency. I mean, b- by the declaration of the CDC in 2017, a public, and you think, well, how did this, over all of these years, how was it obscured? How come the mainstream media wasn't reporting on this? It was sort of a silent scourge. And that's because they are owned by Big Pharma and they're just going along. 
Correct. Um, I, I guess you're familiar with Dr. Peter Bragan. I mean, he, he told me something that I just thought was so illuminating. Um, he said, you know, I used to get invited to go uh, on to, you know, the Oprah Winfrey show, all of, all of these shows to, to, to talk about my work. This is Peter Bragan. He's a psychiatrist who's delved deeply into the abusive practices of the pharma, pharmaceutical industry and the psychiatric industry. And he said, I used to get invited all the time to talk about my alternative viewpoint on the practice of medicine. And I believe it was the year 1997, the FDA loosened the regulatory language with direct marketing on television for pharmaceutical products. And he said, I never got an invitation to appear on television ever again. That's right. Everybody's got stories, but uh, of a wife or family that has a baby, never had problems. They go, oh, you want some psychotropics in this? And then they've got big problems after. And it's just, it's, it's, it's incredible what's going on. It's true. And unfortunately, with the COVID-19 vaccines, so many Americans have been injured and sadly they've seen loved ones die that there's been trust lost in the entire vaccine program. And there are very safe and effective vaccines that doctors in my circles, we've relied on these for our entire career, but the public is now losing trust. We'll do five more minutes the next hour, but some stations don't carry that and Mike Adams takes over. So in the six minutes we have left, uh, the, the amazing book, The Courage to Face COVID-19, uh, John Leake and Dr. Peter A. McCullough. Closing comments, both of you, like, like three minutes apiece. I would say that as we look to the future, uh, we are going to have more cases of, of COVID-19. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Cases are on the rise. Uh, for those of you who have already had the infection, your natural protection you have now, you're protected against severe outcomes. Can you have another case that uh, is like a mild, like a common cold? Uh, that's certainly uh, true. Those of you who've taken the vaccine, one shot, two shots, or even more, you are still susceptible to COVID-19. And in fact, you could have potentially more severe outcomes. Uh, my practice experience is that both high-risk patients, uh, older, those with diabetes, obesity, heart and lung disease, uh, those who are presenting with severe symptoms, early treatment is needed, starting with virucidal nasal washes with hydrogen peroxide or uh, povidone iodine. There's commercial products that work well there as well. Uh, use of nutraceuticals and supplements uh, that are used in a combination. We have monoclonal antibodies. I had two patients yesterday get monoclonal antibodies. Uh, uh, Bort from uh, Lilly works perfectly fine at 2cc injection. Then we move into the oral drugs, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. We have Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, uh, oral corticosteroids, aspirin, and then anticoagulants. Sequence multi-drug therapy at home prevents hospitalization and death with COVID. Don't get burned. Don't be a hospital statistic, or even worse, we can get through this together. So people should study this, look it up for themselves, and create a diary of the facts. And if they can, legally stockpile some of the therapeutics ahead of time. And as soon as you have symptoms, take care of yourself then uh, instead of waiting later. And make sure your doctor is ready to treat you. And if your doctor is not, make sure you get a referral. That's the key. Find the doctor's. They're, even, they're having to pass state laws that doctors are allowed to prescribe ivermectin and things that are totally known to be safe. That's right. Now, New Hampshire and Tennessee are nearly over the finish line for over-the-counter ivermectin, but there's been such a broad support now for early treatment. Let's push hard. If the patients push hard and push their doctors, we'll get back to some degree of normalcy. 
Well, I haven't read the book yet. I'm going to read it this weekend. I read the synopsis, and it, it just tells you real-world stories, how they did it, how they're suppressing it, and then you better get ready. So um, in these pandemic preparation simulations, there was one that was done at Johns Hopkins in uh, October of 2019. If you go deep into this incredibly boring video, um, one of the things that they talk about is, okay, it, it's coming. How are we going to control information? And um, they actually talk about tried and true methods of propaganda. One of them that they discuss and endorse um, is called flooding. So, um, you know, this is what we want the populace to believe, and we're going to flood all of the channels with the same messaging rapidly broadcast over all, you know, all media. That's a military tactic, flood it's, the zone. Flood the zone. So you see, for example, with ivermectin, the, the guys who discovered it and developed it, they won the Nobel Prize in 2015. It is a WHO essential medication. It has solved one of the largest scourges that has ever affected the It's not just horse pace. It's, and they, across the zone, they flooded the, the zone, all of the late night comedy guys, on the same night, horse paste, horse goo. And, and you think, do we live in a country with a First Amendment and with a free exchange of ideas, or is do, are, are we living in a in a in a propaganda? Um, and I think it's clear the, the the public needs to be aware that they are being propagandized. And I'll and I'll conclude with this, if I may. The public should familiarize themselves with um, President Eisenhower's 1961 farewell address in which he talked about the danger of the military-industrial complex. These things get so big with so much money and so many interests that are gaining from sustaining this threat level. And he was a military man himself. He was the Supreme Allied Commander. He'd been in command of it. Right. So when he says, you know, these things, these complexes can become so powerful and have such vast entrenched interests that they can become disconnected from the interest of the citizenry. I think we need to think of Eisenhower's warning, but apply it to the analog of, of this biopharmaceutical complex. We actually took that concept from Eisenhower's concept of the military industrial because and the biopharmaceutical complex is very wired in with the Department of Defense a, a, a lot of these um, emergency countermeasure activities and financing is part of the Department of Defense well, John Lake, I'm really impressed with your work. I've actually read some of your books years ago at the Click One once you were here. Congratulations on the courage to face COVID-19. And he also went on before he said military industrial complex. He said a technological scientific elite that's in control of it. And that full speech, 21 minutes long, is so powerful. We'll do five more minutes on the other side. And then Mike Adams takes over. Infowars.com. Tomorrow's news today. It's all you, the great listeners, and your support and word of mouth and prayer that keeps us on. You can pull it, yeah. Very interesting. Uh, I just want to point out, yes, he did mention what 1961 farewell speech uh, in regards to them talking about Eisenhower here, Supreme Allied Commander, and then turned U.S. President, looking dubious there, that, uh, you know, to be aware of the military-industrial com complex. Now, obviously, we see that uh, the full manifestation of that worry and concern with what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia situation, obviously, was manifesting itself in the uh, Korean War, in Vietnam, in uh, uh, the various situations in the Middle East, 
during the ninth, late 60s and 70s, obviously leading into um, the proxy wars, particularly in uh, Afghanistan against uh, uh, utilizing the Mujahideen against the, the Soviet Union and just a whole number of other situations. But and it really had to do with selling arms. That's why I told people, like, you know, check out Lord of War. As a film, it's an interesting perspective. It's had to do with selling arms, setting up proxy groups, limited warfare, which I'd commented on many times. It's a concept that comes from Heinz Kissinger, Henry Kissinger. Uh, the idea that we still, in the age of nuclear technology, we can't use nukes because we don't want to end the world, but we still need to have war. Why do we need to have war? Uh, well, you know, we still need to sell our products, just like they have all these this back stock of these smallpox-specific monkeypox vaccines. What the hell is that, you know? What type of market was there for that type of nonsense? I mean, according to the Senate document I read earlier, is horsepox to be worried about? Monkeypox, horsepox. Who knows what they're going to make up next? Okay, so I do want to point out though, Eisenhower is a very dubious figure in history. Um, there's this wonderful, well, wonderful. It's a very good book, very important book called "Psychological Warfare Against Nazi Germany: The Psych War Campaign, D-Day to V-E Day." This is by Daniel Lerner. Suggest if you can get a first edition to get a first edition copy. I know Rich has a first edition. I don't think I have a first. I think it got the reprint. What you're seeing here, obviously, might be out of print because that's a pretty hefty price tag associated with it. Luckily, with the new move, my library is now part of my office because I'm a much bigger office space, but I'm not unpacked. So I'm looking at my shelves right now, and I don't see that that particular book has been unpacked, or I just can't see it because there's so many damn books that I have, just like Rich. Um, but at some point, we need to showcase some of the um, the tactics and strategies that were employed during World War II. Eisenhower is the head of like, the Psy War Department in World War II. And so C.D. Jackson was one of his, Charles Douglas Jackson, one that bought the Sapruder film, one of the Time Life magazine, pop, uh, Operation Sort of Mockingbird. You know, these individuals after the post-war went into various areas and, you know, had major influence. So, you know, you have to... Understand though, like Eisenhower's address to the nation and, and, and pointing out this new concept, the military industrial complex is correct in term, giving a term to it for this concept. We need to be a little bit, we need to take a back seat. We need to sort of uh, be a little bit skeptical of what his intentions were in regards to revealing that type of information. Not that it's wrong. It's not wrong. The evidence speaks for itself. But, you know, of course, maybe this points out that we should be aware of the fact that he would be aware of this, considering that he was the head of, he wasn't the Supreme Allied Commander, he's also the head of psychological warfare. And he did some very dubious things that most people do not know about in his history that I actually literally can't go into, uh, unfortunately, here. Um, just because of the sensitivity of it. And I need to pull out the book and find some quotes. But I want people to be aware. Richard and I have commented on that a number of times. And so, of course, he would know about the influence they would have, but... Uh, you know, he comes with his own own baggage, skeletons in the closet, cliche. So with that, um, it's probably what, 140. So kind of let's see if we can fit in another clip before we get to intermission here. Number of situations. I just want to give people a quick rundown. There's a decent Russell Brand clip talking about J and J's quality control issues that were ignored by the FDA. I think people are pretty aware that there were major quality control issues in regards to all the vaccines, but this came out particularly was exposed with the J&J uh, one, which is the adenovirus vector vaccine that McCullough just alluded to, microchips and pills. Uh, Luke sort of already referred to that. Jimmy Dore's longer clip sort of 
uh, uh, satirizing that a bit and providing some sardonic and cynical humor around it. Uh, let's see here. It's all coming out. I already talked about that. It's U.S. orders million smallpox vaccines. I mentioned that. Brett and Heather did a fantastic uh, breakdown of the importance of vitamin D, getting outside, um, the sort of suppression of vitamin D, high dose vitamin D research in regards to being an effective therapeutic, not just, by the way, for COVID, but for a multitude of diseases. Um, Very important. And he also had an interview that he did, the importance of understanding and assessing scientific papers and the issues with uh, understanding the lethality of vaccines and lethality of COVID and, re- and juxtaposition to receiving the vaccine it was very interesting, a little nuanced though, so we'll skip those. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting was he had a really good uh, interview that he did, and this being Brett Weinstein uh, with Alexandros Mar- Marinos, I believe is his name. And talking about the TOGETHER trial. Now, this is the trial that's been used to debunk ivermectin, and they get into some of the serious flaws that are have been a part of that trial. Did sort of a deep, Alexandros did a deep dive into that and understanding how poorly constructed that whole trial was. People could check that out. It's on the show card of your subscriber. Very good interview. Um, They just won't stop. Let's play that one. Let's play that. And Dell Big Trees, New Science Shows Mask Harms. Uh, Jeffrey Jackson report always fantastic, but I think we'll we'll let's see we might be able to um, now obviously one more clip here or one more headline I want to read Kim Iverson some experts warn let me get this on some experts warn over vaccine could weaken the immune system but another clip that alluded to that I believe that was Luke Radowski as well um, your European medical agency sort of like the equivalent to the FDA in Europe but they've already come out and stated this so no surprise there for those who are aware of it and so let's play those two ld and playing back to back i'll come back and we have time we'll go to tony fauci got america's gaslighting expert let's go to those two first we'll start with paul joseph watson all right yeah more evidence emerging of the tremendous damage that lockdowns and other restrictions have had on the cognitive development of infants. This time it's the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists sounding the alarm bell. The Telegraph reports, experts said that repeated lockdowns had left young children without the chance to play and learn how to communicate, setting back their development. Assessments show that one in five children are not meeting expected standards by age two and a half, with thousands likely to need help such as speech and language therapy. A recent report by Ofsted came to a similar conclusion. Investigators found that infants who were surrounded by adults wearing face masks for much of the past two years has damaged their learning and communication abilities. Those turning two, quote, will have been surrounded by adults wearing masks for their whole lives and have therefore been unable to see lip movements or mouth shapes as regular. The restrictions also left toddlers struggling with crawling using the toilet independently and making friends. Therapists are unable to keep up with the demand. They're being flooded, with one speech therapist reporting a 364% increase in patient referrals of babies and toddlers. Jacqueline Teague says during this pandemic, her speech therapy clinic has seen an enormous shift in the ages of their patients. Before the pandemic, only 5% of patients were babies and toddlers. Today, it has soared to 20%. Many parents calling it COVID delayed. We've seen a 364% increase in patient referrals of babies and toddlers from pediatricians and parents. And they are children that are having a difficult time speaking. Speech delayed. 
Babies start learning how to speak by reading lips as young as eight months. So what happens when lips and faces are covered up by masks? We're seeing a lot of things that look just like autism. They're not making any word attempts and not communicating at all with their family. Another study out of Germany found that the reading ability of children has plummeted compared to pre-corona times thanks to lockdown policies that led to the closure of schools. And even here in England where there haven't been any face mask restrictions in place for months I still see masked parents walking around everywhere with toddlers and babies. You'd think these parents would have at least questioned what impact constantly covering their face has had on their own children but apparently not and they just won't stop. Before we go to the next one, I just want to come back real quick, LD. Um, this is more uh, debilitating than people realize. The brain goes through various um, stages of what's called synaptogenesis, genesis meaning beginning or creation, and synapses or sort of the electrical wiring of the brain, if you will. And you go through especially a, a number, I think it's like a good three stages, but there's these minor stages. When you're a child, minor and major stages, but three major ones. And when you need to make certain synaptic sort of connections and form those sort of receptor sites at certain ages, or they'll never form at all. It's the same issue that Peterson talks about in regards to socializing children. You can tell one that will have antisocial, maybe manifesting itself as sociopathic behavior. If they don't have socialization at a certain time in their life and don't get it, they're never going to get it later on. It's very key important for children to be able to play, interact, socialize with their family primarily and to create a situation whereby which they took away that ability for children. I mean, essentially it is um, creating a situation where they have anesthetized and sort of, it's not just dumbing down, but it's like cutting off the cognitive faculty. It's amputating essentially the cognitive capacity of a child and then wondering why later on, especially with the next future generations, why they are suffering from maybe major antisocial behavior, uh, lowered IQ, lower uh, life expectancy and life outcome, all these situations that can be disastrous relationship pers perspectives. I uh, do you think identity crisis is bad now. Just wait until the future generations. Um, and certainly this, to, to, to Paul Joseph Watson's point, to not, her parents not to question this at all. And for the parents that put the masks on the children that never were susceptible to this disease in the first place, and it's just, it's a level of criminality that is almost, it's just unconscionable to consider or put into perspective. And I just wanted to come back and just make a point that unfortunately, like it, this may manifest much, uh, much worse than we realize. I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. Hopefully there's, they're still young. And if the masks come off and they're young enough, there'll still be enough situation. There are enough attempts for the brain to form and even though it's delayed they'll still be able to catch up so long as they do it while they're a child if they wait too long if this continues to perpetuate and, and um, extend itself into the future there's a point at which there's that we can call it the point of no return where it's just like you're now cut off for good it's just a biological aspect of the development of a human species and the human individual and uh you know we know about these situations we know about these brain development issues and um you know i hope that as long as we keep the masks off that there's still time to even if it's delayed to get children to you know be able to get caught up with the the speech skills but at the same time if we continue to delay it it's only going to perpetuate the the obvious incidence of having severely lowered iq learning function the ability to communicate effectively 
all these situations, reading comprehension, so forth and so on. It's, it's just really disastrous. And there's a biological component where we need to do this at a certain age or else it just doesn't, it doesn't click. It doesn't stick with uh, uh, individuals as they reach adolescence into adulthood. So now let's get into the effect of masks uh, or what we're, we're already pretty aware of this, but let's see some of the fallout of this uh, in regards to um, so it's not the Jackson report. It would be, let me see if I can find new show, new science shows mass harm. So the one just above that. And so we'll watch, uh, this is Del Bigtree's opening monologue and uh, he'll get a little bit into uh, sort of I told you so in regards to what he'd been saying about masks and the harm that they cause. Yeah, you got that there. All right. Yeah, here we go. Many years ago, I spent my time in New York. I did some acting. I did some traveling and musical theater, all of that, you know. And, and I remember watching the Academy Awards longingly, dreaming maybe someday that would be me and Tony Awards and all those things. And through the years, every once in a while, one of those actors would step up on the stage and do some diatribe about some political issue. And I remember all the pundits going crazy. Who are these actors? Who do they think they are dictating upon us their knowledge as though they have any knowledge beyond, you know, how how to hit a B flat without a piano or to, you know, do a two step across the stage. Um, and, and, you know, it was always offensive when I was an actor, but now when I look back, there are these moments and it can be a little bit disgusting when an actor comes to some sort of self-aggrandized moment to pontificate upon us uh, their own opinions about a subject. Well, I don't think anything has exemplified how disgusting that can be more than a video that is going viral this week. This is out of uh, New York City, I believe. This is a Broadway show and Patti Lapone, one of the great singers of our times, uh, decided that she had something to say to an audience member who apparently was letting their mask slide below their nose. Take a look at this. I mean, the irony of the fact that she's sitting with like co-stars all around here, none of them are wearing masks, but apparently if you're sitting next to each other and you're not an actor, who do you think you are? In fact, I was thinking, you know, if you were writing this into a script, which Patti Lapone is used to reading, I think that screenplay would read something like this. Ms. Lapone screams at the audience member, pull your mask over your nose. Who do you think you are? If you don't care about the people sitting next to you, then get the f out. Cut to the two co-stars sitting directly next to Mrs. Lapone, wiping her saliva from their faces, the result of her frothing, spit-spewing tirade. At least that's how I would write it if I was writing the screenplay. Uh, Ms. Lapone, you're totally out of line. You're totally hypocritical. And what do you call these two things sitting right next to you on both sides? Are those not people too? Are you not disrespecting them? I mean, wake up 
and look around you. This is the type of insanity we're all dealing with, this type of madness. And maybe it's not Patti LuPone's fault, you know. She's a part of that brainwashing, you know, insanity. She's watching CNN every single day. It's really getting her overly excited. Uh, and so she's lashing out. And maybe she feels like she's lost too much salary already from the COVID pandemic. And now that they finally open up and allowing people to wear their masks, she gets to get paid, which is what one of the audience members points out. We're paying your salary. And she didn't seem to like that response very much. But you know, this masking issue has really been one of the big juggernauts since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. In fact, I found myself in the middle of this. I've questioned the use of vaccines. We have had professionals on here many, many times before. But, you know, one video we did in particular, and this made me think about it because it's sort of come up again in, in several, for several different reasons. But I brought my son ever on over a year ago. I think it's probably almost a year and a half ago onto the show to test masks. We had gotten a CO2 monitor and we decided, let's just see what the CO2 levels are in his mask. Just for those of you that haven't been following us for that long, this is just a little experiment. The types of things we do here on the high wire, this is what that looked like. This is my son, Ever. Ever is 11 years old and here in Texas, uh, the mandate right now is that 10 and over have got to wear a mask. Ever has to wear a mask wherever we go. And so we bought this thing this week. This is, uh, this measures the amount of CO2 that's in the air. Can we just look at the ocean numbers? Uh, carbon dioxide levels and potential health problems are indicated below. From 250 to 350 is the background normal outdoor level. 350 to 1000 ppm typical level found in occupied spaces with good air exchange. 1000 to 2000 level associated with complaints of drowsiness and poor air. Obviously I don't want ever to have drowsiness or poor air. 2000 to 5000 level associated with headaches, sleepiness and stagnant, stale, stuffy air, poor concentration, loss of attention, increased heart rate and slight nausea may also be present. And then 5000 ppm or more. This indicates unusual air conditions where high levels of the other gases also could be present. Toxicity or oxygen deprivation could occur, meaning do not hit 5000. All right, here we go. Right now we're at 848. So I'm going to go ahead and just insert this right like as he did, right underneath and try and keep it. That feels pretty tight right there, right? Okay, so you can you know, just breathe naturally. Let's just see what happens. Okay. All right, so we're at 1,367. We've already just passed two. So now we're in the place where he could be having headaches. He can be, oh, we're at 3,786. Look at this, we've just passed 5,000. Now we're in the toxic level, right? Now we can be doing this 7,000 inside this mask with the CO2, 8,000 parts per uh, uh, million. And now he's, this thing's gone off the Richter scale, folks. It can't even register how high the CO2 levels are inside. <laughs> and look how many seconds that was. All right. Can I just? Yeah, you want to take that off? No! <laughs> I'll, I'll be totally honest with you, and, and I suppose there's people that would say, how could you subject? I did, actually, people did write it and say, how could you subject your son to that if you knew that it was dangerous? So the, I mean, these are the types of things, but we did test every type of mask. The bandana did it. There was the surgical mask, uh, got up there pretty high also, and then even the face shield collected some CO2 under the shield. Well, I think this is, this is one of the most viral videos we ever had, and it was one of the most censored videos we ever had. Virtually on almost 
almost every platform it played on, it would eventually be taken down. Millions of people saw it. And because of that, we were attacked with many, many fact checkers writing articles about it. This is AFP fact check. Flawed experiments exaggerate risk from CO2 concentration in masks. Another one by Media Matters. YouTube videos falsely claiming that masks are harmful have gotten hundreds of thousands of views. Uh, and even look, our own Steve Kirsch. This is a guy that has been a great supporter of this movement and the work. Just a few weeks ago, he put this article out. Was the Dell Beatrice CO2 mask demo misleading? And he goes into some uh, very specific argument that ultimately agrees that masks are dangerous, but somehow the CO2 machine we used and we didn't use it properly and things like that. Now, you know, I'll be honest with you. We were just playing around. We did use the monitor. We just want to see was the CO2 there. We were shocked that it went way above the ocean numbers that were recommended. But for all of those out there that have been attacking us again, fact-checking the high wire in this experiment uh, that we did, I just want to say, you know, the science always comes around. The truth does prevail. And, you know, there is a study that is now coming out. There's a brand new preprint. I believe it's coming out of Italy. Take a look at this. Inhaled CO2 concentration while wearing face masks. A pilot study using capnography. I'm assuming a technology far more sophisticated than we had with our little experiment here um, at the, the high wire. But let's read what they discovered. None of the available evaluations of the inhaled air carbon dioxide concentration while wearing face masks used professional real-time capnography with water removal tubing. Yeah, we definitely didn't do that. We measured the end tidal CO2 using professional side stream capnography with water removing tubing at rest without masks, wearing a surgical mask and wearing an FFP2 respirator. That's, that's our um, N95 mask, essentially. In 102 healthy volunteers aged 10 to 90 years from the general population of Ferrara province, Italy. What did they discover? Well, the mean CO2 concentration was 4,965 uh, on average, I guess. And that was plus or minus. It could be off by about 1,000 parts per million. So above and below, depending on who was getting it, with surgical masks. So that was the blue surgical mask. They were up there around 5,000, which is about the number we were seeing with our little experiment. And look at this. When I told you it went off the Richter scale, that was 10,000 on our little monitor with an N95 mask. Their N95 mask came in at 9,396. Some of them went plus 2,254 parts per million. So they went up to 11, 12, 13 parts per million or below uh, with the N95 mask. The proportion of the sample showing a CO2 concentration higher than the 5,000 ppm acceptable exposure threshold recommended for workers was 40.2% while wearing surgical masks. And 99% of those wearing the N95 mask were above that healthy standard, moving into places where it would be uh, bad for your health. Um, and so adjusting for age, gender, BMI, and smoking, the inhaled air, CO2 concentration significantly increased with increasing respiratory rate. We know kids breathe fast. They have a faster respiratory rate, and thus it says, and was higher among the minors, who showed a mean CO2 concentration of 12,847 parts per million while wearing the N95 respirators. So... For all of you haters out there, and yeah, Steve, we've had a great little back and forth on this, which I love. Look, I love the debate. I love the, you know, the conversation. But in case, you know, you want to know if I would be exonerated, well, or even that I cared if I was exonerated, do I care? I didn't care.
The truth is, is we knew what we did. We knew what we had said. We we're simply showing you CO2 is collecting. That can't be good. And we're not talking about one hour. We're not talking about two hour. Your kids have been wearing this eight hours a freaking day, every single day of their life. There is no way that that is increasing their health. That is a problem. That was all we were trying to show. But now we have official science with even better machines proving exactly what you would have found had you been watching the high wire a year and a half ago. That's the kind of thing we do here. We do it all. We'll do studies. We'll bring in graphs. We talk to international scientists and all that's made possible by you. So let me take this opportunity during one of my, you know, more proud I told you so's because it involves me and my son ever, which is a great father son moment during this moment. And this I told you so brought to you by the high wire. I'd like to recommend that you be a part of good science and good news reporting that goes out of its way to show different ways and different um, things that we use to get to the truth. You're making that possible by being a recurring donor. We really need your help, man. We're Thank up boy. against it. We got the WHO coming up. I do uh, obviously support if you have financial means to uh, become a supporter of not only our show, um, but all the independent media that we frequent on the show, including uh, the High Wire and Del Big Tree Show. And, uh, and obviously the Jeffrey Jackson Report is a part of that, which he's an incredible investigative journalist in regards to what's going on with vaccines and uh, the pharmaceutical industry and the regulatory industries and you know all that good stuff. So you have the means, certainly support them and support all the various independent media, as well as Christy Lee, ourselves, you know, Paul Joseph Watson, all these individuals that we, Jason Burmis, Luke Radowski, I mean, there's just so many. Um, if you have the financial means, certainly they can all use your help. Um, and uh, yeah, so I just wanted to get that out there. Just thought it was interesting uh, on the heels of the video we just showed in regards to Paul Joseph Watson and some of the, the outcomes that were starting, that are becoming um, available to us uh, in regards to what the effects of lockdowns, especially on children, especially masking and then seeing you know, the CO2 levels and how that also impacts, you know, the brain. It's not just speech and verbal development. It's also uh, oxygen gas exchange. It's also been issues with dental uh, issues in regards to without proper gas exchange and through the mouth, uh, different, it cultivates different bacterial dispositions in the mouth that has created a worsening dental situation. So it's just Masks obviously don't make sense. There's no science that shows that they are effective in regards to respiratory viruses that are you know, like very, very small. We're talking about microns or even smaller. And it's, uh, the, the, it seems to do more harm than good. And obviously there's a number, including the CDC, starting to recognize, as I mentioned before, there's that affiliated John Hopkins study that's a little dubious, but there's others, uh, information coming out in regards to showing some of the effects that lockdowns are having have had, excuse me, in regards to the deleterious effects on uh, mental health, on financial security of individuals, the, the product, uh, supply chain and production, all those sorts of situations. And it's going to be many orders of magnitude worse than anything that manifested from COVID at this point, um, based on the preliminary evidence that's become available to us, especially for the younger generations. And unfortunately, at this point, um, you know, it is what it is. We're going to have to find a way to deal with the fallout and uh, ways to move forward from it and, uh, and, you know, heal from this, this, uh, terrible sort of tyrannical oversight 
that was foisted upon us and the other 208 uh, governments around the world that adopted this sort of policy uh, sponsored by the World Health Organization and um, the various health departments of various countries that took the lead from the, those individuals. So, um, uh, Tedros, Gabrius, um, and so forth and so on. So um, with that, let's see here, vaccine. I think the rest, there's so much to get to, but a lot of it's more nuanced material. And I think it's time to get to the intermission. And yeah, we're a little over two o'clock. And so the intermission is going to focus on the pandemic treaty. And so what I want to do here, LD, is let's play the hmm, let's play the first. So we're going to play the first two clips. Let's play all four. Let's see here. So the first four clips, we'll play those in order. So we have Tucker Carlson sort of giving us a panoramic overview of the pandemic treaty, um, the fact that he was not even made aware of it and his thoughts on that, which I thought was interesting from a sort of pseudo mainstream personality. Then we'll get into some of individuals that are going to get to more nuance with this whole situation. Greg Reese. Um, and we have, let's see here, the high wire, Adele big tree did an interview, um, that lasts about 30 minutes. Then Chris Seeley did an interview with Dr. Malone and professor Desmond, Matias Desmond, Warning about the counter mass formation danger. Um, and yeah, let's do that. Then we're going to come back and we're going to Jason Burnt. We'll come back. For, I'll come back for some commentary and then we'll finish out the episode with some clips from Jason Burmis, giving us some uh, oversight and some um, analysis in regards to some of the opening statements, if you will, opening clips of this new uh, World Health Organization um, assembly that's being conducted right now. So we'll get into a little bit of that. And uh, then I think of what economic form as well. So first let's, so LD, what I'll do is uh, you can play the first two straight up, play all three straight up. I'll tell you when to go to the next clip with the Dr. Malone and Matthias Desmond, or I'll try to find a timestamp that's relevant. So. All right. Here we go. Let's see. This will go full screen. Um. and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, happy Thursday. We want to open this evening with a story you may not have heard, but that you should definitely know about. It begins early last year when Joe Biden, as one of his very first acts as president, brought the United States back into the World Health Organization. We saw this, we thought, why would Biden be so anxious to do something like that? At the time, we assumed it was just part of his larger de-orangification effort. Trump had pulled not the U.S. Working. out of the World Health Organization, so Biden had yeah, I won't go full it's, screen, but it's, it's, it's good. He might be, there might be a, uh, let's see, a YouTube video of it. Um, I don't know, I can't find it. Yeah, just go for it. Just uh, control right. plus it. Yeah. Had to do the opposite. Childish, but that seemed like a fair explanation. Still, it did seem a little weird because there aren't many international bodies that are more thoroughly discredited than the World Health Organization particularly after COVID. It's a laughing stock. There's one thing it's not good at, it's public health. Since the very first cases of the coronavirus were reported in Wuhan, the WHO slavishly ran interference for the Chinese government and did it in the most cartoonish and obvious way. 
First, WHO claimed there was no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission of the virus. Remember this? They cited Chinese officials who were obviously lying, and we now know they were lying. Then, when it became clear the virus probably came out of a Chinese government lab, WHO sabotaged the investigation into the origin of the virus by appointing a gain-of-function researcher to lead the investigative team. Pretty shocking if you think about it. And to this day, the WHO still has not acknowledged it did any of that, though it definitely did. Instead, they've continued to praise China's response to COVID as, quote, transparent, which is the one thing it's not. It's almost amusing. But again, it's weird if you think about it. Why would Joe Biden want to join a group that every informed person laughs at? Well, more than a year later, we think we know the answer. The Biden administration is very close to handing the World Health Organization power over every aspect, the intimate aspects of your life. So imagine the civil liberties abuses that you lived through during the COVID lockdowns, but permanent and administered from a foreign country. Here's what we're looking at tonight. This January, the Biden administration submitted a series of proposed amendments to something called the International Health Regulations, the IHR. Now, the Biden administration's amendments, along with those from several other countries, will be combined to create a new global pandemic treaty. We need a pandemic treaty. That treaty is set to be adopted starting this weekend in Geneva at the World Health Assembly. Now, the full text of the treaty is not yet finished, but a WHO working group has summarized what it's going to look like. The document begins by promising to restrict the WHO's authority just to pandemics. Calm down, it's just pandemics. Quote, WHO secretariat to play the leading, convening, and coordinating role in operational aspects of emergency response to a pandemic, end quote. So don't get paranoid. Someone needs to coordinate the pandemic response globally because it's a global problem. Got it? Settle down, conspiracy nut. But here's the catch. The World Health Organization gets to define what a pandemic is, when a pandemic is in progress, and how long a pandemic lasts. Then you read the fine print and you realize the WHO will have total authority over emergency operations in the United States if there is ever a, quote, public health emergency. Huh? What qualifies exactly as a public health emergency? Well, they don't define that. But they get to. They get to decide what a public health emergency is. And then they have total authority. You can see where this is going. Now, the Biden administration has made certain that unelected bureaucrats at the WHO have total authority to declare and define public health emergencies. They did it explicitly. The White House eliminated a provision that would have required the World Health Organization to, quote, consult with an attempt to obtain verification from the state party in whose territory the event is allegedly occurring in. So as originally written, they couldn't do anything without the permission of their member countries' governments. But thanks to the change that the Biden administration put, pushed, effectively, there is no limit at all on WHO's power. And then it gets worse from there. The treaty also mandates a, quote, whole of government and whole of society approach to pandemic preparedness. Hmm, think about that. Every society is always preparing for a pandemic. And that means there will not be a moment ever when the WHO doesn't have operational control over so-called public health matters in this country. Now, what's that going to mean exactly? You've already guessed it's not really about public health. It never is. But before we tell you what exactly it's going to mean, you should know that none of this is going to be optional. Thanks to an amendment from the Biden administration, the treaty contains a provision for a compliance committee. Ooh, there's always the stick. 
It provides that every member country in the WHO must, quote, inform WHO about the establishment of its national competent authority responsible for overall implementation of the IHR that will be recognized and held accountable. Under this treaty, WHO members must enforce orders from the WHO. They have to act as the heavies for the WHO. And if they don't, they'll be sanctioned. The White House is going to be the muscle for the director of the World Health Organization. So who is the director of the World Health Organization? Well, that would be a former member of Ethiopia's Marxist-Leninist party called Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. He once led the Ministry of Health in Ethiopia. He's not a physician. But as the head of the Ministry of Health in Ethiopia, for political reasons, he covered up three cholera outbreaks, the opposite of what he's supposed to do. He wrote off cholera as simply acute watery diarrhea. Again, he's not a doctor, so maybe he didn't know, but he did know. He did it for political reasons. Those outbreaks were taking place among disfavored groups. Then Tedros tried to appoint Robert Mugabe, the racist murderer who ran Zimbabwe into the ground as an international goodwill ambassador for public health. Now, at the time, Zimbabwe was the poorest, most mismanaged, most racist country in the world. And yet Tedros thought he should be a goodwill ambassador for public health. These are some of the reasons that Tedros, needles to say, is a close friend of Tony Fauci's. So uh, Tedros is really a, an outstanding person. I've known him from the time that he was the Minister of Health of Ethiopia. I mean, obviously, over the years, uh, anyone who says that the WHO has not had problems has not been watching the WHO. But I think under his leadership, they've done very well. Yeah, they've done very well. He's, a, he's an outstanding person, that friend of Robert Mugabe's. And because he's such an outstanding person, we are days away from giving him operational control over our government's public health system, the one that you pay for and thought you controlled in this democracy. So what will this operational control mean? Let's be specific. Right off the bat, the treaty demands, quote, national and global coordinated actions to address the misinformation, disinformation, and stigmatization that undermine public health. Oh, here we go, right to censorship. People are criticizing us, and for public health reasons, that can't be allowed. If you criticize us, people will die. So you saw yesterday that the Biden administration, in the face of universal laughter and derision, had to fire the head of its new ministry of truth. But they found another way to do it. Quote, WHO secretariat to build capacity to deploy proactive countermeasures against misinformation and social media attacks. Oh, are you following this? So they're going to get to censor anybody who doesn't agree with what they do as they control the intimate details of your life. And they will control those details. Under this treaty, the World Health Organization will get to establish vaccine passports and regulate travel. World Health Organization will, quote, develop standards for producing a digital version of the International Certificate of Vaccination and Prophylaxis. Okay. So you may be thinking, well, it's just about COVID, and I went along with mandatory vaccines and vaccine passports at the time. How bad could it be? <laughs> First of all, if you went along with that, you should be repenting right about now. But it's not just about COVID, because WHO will be in charge of, quote, the digitalization of all health forms. 
World Health Organization will also, quote, share real-time information about travel measures. So you're going to find out exactly when you're allowed to get on a bus or train or airplane. Or how about your bicycle? Will they regulate that too? Maybe. Now, the World Health Organization has thought, sought this authority for years. Of course, who doesn't want more power? Here's Tedros back in April of 2020. People in countries with stay-at-home orders are understandably frustrated with being confined to their homes for weeks on end. But the world will not and cannot go back to the way things were. There must be a new normal, a world that's healthier, safer, and better prepared. Okay. So there's a guy with a long and documented history of subverting public health who is clearly a liar, who is acting as an agent for the Chinese government. And you have to ask yourself, did I vote for that guy? Is he one of my elected representatives in this democracy? How did he get power over where I can travel and when? Good question. And it's not just lockdowns that that man, Tedros, would be able to dictate. The World Health Organization would also assume total control over vaccine manufacturing and distribution. We're not making this up, by the way. According to the document, WHO would create a, quote, truly global end-to-end -end platform for vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics, and essential supplies, shifting from a model where innovation is left to the market to a model aimed at delivering global public goods. And we're not making it up. It act, that's a verbatim quote. It actually says that. No more innovation, centralized control. According to the treaty, those vaccines and essential medicines, because it gets better on every page, will be distributed not on the basis of need, but on the basis of equity. Equity is, quote, it says, critically important for global health, both as a principle and as an outcome. That's what the treaty declares. Therefore, the World Health Organization will ensure, quote, equitable and effective access to vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, and essential supplies and for clinical trials. And that means, again, quoting, healthcare workers and the most vulnerable will have priority access. Not the sickest, not the people who need the medicine most, but the most vulnerable in a larger sense. In other words, favored groups get medicine first. There is no graver violation of medical ethics than this. Every physician practicing in the United States promises not to do what you just heard. And it would become mandatory under this treaty. And by the way, that, the language you just heard, that is exactly the justification that officials in several states threw out when they were caught passing out vaccines based on race. This is a power grab. It's dangerous. It is, by the way, a reward to the very people who screwed up two years of COVID response. Oh, let's give them more power. This is lunacy. And people who know that it's happening are upset. 125,000 people in the UK have just called for a referendum on this treaty. They signed a petition. In a democracy, that would matter. You get to petition your government, you remember? But the British government doesn't care what they think. And now there's the Biden White House. In this country, there's been very little pushback because most people have no clue this is happening. We didn't until a bunch of people bothered us about it. You should look into it. We did and we're shocked. We didn't know because our media isn't covering this. It's not on the front page. Why is that? <laughs> you have to ask yourself. There is at least one planned legal challenge to this, and it comes from Stephen Miller's group, America First Legal. Here's what's at stake, not just your health, 
but the way that you live and your relationship to the government. Representative government requires your consent. You alone have the right to choose your representatives, your style of government, the laws under which you live. That is called democracy, and this eliminates it. Next week in Geneva, Switzerland, members of the World Health Organization, which was founded on the principles of establishing a one-world government, will be voting to give themselves worldwide authority when it comes to official international health emergencies. The same World Health Organization who praised communist China's extreme authoritarian lockdown against the Chinese people who suggested forcibly separating families to quarantine them. In most parts of the world, <clears throat> due to lockdown, most of the transmission that's actually happening in many countries now is happening in the household, at family level. In some senses, transmission has been taken off the streets and pushed back into family units. Now we need to go and look in families to find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them in a, in a safe and dignified manner. And who was caught faking the H1N1 pandemic in 2010. The same World Health Organization run by Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who's been working with the Clinton Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation since 2007 who said that the lockdowns will never end. I repeat, there will be no return to the old normal for the foreseeable future. And that the war in Ukraine was getting massive attention as a result of bias against black lives. The U.S. government is in full support of this new U.N. treaty with the WHO and has submitted 13 amendments, which will be voted on next week, that will give the WHO international authority on lockdowns, forced quarantines, and forced vaccinations. According to constitutional lawyer Robert Barnes, none of this is legally binding until a treaty is approved by the U.S. Senate. But the law hasn't been stopping these criminals from committing crimes against humanity so far. And if they plan on staying in power, they are going to have to bring back the lockdowns and the ballot harvesting mules. So we know it's coming, and it will soon be climate lockdowns to go with their climate migration. People are waking up, but the UN's agenda is aggressively pressing forward. The United Nations is meeting this week with members of the Mayor's Migration Council, which is comprised of nine mayors from nine different cities throughout the world, including Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles, California. The Mayor's Migration Council is funded by George Soros's Open Society Foundations, sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation and partnered with the United Nations. And their stated goal is pretty clear. They want to grant mayors the ability to bypass state and federal government when it comes to what they call climate migration and go straight to international organizations for resources. They are inviting all interested mayors or senior city staff members to contact them at contact at mayorsmigrationcouncil.org to learn how to engage with the international system and learn how to get funding and boots on the ground support. This all sounds completely illegal, but who's gonna stop them? There is no longer any justice in America, so expect more lockdowns as the food supply diminishes 
and the population around you surges with hungry foreign migrants. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. All of this insanity, where did it come from, right? Where did this, is this born in Wuhan? Who was behind saying this virus was so deadly that we all need to lock down? Who was behind saying that our only way forward is going to be a vaccine? Who was behind saying that no other drug was going to work? I mean, you can point to Fauci, you can point to different things, but throughout all of this, there has been one voice, one global international voice that kept chiming in and telling us all what to do, whether we were in America, or Bangladesh, they didn't seem to care, but it was the same people. Of course, I'm talking about the World Health Organization, and this is what they've been bloviating about for the last two years. The World Health Organization declared the outbreak an international public health emergency. I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern. The World Health Organization has just declared that this is a pandemic. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. When the World Health Organization, the WHO, speaks, we listen. Although older people are the hardest hit, younger people are not spared. I have a message for young people. You're not invincible. This virus could put you in hospital for weeks or even kill you. Now we need to go and look in families to find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them. To change the course of the pandemic, we must change the conditions that are driving it. We feel very strongly that what has been demonstrated in a number of countries of reducing transmission can be done elsewhere. What that means is ensuring that aggressive, there's an aggressive and a comprehensive approach by all people, by governments that really attempt to find all cases, find all contacts. The World Health Organization has told the BBC it believes the coronavirus pandemic will go on for a year longer than it needs to because of the unequal distribution of vaccines. It's dangerous to assume that Omicron will be the last variant or that we are in the end game. The World Health Organization has just released a report estimating that 15 million deaths occurred globally due to the pandemic around triple the current estimates. The paradigm shift in world health that's needed now must be matched by a paradigm shift in funding the world's health organization. Well, as though the World Health Organization didn't have enough power through the pandemic, dictating policies around the world that it seems that almost every nation adhered to, now they want more power over every nation and the ability to move faster uh, in their regulations and decisions to govern us. Uh, this is being voted on. A set of amendments are being voted on. The World Health Assembly agrees to launch process to develop historic global accord on pandemic prevention preparedness and response. Um, to get into the details of this, um, I have invited um, two of the leading voices for the World Council for Health, uh, Tess Lori and Shabnam Palesa Mohammed. Thank you for joining me today. Hello, Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for the invite. 
All right, you bet. And, you know, on your website, you have really laid out a lot of details that people can read about your concerns with these votes that are taking place, these amendments um, to the international health regulations. So, uh, Shabnam, I've, I've seen you, you've written many articles. Just sort of give me a rundown of what you see as the problem or what we should be concerned about with this meeting that's happening this week and the, the, uh, these amendments that are going to be voted upon. Absolutely. So essentially, the WHO is looking to use this coronavirus chapter to centralize health and take power for itself to make decisions on behalf of sovereign countries such as America, such as South Africa, such as the UK. And they're doing this through the amendments to the 2005 International Health Regulations. There are about 13 amendments they're looking to, uh, to change or to amend, including increased surveillance, including unilateral power given to the Director General Tedros to decide if your country or your region has a public health emergency of international concern. Now, prior to these amendments, the WHO and Tedros would have to consult with our countries to decide whether we do have a public health emergency of international concern. These amendments make it such that there isn't any consultation. He may consult. He doesn't have to. So, of mm. course, this has massive sociopolitical and geoeconomic considerations, especially when we're hearing rumblings about sanctions being enforced in certain countries that perhaps might, might not toe the line. So you're quite right, 22nd to 28th May, these amendments are going to be proposed and potentially adopted by the secret delegates to the World Health Assembly. Nobody knows who they are and it's coming mm. up in, in a couple of days. So no transparency, no public participation. And just to mention also, Dal, that these amendments have come out of the US uh, Department of Health and Human Services. Services. They were sent to the WHO on the 18th of January. By the 20th, Tedros announced to the member states or those representatives, we don't know that these amendments have been put on the table. No participation process. That department did attempt a sort of manufactured consent process a couple of mm. days ago. But as you know, that really isn't proper public participation. And so our position as the World Council for Health, but of course our many allies, I mean, this movement is growing at an exponential place because people know not only what the WHO has done over the last two years with the mismanagement of the so-called pandemic, but also has a history of, of corruption and mismanagement due to conflicts of interest. So there's an exponential movement that's growing under the hashtag Stop the Who. Right now it's Stop the IHR, but we'll get to stop the new pandemic a little later on. All right. You know, Tess, one of the things I've seen reported out there, in, and I think it's misreporting, is this idea that this is a brand new council being put together or, you know, treaty. But this is actually a treaty that goes all the way back to 2005. Just many of us were not paying attention to it. Um, so when you look now at what they're attempting to do, it seems that we're already on a slippery slope. When you look at you have worked with the WHO and for the WHO. Can you give us some perspective why now a group that you've worked with successfully and, and had good relations with, why are you speaking out against this now? Del, you know, the WHO is made up of a lot of people, you know, working there. And the teams that I've worked with have been really hardworking and, uh, and dedicated. But obviously, um, you know, this is a power grab from the very top. And, um, and this new... Uh, these proposed amendments to the international health regulation, um, you know, the most worrying for me is actually Article 12, which says that 
in the event of a potential or actual health emergency. So this doesn't just relate to pandemics. This is, um, this is uh, any health emergency, uh, and that could be anything, that the Director General shall determine on the basis of information received, and that can be secretive information, it doesn't have to be declared, um, but it's potential or actual. So on a whim of a potential emergency in your region or in the world, um, uh, the Director General, this one individual who, um, you know, who, who there has been, uh, there is a lot of concern about uh, his, um, his history and experience, um, that, uh, that he should have this power. And then, of course, we get 48 hours. Each country gets 48 hours to give a reason why they don't wish to accept the offer of collaboration, it's called. Um, so, uh, so I think. So, wait, so hold on a second. So, 48 hours. I mean, when I think about this pandemic, it seemed to me it took weeks at least for there to even be a consensus over what was really happening. Here in the United States of America, Donald Trump, our president at the time, was saying, I want to shut down all flights coming into America right now. Everyone says, You're overreacting. That isn't, this isn't that big. You had here Tony Fauci saying, This virus will not get here. It's not going to be a problem for the United States of America. And then some, you know, within 10 days, a week later, all of a sudden, you know, that the, the, the languaging started changing. So it's hard for me to imagine in the face of any future pandemic, uh, real or feared or whatever it is, that 48 hours is enough time to determine for, you know, world-renowned scientists and the best of the best to come to some understanding of what we're going to agree and not agree to. How, who came up with a 48-hour time period? That seems absurd. Yes, I mean, it is, it is absurd. And, um, and uh, the fact that, you know, this is in black and white in this document um, and, uh, and, and, that and that we, you know, as, as uh, nation states, we have to give reasons why we don't want uh, to, to have um, the Director General of the WHO making our health decisions for us is patently absurd, but it's there in black and white. Shabnam, when, when we look at these amendments, do they affect different nations, you know, differently? Do you think that they are more dangerous, perhaps, for, you know, smaller nations or those that are not well financed? You know, I would have to imagine no matter what's going on in the United States of America and England will probably be able to say, you know what, we're, we're just not down. Uh, but, you know, does Africa, you know, do African nations have that type of power or, you know, New Zealand or somewhere like that? Can they stand up? against this? I mean, do you think it's going to have an equal sort of footing with all nations or will there be a difference in, in how nations are treated uh, by the WHO? So that's, of course, a really good question. If you're asking a country that doesn't have the resources to come back to you within 48 hours and then they don't, not only do you malign them to the emergency committee, but you say, you know what, maybe we should look at sanctions against this country. And maybe this country has got resources like oil and diamonds. Wouldn't that just be very convenient? Um, mm -hmm. And so certainly there are certain considerations we need to bear in mind. I mentioned sanctions earlier on, and it is going to be quite a challenge uh, to, to, to ensure that the delegates that are going to the World Health Assembly, whose names we don't know, are aware that we do not consent. And so therefore there is this massive campaign now in every country. I mean, this is, this is massive. We've just heard about a legal action being launched at the High Court of the United Kingdom, uh, basically to have this um, 
these amendments interdicted or stayed. There's lots of talk about it happening within the U.S., and I believe the U.S. has to lead on this because that's where these amendments are coming out of. But right. in terms of Africa, we have the African Sovereignty Coalition with South Africa, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Kenya, and growing. We also have the Afro-Asian Sovereignty Coalition because we are trying to form a South-North collaboration in taking back our health in building the better way. Surely there's got to be a better way than depending on the WHO and the pharma cartel to make decisions about our health. And of course, that's what the World Council for Health is all about. There is a better way. We have no conflicts of interest. We're really interested in people's health and well-being. And so we're looking forward, Dell, to also unpacking the power grab by the WHO and to building the better way at the Better Way conference that's coming up. And we're delighted that you're going to be the program director there. There's going to be a very special spotlight on the WHO power grab on day three, which is Sunday in a panel called Law, Justice and Human Rights. I'll be co-hosting that event and we'll be in relation with experts like Astrid Sickleberger, who also worked with the WHO mm. and James Rogaski, who's just done brilliant work in this area. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I mean, first of all, this is going to be one of the first times I'm going to get to be in person with many of the great scientists and experts around the world that have been appearing on the high wire. So for everyone out there, this is a once in a lifetime uh, opportunity starting tomorrow. Uh, the Better Way uh, Conference is being held in Bath, England. Of course, you're sold out, I know, uh, for the in-person, but everyone, you can sign up online. And one of the beautiful things, these panels, this is, I like the format because it's going to be these scientists and doctors interacting with each other, not just giving up and, you know, standing, giving, you know, a diatribe on, on their perspective, but challenging each other, trying to find, you know, uh, camaraderie, ways forward. And even better is the fact that you have this question and answer at the end of every uh, one of these panels, which is going to allow everyone out there, you're going to have the opportunity to write in. I will be on the other side of this. You can write in questions that I will be able to ask people like Dr. Robert Malone, uh, uh, Geert Vanden Bosch, you know, Ryan Cole. I mean, I could go on test. Just give me a, a concept the, the list of people uh, that are going to be speaking at, at this conference over the next three days. Yeah, well, we've got a whole lot of people arriving in person, which is amazing. But also um, those who can't make it in person are appearing uh, via Zoom. So, for example, to address um, the question of how do we reclaim science? We've got uh, Paul Alexander, we've got Brett Weinstein, Robert mm. Kennedy, Robert Malone, um, Jessica Rose, Peter McCullough, Fia Fannenbosch, uh, Mary Hubner-Mogg, and myself on that panel. And uh, Majid Nawaz is actually the host uh, who will be um, asking the questions um, to, to those panelists. Um, but, you know, every, every um, panel is just full of uh, amazing um, doctors and warriors, uh, people who have uh, put their head above the parapet in the last two years to say something's not quite right. Um, can we please ask questions and, uh, and uh, offer suggestions? So we've got um, Dr. Flavio Cadegiani from Brazil, um, Jackie Stone, Dr. Kat Lindley and Richard Urso, Ryan Cole, uh, Alexandra Omnion Corday from France. Uh, these are all, we'll be discussing how do we uh, address the health consequences of the COVID-19 chapter. And we get to, to move on from that. It's not just about COVID, this, uh, this, uh, these questions, because uh, you know, what the last two years has shown us when we haven't been able to ask questions is that there are many that, uh, yeah. that we need to ask. So we have, um, how do we actively create a world in which people thrive? And that uh, really is to motivate, inspire people and give them actions they can take 
to uh, to help create a better world. So I can go on, Dell, if you if you want me to. Um, well, I mean, look, I think people can go to the website. Let's bring this up right now. And you know, one of the things you said, Tess, that I like when we were talking right before this. You know, obviously, you know, right now people can pay to to see this online. But you said don't just you're not looking for everybody. To pay have a party. Have five, ten people come over to your house. Get online. Everyone sit around and get in the conversations that world-renowned experts are going to be hosting with each other. Uh, this is going to be an amazing event. That's why I'm flying all the way to England. I'm so honored to be emceeing uh, this entire event for the whole weekend. I mean, really, um, these are the best of the best from around the world coming together to try and make sure that this insanity that we've been through over the last two years and is really being promised to us to start again right around the corner. We've got Bill Gates saying, you know, don't, don't count out Omicron next. A more deadly version could be coming. I mean, these people seem upset obsessed with the idea of a pandemic when prior to this moment a pandemic tends to happen like once every 50 years you get this sense with where the who is going how bill gates is talking that we're going to have pandemics like every year every other year i mean I, I hope i'm wrong but it sure seems like this is like this new way of getting us all to comply to how we move about this world and being put in the hands of a much smaller group of people that's why i think it's so important and the voices that you're bringing in. You're, I mean, you had originally been set up um, at, a, at a public location for this, but got kicked out essentially, right, Tess? Yes, yeah. Well, we are, our location is very secure now, and, uh, and we have no doubt it's going to be a great success bringing everybody together um, yeah, to create this better way. We don't have uh, to accept the dystopian, the dystopian option. Uh, we right. can make our own way, and yeah. uh, it's going to be beautiful. All right. So everybody, just starting yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, if I could just go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Shabnam. I've got this big news that I want to share with you and okay. your audience, and that is that the WHO is very well aware that there is a resistance to this power grab. How do we know this? Tedros had a media briefing, and I'll quote what he said. Unfortunately, there's been a small minority of groups making misleading statements and purposefully distorting facts. I want to be crystal clear. WHO's agenda is public, open, and transparent. Of course, it's none of those things. WHO stands strongly for individual rights. We passionately support everyone's right to health and will do everything we can to ensure that that right is realized. Talk about sovereignty and the WHO's job and he essentially says the WHO's mandate is 100% determined by members what they agree. So he's now laid all the blame on these delegates to the World Health Assembly. Not necessarily a thing. I just think this is something to be excited about. They know there's a resistance. We're in the most part mm -hmm. of history. The Great Awakening is here and the power of the people is always greater than people in power. Well, I agree. And, and I want to play a video for you. This is, you know, Tedros. And one of the things that bothers me about this guy, as you pointed out, my understanding is he's up for re-election, but he's running unopposed. Apparently, he's like the best guy in the world. The guy running the WHO is not a doctor himself, which means he's totally vulnerable to all the pressures of the funding and where the WHO funding is coming from. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, and Bill Gates himself being one of the major funders. China's involved in that. Pharma, obviously, hugely behind this. But I have a problem when you don't have a doctor that is saying, give me the power to unilaterally make decisions that I don't even have to ask any of the other scientists around the world, especially when I see videos like this. This is him talking about herd immunity, uh, which is a term that all of us learned in school, even in high school, and he's flipping it on its head as though he has no concept of what he's talking about. Take a look at this really quick. There has been some discussion recently about the concept of reaching so-called herd immunity. 
by letting the virus spread. Herd immunity is a concept used for vaccination in which a population can be protected from a certain virus if a threshold of vaccination is reached. For example, herd immunity against measles requires about 95% of a population to be vaccinated. The remaining 5% will be protected by the fact that measles will not spread among those who are vaccinated. For polio, the threshold is about 80%. In other words, herd immunity is achieved by protecting people from a virus, not by exposing them to it. Never in the history of public health has herd immunity been used as a strategy for responding to an outbreak let alone a pandemic. It's scientifically and ethically problematic. All right, Tess, you're, you know, a scientist, a doctor. You are, you know, have been deeply involved in helping people around the world, both in using pharmaceutical products and developing studies around it. But herd immunity is a term that has always been based on natural infection. It has been commandeered by the pharmaceutical industry to say what, what the new definition that Tedros is giving it, that herd immunity references being vaccinated. That, I'm correct in saying that is not the case. Herd immunity is a term that is based ultimately beginning, you know, back in the early 1900s, just following things like measles and how it would sweep through um, a county or an area. And then once it had that immunity that was achieved from the infection and then blocked it from coming back. So when you hear him making statements that are factually not true, and then furthermore saying that we've never used a policy of herd immunity, I mean, whether or not we name the policy of herd immunity up until this pandemic, that's exactly what we did during the last SARS uh, outbreak, which was a far more deadly, looked like a far more deadly virus. We didn't rush out and vaccinate the world. We, you know, we made some attempts at vaccinations, many of them uh, a failure, but we let people make their own decisions. And that virus went right away. I mean, it, it disappeared on its own, didn't do the damage we thought. In this case, we vaccinated the world to achieve this vaccinated herd immunity. And we're now being told we will never hit herd immunity. We're going to have to learn to live with it for the first time ever. So I have major concerns that this is the guy that's going to make decisions when every decision they made in this pandemic is the first time we've ever done it this way. We broke away from natural herd immunity and now we're in real trouble because we can't get there. Some say because of the vaccine program. Tess, what are your thoughts on that and, and the statements he's making as a doctor yourself? Well, um, that's not the first uh, redefin redefining of, the, of terms um, that the WHO has come up with over the last two years. They keep redefining terms that we have been, you know, that, that uh, are in our, our dictionaries. So um, you know, clearly they think we're idiots um, and they can tell us any old thing and we'll believe it. Um, and, uh, and um, you know, secondly, um, it's very Orwellian the way that um, they, they are redefining things and removing evidence and uh, removing previous uh, web pages from their, their uh, website where the old definitions have existed or where some sort of evidence exists or some sort of document exists that they should have of a process they should have adhered to. So it's like they're, um, they're uh, you know, it, it's very deceptive and um, 
and uh, it's it's and Orwellian, as I say, you know, it is literally um, uh, 1984. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've been I've been saying in many ways this feels like the prequel. We didn't know how they got the control in the books 1984, Brave New World. What had happened that set up that world? Well, as it turns out, we gave the World Health Organization power over every nation in the world to be able to start a fake war with a virus that was you know invisible and thereby locking us down and doing whatever they needed. Shabnam, I know you're about to catch a plane. Uh, we got to get you moving. On. you're in an airport you're heading to the better way conference just any last thoughts i know you're going to share a lot at that conference and we're you know we're all looking yeah. forward to that but any last thoughts on on this issue with the who well i want to say that uh, the who and, and the un and the wef and all of their handlers have grossly miscalculated in my analysis these amendments to the ihr and their new pandemic treaty they want to finalize in 2024 operating in lockstep is the biggest mistake they've ever made i think the people are going to pressurize uh, national delegates to the world health assembly to defund and to withdraw this dinosaur organization that does not serve the needs of the 99%. We have the wisdom and the intelligence and the compassion amongst us. We're going to build a better way for a better world. And I look forward to seeing everyone at the Better Way conference this weekend. Tess, it's one of the things I've been saying, we could get really negative and depressed about what we've seen, but in so many ways, the world has woken up because of what we've been through. So many people, as you're saying, Tedros seeing what he wants to call a minority. Bill Gates has said the same thing, a very vocal minority. I think it's the majority now. You have the majority of Americans now resisting the booster shots that are being recommended by the CDC. I think we've lost confidence in these governing bodies. It's amazing that at the moment where we have less confidence than we've ever had that they're grasping for more power but this is the opportunity to take this momentum that we have and and build a new world a better world in some ways going back to the scientific method that i think we've abandoned get back to what science does Tess, just tell me you know you know what are you hoping is achieved by the better way conference that's coming up starting tomorrow uh well we all come together and seize this opportunity for great change and uh, and you know design the world that we want really from scratch that's where we're at it's the most amazing opportunity let's do it all right well if you want to be a part of that test thank you for joining me shabnam i uh, really appreciate you taking the time i will see you just in a few hours in bath england and for those of you that can't make it but want to be a part of it this is the better way conference Hey everybody, Jason Burmis here, and the 75th World Health uh, Organization Assembly has now taken place, and uh, it's a few hours long. I did not watch the whole thing. In fact, I got so sick to my stomach watching the first five minutes of this thing that, well, that's what we're going to play. We're going to break down that propaganda because it's heavy propaganda, okay? This isn't just about, quote-unquote, health. This is about climate change. This is about a power grab of an unelected organization that our authoritarian, unelected leaders just submit to, pledge their allegiance to, and bing, bang, boom, it's got everything. It's got automation and robots for our health system. It's got climate change as the agenda. And we're going to be going back and taking a look at this thumbnail right here. 
because there's a lot of uh, things going on that really tell you what this is all about. You think you're looking at Mother Earth? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. But again, why are they involved in the climate agenda? Because this is not a climate agenda, okay? Their solution to all these problems is less people, is transhumanism, okay? Is taking the evolution of human beings into their own hands publicly while they use technology to empower themselves, the predator class, and enslave and exterminate the rest of us that do not go along with it or somehow survive it. I know it's bleak. I know it sucks. But we better come to the realization that's what actually is happening. No matter how many fact checkers and garbage people are telling you otherwise. We're also going to play this clip of an emergency meeting of the World Health Organization over monkeypox. You know, we haven't talked about the monkeypox thing here yet. But look at this. Just as they're having this treaty out there and the nation's pledging allegiance and a forum. Oh, we save people. We're the best. You have a outbreak of this monkeypox, right? And you see how they handled the last outbreak. Yeah, they really cared about people. In fact, the claims here are so bold, it's going to be hard to get into all of it. So thumbs it up, subscribe, share. We are on Rumble, Rockfin. And although we're not streaming live on Podbean right now, sometimes we do that. You can call in. Uh, it is also where you can get audio versions of the show. Okay, so let's start here. This is actually what they are streaming as, as the live stream goes forward, up on their big screens, right, at the World Health Organization. And it's in the middle of one of their ads, Okay, so like I said, this is like five minutes long, but you see this person, it says at this rate at the end, uh, at the bottom, alone in a mask. That's the running theme. And I, I talked about very early on during the pandemic that the idea of wearing a mask was transhuman in nature because you could no longer tell somebody's feelings. You couldn't communicate properly. Okay, and, and it was taking away our individuality. Uh, on top of many other things, stand three feet away, six feet away, be behind this barrier, cover your face. And again, at this rate, you know, we're going to, we're going to hurt the earth. We don't know what we're going to do. We need to give more power to the World Health Organization. So let's start playing these clips. We're bound to fall. Uh, well, they're bound to fall. You know what? Let's get the volume just about as high up as we can for this one. Jack it up. Here we go further back so let's stop, stop, let's stop and step away from our stagnation take a different route to a better destination we propose a new path to goals of sustainability goals of sustainability now again this woman is outside it's a running theme in this thing you're a slave wear a mask you're a slave wear a mask we're all in this together wear a mask sustainability the code word is sustainability, says Dennis Bushnell. Sustainability and productivity. Whenever they tell you that, okay, sustainability means less and less of a standard living for you and your family. And then productivity means as they automate you out of society. One that supports countries' healthcare durability. 
shifting paradigm towards promoting well-being and health and preventing this coverage undeniably fair. A new path that strengthens our systems and tools for pandemic preparedness and international health rules. Oh, international health rules. And look what they show you. Oh, international health rules at the airport. In other words, total biometric biomedical tyranny in a track trace database society. That's what all this means. Make no mistake how they sugarcoat it with the fact checkers. It's right out in the open. That's what that new international health rules. Really? Oh, international health. I can't go to your country unless I bend the knee to the World Health Organization. A path that harnesses the power of sciences, where innovation and data strengthen alliances. Oh, sciences and alliances. Hmm. It's all, it's all Bernaysian. Trust the science. Oh, look, it's the, the Good World Health Organization. They seem to be in a, uh, a third world nation. I'm sure that this time around, you know, they won't take part in a large sex abuse scandal. But it's not a sex abuse scandal. It's a pedophile scandal. Right? You, again, you have to dig down into the article before they tell you, oh, one of the victims, oh, she's 14. And this happened in 2019, 21, uh, 2021 article. Right? So she's a 12-year-old getting raped and and impregnated by these people right but it's okay you know why because the un is sorry they they are they're sorry look, look watch watch it's, it's big time apologies dissange has to be mother to those her sister left behind she blames the who doctor for her sister pendeza's death that doctor promised my sister a job saying that they would be working together and that is when my sister Pendeza got pregnant, even before she started working. With that, the problem began. He turned his phone off. Pendeza needed to hide her situation from her husband, who was working away from home. She decided to have an abortion. That's risky in DRC. And things went wrong. She went to the hospital. At that time, we could not accompany her because of Ebola. When she got there, she did not even spend the night. They didn't treat her and she was taken to the Ebola camp. The doctors assumed her bleeding was Ebola, not a botched abortion. She died that night and was buried like an Ebola victim, isolated from her family. Now, this is how awesome the WHO is. This is who gets more power. I want everybody to understand that pedophile scandals, doctors getting involved with with vulnerable kids, teenagers, they, let's give them more power. That's what we want to do. They're sorry. It's not the first sex scandal they've been involved in, but they're sorry. A course that bolsters our resolve and determination as the leading authority on global health information. Oh, they're the leading authority. It's all about vaccinations, too, and your travel. Oh, thank goodness. Over the years, we will build on these foundations to enhance the results and impact on nations and achieve the accelerated progress that's needed to reach our targets. Again, we're outside. We're in masks. We're slaves. We are the authoritative sources. Vaccination, 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 regulation. Some to be exceeded. 
If we want to reach the goals of development, then we must double, double our, our efforts equivalent. Oh, how catchy. So if we want to get to the development of an automated transhumanist society, we have to double our efforts for your enslavement under the guise of we care about the earth. Like I'm like I'm against solar panels? No. Solar technology is good technology. We could do a lot more of it. Okay? And we don't. And you know why we don't? Because again, it's not about empowering you or I. It's about making our lives more difficult and hard to get on a universal basic income. All right? And be dependent on the slave system. Set low carbon objectives at healthcare facilities. Oh, there it is. Low carbon objectives at healthcare facilities. And remember, when they talk about carbon, carbon is what they picked because it is a life force on the planet and you're the carbon they want to reduce. There's plenty of disgusting, real pollution and environmental travesties on this planet. You know, not to mention of which many are genetic modification of Mother Nature and the implementation of these subspecies these chimeric species into the planet and onto the planet. Sometimes it's not just about creating them genetically. It's actually what? It's the dumping of these chemicals that cause hormone disorders, that cause mutations. Just great stuff. But don't worry, it's all about equity and carbon. That's what the World Health... This is the World Health Organization pushing this. Address rising societal and economic difficulties. We'll prioritize people, amplifying our unique voices, championing diversity and healthier life choices. Oh, health. Oh, wow. The World Health Organization is going to champion uh, lifestyles and, and better health choices. <laughs> yeah. Accelerate country progress by scaling up innovation towards drugs, diagnostics, technologies and vaccination. Oh, technologies and vaccination. Ah, uh, no mention of therapeutics, though. No, 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 no. Ultimately, we will hold ourselves accountable for transparency makes all challenges surmountable. Yeah, they'll hold just like they were held accountable for the sex scandals and, you know, the child rape and the bastard children. They're sorry. They say, we're sorry when we get caught. We're sorry. We're not going to relinquish any power. Nobody's really going to get in trouble. We're not going to change what we do. We're sorry. We're appalled. Her husband never returned. Desange struggles to provide for the three children. She blames the WHO worker who abandoned her sister. He should be arrested. The WHO has investigated 80 cases like Pendesa's. Some include rape. How about child rape? Let's get to child rape. See, they always soften this man. We in WHO are indeed humbled, horrified, and heartbroken by the findings of this inquiry. The report paints a grim picture of male employees promising women jobs in exchange for sex during the Ebola response in Congo. This is what happened to Masika. He told me he was a doctor working for the Ebola response team. 
She had three children and no job. So she took his offer of work as a cleaner in exchange for sex. But he got her pregnant and pressured her to have an abortion. I got the abortion because it was a difficult situation in my life. The doctor blocked her calls. Her family threw her out. Yeah, let's give the WHO more power. Look how cool. Again, they wear masks like good slaves. They're coming together. Yay. We will not surrender, for we have commitments to keep. And many billions to heal. And billions to heal. to heal. Before we can sleep. Before we can sleep. So that's just the first one. Don't worry, there's a new one. We're going to get to the new one. And then we're going to break down the thumbnail. And we're going to play the monkeypox thing. Okay. Yeah, global health threats. They're, we're facing them. And the challenges are just enormous. What are we going to do? Oh! But so are the opportunities to create health. Let me stop. No, 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 no. The World Health Organization does not create health. All right. Healthy lifestyles and genetics create health and environments create health. The WHO creates tyranny, okay, and censorship and lies and authoritarianism on behalf of what? A predator class. That's a reality. for everyone on the planet great and now it's all about diversity oh peace and equity that's great by other uh, and look they're gonna harness science data and technology and innovation see here it is the automated robot agenda hmm oh don't worry the doctors are gonna be robots now taking orders from the World Health Organization awesome and we've highlighted Grace and what Grace's uh, connection to Cardano here before. Oh, Grace is a robot nurse. It's going to help. World Health Organization loves the blockchain. Yeah, they can use it in refugee camps. They love things like XRP, right? Ripple's perfect. Just awesome. <laughs> this stuff, I mean, you can't make it up. So let's continue on. stand for health health for peace peace for health so the world health organization it wants to get involved in climate change and peace and automation i mean this I, when i saw health for peace and peace for health all i could think of what is war is peace right it might as well be the same slogan Look at this. We have the WHO Secretariat member states and partners have stayed the course. That's great. They're leading the COVID-19 pandemic response, huh? Yeah, treatments and vaccines, my ass. Equitably distributed. Great stuff. They have the WHO hub for pandemics and epidemics. That's great. Oh, great. Yay, preparedness responses. There's going to be so many... They're wearing masks. It's great. And then they recommend the broad use of what? Oh, the, the malaria vaccine. That's great of them. Mm. They, they're eliminating cervical cancer. Oh, they're such good people. 
further eradicate. Everybody thinks polio is eradicated. And when they say things like this, and then they have to admit things like UN says polio outbreak in Sudan caused by the vaccine. This is in 2020. And it's not just Sudan. You uh, read about it. It's Angola, Congo, Nigeria, Zambia. You know, it's, it's happening there as well. Uh, and far far further than that in Afghanistan even if you uh, continue to read this you know but no they're eradicating it it's the upside down it's the inversion of reality oh they uh, we respond to more than 80 health emergencies I want us out of the World Health Organization I want us out of the UN and I want them out of my country They love you. Tons of medical supplies. And less people are smoking in many countries. Oh, look at that. This is this is key. We provided it the, uh, the world with health arguments for, it says, climate action there. Let me see if Clips and Me lets you see a little bit more of it. Or how about everyone? See, I have that part cut off. But it says climate action. You know what? Let's, let's see if I can just grab it really quick. Desktop four. Let's see. Is it right there? It is. For climate action. Oh, they love you. They love you. Climate action. Yeah. Bring it back on. It's just good. They love you. It's for climate action. The World Health Organization. Now, now, what if there's a Marshall Plan for a climate crisis? What if there's a climate crisis pandemic everywhere? The World Health Organization. Automation and climate action. This is about population reduction. This is about transhumanism. This is about authoritarianism. And we better wake up to it because it's happening right now. But it's okay. We play piano music in the back. Look, we wear masks and we have achievements, right? Oh, we need a strong, agile, and well-funded who? In other words, we'll do what we want without any input from the people. And then we'll exert our strength upon you censor who we want. I mean, it is just unbelievable. It's a vast and urgent mission. They're taking pride in it, all right. It's remote health, okay. And they got to keep the world safe now. Isn't that great? They're keeping the world safe. They're, I mean, they're wearing masks. They're keeping the world safe. And they're great people. This is what they opened with, folks. Climate change. Keeping the world safe. Health for peace and peace for health. Okay, oh, they help and serve the vulnerable. They're the best they can do. Oh yeah. Thank you, contributors. You know what? We, I, I, I'm, you know what? I, I want to play through as the piano and it shows all the contributors. But then when it gets to the actual uh, thumbnail of this, I think it's really important to take a look. I want this. It further exemplifies this climate change agenda and how that's another part of the World Health Organization now, right? Oh, look at, oh, yay, WHO, WHO, WHO. Oh, we all wear masks. Just, we're masking it up. It's the Masker Do crew. So there, look. Now take a look at this. Health for peace, peace for health. Health for peace, and peace for health. So... If we take a look behind me, and you know, we'll just go to the thumbnail because you get a little bit better of a look. And uh, I'll come on screen so everybody 
can see me as I rant and rave, thumbs it up, subscribe, and share. Remember, we're censored right now on YouTube. That's why I haven't been making YouTube videos. Uh, we're over on Rumble. Uh, the Buy Me a Coffee link is how you can support me best, or uh, Jason is void at yahoo.com is the PayPal, folks. So, first of all, look at the uh, the hair. The hair is in the shape of a cloud. Oh, and not only is it in the shape of a cloud, but you notice there's a blue aura around what's supposed to be Mother Earth, but it's not really Mother Earth. It's a trick. I'm going to show you that, too, because it's also about the, the transgender, transhuman movement, okay, starting to fluidity or uh, fluidly <laughs> think that you're a, a man and a woman and a unicorn and an elf, <laughs> And just another part of the universe, man. Maybe even you know, zeros and ones and binary and non-binary. That's what it's all about. And I'll accept being in a robot and I'll, I'll, I'll get uploaded. But anyway, you look at this and there's a blue aura around the hair that's a cloud. Okay. Now you look, all the clouds are flat, even in there, and they're very similar. But then there's a cloud over in front of the face. And you notice it also has the blue aura around it. Oh, because it's really not about you or me. It's about Mother Earth. And they're not really protecting them. No, it's about taking it over. And by the way, this isn't even a woman. You notice how they put the mustachio as a shadow right there? Again, that's where it is. It's transhuman. It's men and women. It's not just Mother Earth anymore. They even have the recycling um, at the uh, lower part there, the recyclable thing. And then they have the windmills on the bottom as well on each side. You see that? Yeah, it's not just about medicine, is it? Oh, it's about peace. They got the dove in there. The dove of peace. Health for peace, peace for health. You know what happens a lot when we say we're going to have to get peace? We have to go into war with people who don't want that peace. Hmm. Funny. So the WHO, in all their glory, also had a little meeting about the monkeypox thing. Uh, that I think that we should know about and be concerned about. So we're going to play that clip now. And uh, again, this uh, this happened yesterday. Let's talk about it. The World Health Organization called an emergency meeting to discuss the recent outbreak of monkeypox, a viral infection that has now spread to several countries in Europe, as well as to the United States, Canada, and Australia. Over 100 cases were confirmed or suspected in Europe on Friday in what Germany described as the largest outbreak in Europe ever. Dr. Theresa Tam is Canada's chief public health officer. It's unusual for the world uh, to see this many cases reported in different countries uh, outside of uh, Africa. I think at the beginning of any outbreak, we should cast the net wide to try and understand the transmission routes. We don't understand it enough. There's probably been some hidden chains of transmission that could have occurred for quite a, a number of weeks. So again, you have that weird story out there months ago where supposedly a monkey breaks loose and bites some woman and then she gets a fever. And now we've got monkeypox breaking out. Now, I'm not even saying the two are related, but I'm saying that they're going to use any narrative they can to take power. And eventually that narrative becomes what? Climate change. The World Health Organization and climate change. Weird. Uh, given the sort of global uh, situation that we're seeing right now. First identified in monkeys, monkeypox is more common to West and Central Africa. 
Symptoms include fever, headaches, and skin rashes. The disease typically spreads through close contact, including respiratory droplets, infected secretions, or even contaminated clothing. While many cases have been found among men who have sex with other men, Dr. Tam cautioned against focusing on any particular group of individuals. But I think people should understand that it's close contact, and that could happen in different ways. How? So I, I was unaware of that angle of the story. Now think about this. Um, if we're talking about immune disorders or lessened immune systems, right, that population has a heavier, uh, um, a denser populace of that. Let's say it that way. There's more more likely to be that because it is easier to spread certain infections and diseases that way, viruses, whatever. So you also want to know their shot status, don't you? But we're never going to hear about that stuff. Households. We heard households in the United Kingdom. But unlike COVID-19, the risk to the general public is low, says infectious diseases expert Dr. Amesh Adalja. There's a danger of viewing every further infectious disease outbreak through the lens of COVID-19. And you have to draw distinctions between a virus like SARS-CoV-2 and a virus like monkeypox, which spread in a totally different way from totally different viral families. Uh, monkeypox is a virus for which we have medical countermeasures, for which we've dealt with outbreaks in the past. It's not a novel pathogen, and it doesn't spread efficiently like SARS-CoV-2. There is no. Well, I don't like the endorsement of SARS-CoV-2 and how dangerous that is. But he spoke the truth about monkeypox and not to share that lens. A specific vaccine for monkeypox, but the WHO says that vaccines that were used to eradicate smallpox are up to 85% effective against the disease. Oh, another vaccine sale. So, guys, you saw it. You checked it out. The first five minutes was terrifying at the World Health Organization Summit because they, they just tell you outright. It's about your enslavement. It's about the climate agenda. And we're going to pose as the good guys. I'm a documentary filmmaker. All my documentary films are out there and for free. Loose Change, Final Cut, Fabled Enemies, Invisible Empire, A New World Order to Find, and Shade, the motion picture. We're on... You can, we'll just come back. Uh, a quick comment there. So a uh, fantastic job by Jason Burmis, obviously, uh, as well as Del Bigtree, Greg Reese, Tucker Carlson, sort of giving a panoramic, well, panoramic overview and actually more granular, detailed um, perspective as well, especially when we get into going over the IHR, the, the amendments and the resolutions associated with the pandemic treaty. A lot of people have drawn attention just to those amendments, which are very important to understand as well. First of all, when the, the dra first draft was instantiated in 2004 or 2005, it was bad enough, those amendments to centralize power even more greatly, but it takes the pandemic treaty to be ratified by member states, member nations, in order for those amendments to, to take hold and um, for it to become legally binding, so to speak. And so it gives you a sort of a grave and ominous, portentous sort of overview of what we can, unfortunately, what we might have to look forward to in regards to what's going on with behind the scenes when it comes to power, our, as Rich would say, and many others are unelected rulers and this insane power grab by billionaires and the, the super elite class that just does not want to give us the ability to uh, 
experience life for ourselves, um, have our own agency, our own identity, our own ability to provide for ourselves and for our families, and uh, the, the, the ability for us to engage in our own individual autonomy. And so it's important to be aware that even though COVID may be subdued, especially in cer- certain parts of the country, and many of us are sort of getting and have been getting back to nor- some semblance of normalcy, that behind the scenes, they're planning not only for the next pandemic, but this whole monkeypox thing and the simulation we referred to earlier. And But at the same time, then the World Health Organization, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Gavi as well, which is part of the, the uh, Bill Gates Initiative for Vaccines, Vaccine Research and Development, they're still pressing forward. They're still pressing forward with making sure that it's the sustainability goals, these euphemisms that they keep um, gaslighting the public with this, this essentially double speak that's taking place. Um, uh, War is peace. Peace is war. The 1984 sort of style that the Vermis alluded to is still moving forward. You know, everything I like how really what I saw Jason Vermis do there was translate for the audience, what it really meant. And like, oh, they say this, uh, it actually means this, you know, it means transhumanism. It means AI emergence. It means uh, climate agenda, carbon, you're made of carbon. All life forms are carbon based on this planet. Obviously that's what they want to have control over. They want to have control over you and the most as uh, Patrick Wood, who we interviewed um, uh, many, many weeks ago, talked about the idea that it's about not controlling just financial markets. So that was uh, something about 70 to 100 years ago, that was the vision. But then they realized they might be able to control people molecularly, especially with the rise of um, um, so, uh, uh, the science of sort of uh, microbiology. That's the word I'm looking for. So microbiology and bioinformatics and understanding that, oh, wait, we can actually possibly control the human being at the most granular level. And unfortunately, I think that's what they're obviously going for at this point. And you know, uh, he did a great job of showing essentially the, the, the human rights abuses. I'm not surprised by that, considering that they contract out to member nations. Um, they consult and form teams in those member nations of individuals that they haven't properly vetted in any capacity um, and allow them to have an inflated sense of authority, use that authority to abuse the local population, regardless to what he showed there with Ebola from the Reuters article there. Tragic beyond all human recognition. Um, Ebola is having a much larger outbreak, not a smaller outbreak, but they're attempting to say, no, 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 we're, we're getting these things under control. Just like Fauci said, oh, yeah, gain of function research is absolutely needed. Don't worry. It's the only way we can prevent a pandemic. It seems like the, what emerged from the most recent pandemic was probably most likely due to uh, genetic manipulation. So it's just, you know, they say one thing and they do another. And it's for complete control, complete power grab. And there's many players is a multidimensional way to look at it. There's yes, the financial connections, they're very important, but then there's the ideological connect, the ideological basis, the sort of ideological um, uh, sort of foundation that stands as something above the financial connections. You know, it's not just the love of money. It's also the love of power for power's sake. And so it's something much, much more, in a way, spiritual, psychological, something gets more to the core about what it means for us to be human and the manifestation of the worst elements of human psychology, human behavior, uh, human spirituality. This is essentially is as if a, a silhouette or shadow is being cast from this inflection point in history is more, we become more and more interconnected, reliant on machines. 
and that reflection is essentially uh, the the shadow, the collective shadow of the behaviors of the species. And so we need to be aware and be willing to work through that and realize not only our own shortcomings, better ourselves, go through our own sort of self-awakening and finding ways to find balance within our, our sort of mind-soul uh, disposition, but then on a collective level as well. So this is sort of a manifestation of power uh, taken to the most extreme manifestation that could be humanly imagined or possible and what that means for the human condition. So we have to see how this plays out. It's important to be aware important to prepare and just make sure that, uh, you know, you're, you're in position as best you can be to navigate the next really 10 years of what's going to happen in regards to the agenda 2030 plan as they move into, you know, the, the sustainable development goals and, um, you know, the government's situation and businesses with the environment government's sustainability goals as well, which they're trying to foist and, uh, onto businesses. There's so many angles by which they're attacking us, the food crisis, the energy crisis. It's not very uh, uplifting. <laughs> I wish I could be more uplifting, but, you know, there are predators out there and people should be made aware of what's going on. So very good, very uh, important overview of uh, what this pandemic treaty is about. I know a lot of people got sort of hung up on the IHR, sort of the uh, resolutions or amendments uh, to the articles. They're very important, but it doesn't go into effect unless there's a pandemic treaty. So it doesn't, you need both. You can't just have one or the other. So a lot of people just try to focus on just the one or the other. And in this case, it's an also, and this is something that uh, in order for this to take place, they need the treaty to be ratified and they need those amendments to go through. Or there's the sort of resolutions if you go to the amendments to these articles. So, Um, and it all has to do with consolidating power. So it's important to be aware of that. Now it's probably what as a long intermission. I think it was an important intermission until three twenty in the morning. Um, just because, uh, not only just because, but it's a very important. Uh, I found it to be a very interesting interview this week with Matthias Desmond and Robert Malone. But also in light of the fact that we had Christy Lee on tonight, I'd like to play at least like five or ten minutes of the interview. That a fantastic interview she did with those individuals. Excuse me, earlier this week. Or at least she had, she produced earlier this week. I want to get that on the show card. There's another, and then we'll come back after that. And there's a couple other clips. Probably won't get to them, but I'm just going to run through the show card to show you what. If you're interested, you could check out. Gets into some culture elements that I think are superfluous. Already were commented on, and uh, not that they're not important, but um, it's sort of a misdirection and red herring. So it's not something necessarily that the concentrate on too much and um want to go over we already went over the government uh, disinformation government's board what's happening with that whole situation and uh, a bunch of clips about elon musk and stuff we don't necessarily need to cover i'll see if there's anything else after we come back from this clip that uh we can go that is important to get on into the time capsule that is gtw and if not uh we'll get to the comedy section and sort of end up closing it out so first let's go to uh christy lee who interviewed Matthias Desmond and Robert Malone together and it was dropped this week and LD just play like the first 10 minutes or so and then we'll come back and see if there's any small clips we need to get on the record and we'll close it out. I am very concerned that we're now in an environment in, in that's based on the writing and, and the multiple statements 
from various people acting as world leaders, often they're associated with the World Economic Forum, that are, are explicitly saying that they wish to exploit this uh, for purposes which have nothing to do with public health. People who are in the grip of mass formation typically become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. They destroy the people who do not go along with the masses as if it is an ethical duty to do so. That has been observed in all major mass formations. I, I think we should not be Pollyannas. Just because we must be nonviolent, we also must be prepared uh, for there are opponents to react in, in, with economic violence, uh, physical violence, on all kinds of various forms of violence, uh, in, including mandates and constraining freedoms, etc., really all violent attacks on the human soul. Welcome to Christy Lee Independent Media. That's K-L-I-M dot news. Really excited to have two guests with me today. We have Dr. Robert Malone, a pioneer of mRNA technology, and also Professor Matthias Desmet, who is a uh, lecturer of sci psychoanalytical psychotherapy at Kent University, also an author with a book coming out very soon called The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Again, that's due next month. And I'm so excited that I was able to get both of you on at the same time because we are actually dealing with three different time zones right now. <laughs> Central Eastern and Belgium time. So very excited that, th that we were able to make this happen. So mass formation, that is basically the topic. We first kind of heard about this in the mainstream um, a few months ago. Dr. Robert Malone, you were on with um, the biggest podcaster, arguably, that there is, Joe Rogan, at the end of December. And then it was just Oh, only a couple of short weeks after that, that we had all the fact checkers coming out saying this doesn't exist. Reuters was saying no evidence. Um, Forbes had Robert Malone makes unfounded COVID-19 vaccine claims. So uh, I feel like you kind of took the brunt of this attack, uh, Dr. Robert Malone, even though you were kind of coordinating and getting this information from Professor Desmet. So um, I guess I'll start with you, uh, Dr. Malone. Um, how was it that you and Matthias got connected? Uh, we started just by me being a fan. Uh, Matthias had posted some videos or others had posted them of uh, uh, podcast interviews with Matthias. And, the, and someone I'm sure, uh, one of my followers had uh, pointed me towards these videos. And the first time I watched one, um, I knew that this answered one of the key uh, troublesome questions that had really been bothering me uh, since the beginning of the outbreak, and particularly since the Brett Weinstein podcast, which was another kind of milestone, when Brett raised these issues about the big why and the big how. And uh, when I when I listened to Matthias and his hypothesis and the granularity behind it and the logic behind it, it was clear to me that it was transformational in terms of comprehending what was going on. And I just avidly gobbled up every version of every podcast that I could find that had his name on it so that I could better understand it. And then uh, we had a chance to actually meet in person and, and uh, share ideas and thoughts in Andalusia, Spain. And actually that video uh, 
uh, will be coming out. It's it's a documentary will be coming out soon right now from Headwind. Amazing. And so over the course of, oh, we'll say like the next hour, we're going to be talking about um, our understanding of mass formation, um, the efforts to suppress it, and also just the efforts to suppress information in general and how that relates to mass formation, particularly with the disinformation governance board efforts in the United States, and then also the efforts in the UK um, to shut down free thought and free speech. So, uh, Matias, uh, for those that maybe, I don't know, we're living under a rock and hadn't heard heard this theory of mass formation. I know it um, is four conditions that must be met and you felt like you were seeing that. Can you give me like a brief history on how you came up with this hypothesis and as it relates to those four conditions you were seeing with the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes. Uh, well, mass formation is characterized uh, by a certain specific effect it has on uh, on individuals, on individual psychological functioning. So, mass formation is a, a type of a kind of group formation, which has very specific effects on um, on individual psychological functioning. And uh, one of these effects is, for instance, that people who are in a process of mass formation become radically blind. Um, um, for everything that contradicts, that goes against the narrative uh, they believe in. Um, they seem to have lost every capacity to take a critical distance of, uh, of the narrative uh, or the ideology that led to the mass formation. That's one of the most striking char characteristics of mass formation. It's very extreme, actually. People in a mass who are in a process of mass formation, can. it seems that they can believe no matter what uh, no matter how uh, blatantly wrong it is, uh, um, uh, they will continue to believe in uh, in it uh, if it is in line with the narrative they believe in. So that's one of the characteristics. A second uh, characteristic, which is uh, very typical for individuals uh, in a mass formation, is that in a very strange way, they are radically willing to sacrifice everything that is important for themselves. So they are. It seems that they are no longer aware of their own individual egoistic interests. On the one hand, it seems to be good, but on the other hand, it's also very dangerous because people in the mass formation, you can take the leaders of a mass, the leaders of the crowd, can take everything away of people who are in a mass formation. People in a mass formation are willing to radically sacrifice themselves, the, their health, their wealth, the future of their children, everything. And so that has been described since the beginning of the 19th century by such scholars as Gustave Le Bon, for instance, but also by, by many others. It's a very remarkable characteristics of people in mass formation. And then a third characteristic is that people who are in the grip of a mass formation typically um, tend to be extremely uh, intolerant uh, towards people that do not go along with a mass formation. So people who are in the grip of a mass formation typically become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. And uh, also, uh, after a while, they start to stigmatize the people who uh, uh, do not want to go along, uh, who do not want to buy into the narrative of, of the mass. Uh, and in the end, they typically um, uh, tend to destroy the people who do not go along with them. And they do so, and that's extremely characteristic. They destroy the people who do not go along with the masses as if it is an ethical duty to do so. That's typical for people who are in the process of mass formation. They typically tend to stigmatize, uh, 
and ultimately eliminate or destroy the people who do not, who do not go along with them, and they do so as if it is an ethical duty. That has been observed in all major mass formations, mass formations, whether it was about the Crusades or the witch hunts or the French Revolution or the mass formation, the large-scale mass formation of the Soviet Union or, the, or, or, or Nazi Germany. Always we've seen this typical inclination, this typical tendency of the, of the mass to ultimately destroy the people who do not go along with them. As if it is an ethical duty, this has been described like six weeks ago. I had this conversation with a, a woman of Iran who was, in, uh, who was in Iran during, who lived in Iran during the, the revolution in 1979. And she described how she has seen with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the government and the revolution in Iran was the beginning of a large-scale mass formation, which ultimately led to a totalitarian regime, which is typically totalitarian regimes are always based on mass formation and, and in contrast with classical dictatorships, which, which are not based on mass formation. But this, 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 this woman whom I'm talked to have, had seen with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the government and how she hung the rope with her own hands around his neck before he was hung and how she claimed to be a heroine to do so. That's one of the major typical characteristics. Commit cruelties, even towards the people that you loved before, as if it is an ethical duty. That's typical. And once you understand the mechanism of mass formation, once you understand it, you can easily explain all the characteristics that I just described. The radical blindness, the willingness to sacrifice all uh, personal interests and, and everything that was personally important to the people, and then also the radical intolerance towards dissonant voices and the tendency to um, uh, commit cruelties towards the people who do not go along with the mass as if it is an ethical duty. Um, fantastic reporting there by our interviewing uh, by Christy Lee. Um, harrowing information by Matthias Desmond. The thing he kept, the, the terminology he was using of ethical duty, ethical duty, ethical duty, that really stuck out to me because there's a long history in ethics, especially in the realm of philosophy, about what's actually referred to oftentimes colloquially within that sort of uh, uh, within that sort of subject matter called duty ethics. And consequentialist ethics is a part of this. This makes up the schools of like utilitarianism and it's really like an ethical theory and pragmatism and uh, much of the analytic tradition, as well as Kantianism provided maybe the most radical form of duty ethics ever conceived of in history. Um, essentially says that uh, one's consequences is what determines uh, the ethical characteristic or value ethics or value uh, propositions of one's actions. Essentially the consequences justify or the means justify the consequences essentially. Um, and so it has to do with this thing that like, if I'm, you know, uh, someone doing something good for the state, doing something good for the corporation, doing something good for, you know, my family, um, whether I get any benefit out of it or not, it doesn't matter. The, the ethical value is making sure I'm doing it for some greater good. And that's for people, as Matthias pointed out, are willing to sacrifice even their own children to that uh, perspective. And so it's, uh, it's a very, it's a pernicious mind virus that has manifested itself in many different ethical theories throughout history, especially in philosophy. And as you see it, you've seen it in religious circles. We've seen it, these mass formations, obviously, 
and uh, political circles, fire in the minds of men. James H. Billington pointed this out in regards to, you know, the bourgeoisie in France just wanted to have more participation in local government. Obviously, um, that did not, uh, they were not afforded that opportunity. And then you had the sort of the, Jacob, the Jacobins uh, take over and you had the, the uh, reign of terror and it just became out of control and beheadings left and right. Journalists actually left uh, or were the trailblazers. They could essentially castigate anyone, whether they were a part of the movement or not, as being uh, for the monarchy. And people would show up at your door and you'd be beheaded. So it became something that became radically out of control. Another way to uh, manifest a power grab in the most uh, pernicious and uh, acute way possible and conspicuous way possible. Very tragic elements in history. It always centers around this idea that we have a duty that transcends our own individual autonomy, our own individual volition, agency, self-worth, intrinsic self-worth for some greater good, for some greater good. That uh, essentially like the consequences are the value measurement that we use um, and should be the basis of like sort of the, the judgment on what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, these sorts of ideas. And so the overarching term that to be technical is called consequentialism. And uh, I think it's most pernicious formulation of it really comes from Kantian ethics, which essentially tried to justify that you're doing your moral duty, uh, essentially when you gain no benefit from it at all. And when it's for the betterment of your family, the society, um, uh, or for your, for your work, whatever it might be, and you don't gain any sort of actual benefit from it. And so it, it runs completely antithetical to what we human beings normally do, which is act in our own sort of rational self-interest, which sometimes our rational self-interest is to be um, uh, giving back to society, is to be part of a group out of our own volition and be be a part of something that can provide for other people, whether it's um, building houses, whether it's providing food, whether it's doing something that has an element of the greater good, but it's willingness out of our choice to not out of a duty that's prescribed oftentimes by a set authority or authority manipulating people's belief systems, whether that be religious or scientific, which is another sort of uh, um, scientism, you know, that sort of idea. And, um, and using that as a vehicle for controlling populations, using these various ideological biases that people would have to engender this sense of like, or embody this sense that they need to do something out of a duty in an almost religious sense. And that's essentially why oftentimes religions are, all religions are based on duty ethics. Not that I um, think that all of the prescriptions necessarily offered by religions are necessarily bad. Not that all uh, ideas of doing a certain duty is bad. It's the way where it starts from. Does it start from, does it start from the individual's own choice and volition or is it prescribed by a set authority or a group of priests interpreting what is ineffable to a certain class of individuals? That's the problem. Does it come from on high or does it come from the ground up? Something you can participate in willingly and choose to walk away from if you don't want to in regards to how you live your life and how you engage with other people uh, individually or as a group? Or does it come from being something you're forced to do? And I think that's the important element to understand uh in history, I sort of made actionable Hegelian uh, ethics as well, but that's a bit more messy, um, especially wrapped up in this theory of history. 
So he kept mentioning duty, duty, duty. Um, and that's a very important element to understand in history. Oftentimes, um, people will argue that they're doing the most altruistic duty that's possible. I mean, listen to what the World Health Organization is saying. You know, oh, you know, even though there'll be some, there'll be uh, unintended consequences of lockdowns, it's for the greater good. And it's out of this altruist altruism, this, this idea that uh, the self-sacrifice you know, they're doing it for this greater good. It's always the altruism and duty is intimately linked to one another. And it always ends up in being the subjugation and sacrifice of the individual for some ill-defined and nebulous idea of a collective that oftentimes commits all sorts of fallacies, whether it's uh, composition or division or um, uh, hasty generalization or a whole host of different types of fallacies. Um, in regards to that uh so without getting too philosophical and getting into that i just want to give people the perspective that matthias desmond what he's highlighting from a psychological domain has unfortunately sophisticated philosophical arguments brought about from history even going i mentioned thomas hobbes earlier um there's elements of that in hobbes there's elements of that in pretty much all the philosophers of what we consider the early modern period and leading into the modern period enlightenment and then post enlightenment getting into uh, the analytic tradition and so forth. So it's uh, unfortunate and very tragic and something to be aware of um, because uh, duty is when someone says it's your duty, is it your choice? This is duty part of something you're, you have a choice in whether you want to participate in or is something prescribed on on high and what sort of value judgment do you make about it? Like, how do you determine the right and wrong associated with it? Is that also something that's prescribed on high? Or is that something you're determining out of your own volition, out of your own capacity for reason? Very important elements to consider and an analysis of what someone's claiming is your duty. That being said, um, and it's extremely late now, I just want to go to one shorter clip, LD, and we'll call it a night. Um, we'll obviously close up. We'll come back and close up after this. I don't want to get it to go too late. It's my thing in the fall. So let's, uh, in the technology, economics, and politics section, three clips down, or three, uh, yeah. Let's do George Bush accidentally admits U.S. is world's evil empire. <laughs> uh, let's do the shorter version. I know we had Jimmy Dore on a lot tonight, but we'll do one more time only because he had the shorter version. There was also Russell Brand. I think a couple other commentators uh, mentioned this as well, but there's the two I on the show cards. So let's go to Jimmy Dore. Um, it's going to, you know, sardonically and cynically, uh, highlight for us. What exactly did George Bush have a 14 slip about earlier this week? So here is the story to end all stories. You want to hear a story Yes. about a war? So this is, you know, where, uh, United States has set the world on fire. We did uh, Iraq. We did Libya. Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, and now we're doing Ukraine. We're using it as a proxy war. Uh, and we overthrew the democratically elected government in Ukraine in 2014 and installed the puppet. And now, so that's what led to all this. And George Bush was given a speech and he was trying to make everybody hate Putin and rally around. And it's, he's at the George W. Bush Institute and watch what happens. Here we go. In contrast, Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. 
The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. Iraq, too. Anyway. And there it is. So in psychology, that's called a Freudian slip with a helping, a healthy helping of projection. So I've been saying this since everybody started demonizing Putin as some kind of extraordinary crazy maniac. I go, they're all crazy maniacs that run countries. What are you talking about? They're all murderers. And they're like, no, but Putin's an extra bad thug. I'm like, there's no bigger thug than George W. Bush. There's no bigger thug than Barack Obama. There's no bigger thug. Barack Obama had a drone program that killed 90% innocent people. There he is going. So he just gave the, the game is given away now. The game is given away. It's like, oh shit. We, we've been doing this for the last 20 years on steroids. And now we're trying to pretend that when we try to put a country right on the border of Russia into NATO, that's somehow not a provo uh, provocative act. So let's watch it again. You want to watch yes. it again? Because I do want to watch it again. In contrast, Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq, I mean of Ukraine. <laughs> So, I don't know, in fairness, uh, wouldn't anyone make that same exact mistake who isn't a lizard person? I mean, the real story here is that he actually has a mammal brain. So take that, conspiracy kooks. And by the way, am I reading? That is, that it says George W. Bush Institute. And we all laughed at Trump University. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what they teach at George W. Bush Institute. I'm guessing painting. And by the way, uh, that's another reason George W. Bush is not like Hitler, because Hitler did all his painting before he mil murdered millions of innocent people. George Bush did his painting after he murdered those people. But it's, act it's actually a think tank, the George W. Bush. It's actually a think tank. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's mission. It says, let me read this. It says, saving lives extending freedom and democracy, and advocating for women worldwide. Wait, so that's why all those things are so fucked up. <laughs> so there it is. That gives the game away. We're the, we're the evil empire. We are. Much more evil empire than Russia. That's for fucking sure. You want to go by body, body count? Look what we did in Iraq. Look what we did to Libya. We're still occupying Syria. And which part of Syria? The part with the oil. We're still helping commit a genocide in Yemen. 500,000 people dead already. And now we're back into Somalia. Plus, we're helping uh, uh, terrorists in Ethiopia. We are the world's bully. We are the evil empire. We are. And that revealed it. And I don't know if you remember uh, when he did uh, invade Iraq illegally, one man. He then made jokes about it at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. 
See, he did a slideshow, and his first joke is about John Kerry, and then watch what the second joke is about. Here I am trying to explain John Kerry's foreign policy. Uh, so he's showing a slideshow of him do- during the year, and he's making jokes about the slides. <laughs> Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. Ah, look. See, that's George Bush. He's looking underneath a desk, and he makes a joke out of that we created a lie to invade a foreign country and kill a million people. Here's another one. Nope, no weapons over there. Maybe under here. (laughs) See, that's the great thing about this new war is we don't have to search for Putin's WMDs. They'll find us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I'm glad most of the media can see how fucked up this is and still not make the connection to the current bullshit war. Isn't that amazing? Right. Here's David Sirota. George Bush is laughing in this clip because he knows he and every other Iraq war supporter were rewarded with riches and big media jobs for their work killing a million people rather than being held accountable and shunned. So, yeah. It was not, it'd be nice to see him connect that to the current war. Wouldn't that be nice? It'd be nice. Vote blue. David Sirota is going to tell you to vote Democrat. Uh, worth noting that George Bush and his gang of criminals have been war fully criminals. re oh war and his gang of war criminals have been fully rehabilitated by the Democratic leadership, right? And well, and look at uh, W and Michelle. It's like when you see those cute pet clips where a dog and a turtle are friends, isn't it? It's like look, there's a squirrel and a deer, and they're pals. Oh, here's a rooster and a donkey, and they like each other. That's what that. And there is Joe Biden putting the a medal on that guy. He put a medal. He gave him a fucking medal. Wow. I think that was he's giving George W. Bush the embarrassing gaffe lifetime achievement award. I think that's <laughs> what that is. I think it's I think it's nice that Biden acknowledges an old an OG. Right? Joe Biden stood on the shoulders of giants, as they say. God bless him. Here we go. The staggering death toll in Iraq. You want to know what the staggering death toll in Iraq? Uh, 15 years since the U.S.-U.K. invasion in 2018 of March. And the American people have no idea of the enormity of the calamity the invasion unleashed. The U.S. military has refused to keep a tally of Iraqi deaths. Yeah, did you know that? Generally, General Tommy Franks, the man in charge of initial invasion, bluntly told reporters, we don't do body counts. One survey found that most Americans thought Iraqi deaths were in the tens of thousands, but our calculations using the best information available showed the catastrophic estimate of 2.4 million Iraqi deaths since the 2003. Wow. It's really what uh, Bush did right after he realized that he had that Freudian slip. Well, he's like, uh, Iraq, I mean, uh, Ukraine, well, Iraq, too. It's that little subtlety, like oh, Iraq, too. I mean, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what we did. I mean, just the, the brazenness, the conspicuousness, the obviousness, the willingness to just be, well, I guess for the first time, actually be honest to a certain extent. 
about what the the mission was, what the goals were, what the strategy, what the plans were all along. And we know about the fallout. Of course, no one seems to care because it's all about what the media wants us to care about. That's part of cybernetics. It's part of closed system feedback loops. Um, it's weaponizing empathy. It's mind control. It's just mind control. That's all it is. They're telling us what we can and can't feel sorry about or, or you know, give our compassion towards or empathy towards in certain situations. And, um, you know, making sure that uh, we ignore others. Jimmy Dore didn't even mention about our seemingly unilateral support through APAC, of course, the ADL, uh, APAC more specifically for Israel and the hegemony and the belligerent actions of the Israeli government in regards to what's going on in the Gaza Strip in Palestine. So let's not forget about that as well. I mean, he mentioned Ethiopia. There's a lot of crazy shit going on in Africa right now. There's a lot of uh, uh, mercenary action and private defense contractors being sent to Africa currently that no one's talking about uh, in regards to us helping fund terrorist organizations, proxy forces in Africa as well. There's also the Belt and Road Initiative. It's not just going through the stands, as we mentioned before, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and um, you know all these various um minus Afghanistan, but it's also in China, or excuse me, China is also utilizing a sort of uh, infrastructure initiative and uh, development in Africa. So we have interest in Africa. China has interest in Africa. Who's being sacrificed? Oh, the African people. It's all over the place. Uh, there's more warfare, seemingly, at this point, in forms of print limited proxy wars, the a la uh, Henry Kissinger. It's more slavery in the form, especially of sex slavery and child sex slavery in specific than ever before in history. Yet they gaslight the public and say, we've eradicated disease. You know, we, there's no, you know, slavery is a remnant of the past to a certain extent, unless you live in America and you're part of a certain supposed victim group. Um, you, you know, there's uh, nothing to worry about here. We are going to eradicate poverty. We're going to eradicate uh, hunger and homelessness. And seemingly they're increasingly more and more of that. Um, while they tell us the opposite is taking effect. And that's the control of language, the control of reality, the control of our mind, control of minds uh, in, a, in a mass formation, if you will. So this is uh, just uh, disturbing on so many angles. I was trying to find really quickly some of the parts from um, Carol Quigley's work, obviously Tragedy and Hope in regards to NATO and what some of the points over to this, I couldn't find that might be in the Anglo-American establishment. So I'll try to bring that up next week when I have more time to go through my books. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's been a heavy episode. I think we've done enough commentary in regards to what's going on. I think people we've done, this is what episode 81 now. If That's the narrative, correct. if the picture, yeah, there we go. If the picture hasn't been painted enough by now, and uh, I think Richard and I and so many other great uh, alternative media hosts, such as Burmis, and Luke Radowski, and obviously what they're doing at Del Big Tree, Kim Iverson. Uh, there's just uh, so many that uh, have painted a, a rich tapestry of connections. Um, this octopus, if you will, an allusion back to Danny Casolero's work. Um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's as obvious as it possibly can be. Now it's just a matter of whether or not people actually want to acknowledge the reality that's in front of them or to continue to live in some sort of like self-generated, cannabinated sort of fantasy world. 
or they listen to the mainstream media or they listen to set authorities that tell them the way the world is when in fact uh and you know betray their own processes that nature or god or whatever you want to say and adorn them with which is their ability for reason their ability for sense perception sense perception and conceptualization their ability to determine reality for themselves through their own five senses and through their processes of logic and reason and uh we'll see how much the people are going to continue to outsource that and uh diminish the quality that intrinsic quality that nature gave us god gave us whatever you want to say it was was the cause of that or um if they're going to take back that recognition that humanity the thing that makes us um unique as a species on this planet and use it to their effects to better themselves their families and their communities so hopefully we can find a way to move forward together um and solid they find solidarity find the common ground find the universals that we all share in common and build a foundation based on that even if we have very different opinions on the nature of all varying theories of you know viruses or um you know uh, philosophies and religion and whatnot with that all being said uh, i'm going to go ahead and wrap up this episode i want to thank for people for uh, tuning in and sticking with me it was sort of thrown together at the last minute in regards to unfortunately rich did not feel well tonight he's been doing a tremendous amount of work and he had a migraine for the past day day and a half really and he's been fighting through it he's had a lot of uh work commitments and he's been doing his the best he could i'm glad he was able to even hop on tonight and i want to thank christy lee for uh spending time with us tonight absolutely incredible interview giving people insight into what the sort of the perspective is like from the mainstream being in that sort of mainstream world sort of reminded me of when rich told me his story about being in the corporate world very different situations mind you but still similar in so far as it being you know there's just a whole different sort of uh, propriety proprietary standpoint around the way in which you engage with more mainstream corporate systems and 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 juxtaposed contrast to doing it yourself being independent being autonomous being an entrepreneur um Who do we have to thank for tonight, LD? And uh Yes. Sick. Mm-hmm. And uh let's see, I wonder there's one other oh, this Tuesday night is the town hall. Join us seven to ten o'clock, and uh we'll continue the incredible conversations we seemingly always have on this town halls. We got I think last week we ended with uh getting into Zabatai Sevi and um the potential misunderstanding of the Kazarian conversion to Judaism um that uh Matthew Ayer has done very interesting work on not saying it's true or not I have to dive into that more talk about also Arthur Kessler's work and his connections to propaganda and cultural uh propaganda in regards to the post uh, post war uh initiatives around uh framing certain uh narratives and his connection to the round table groups and he's the one who did the 13th tribe and popularized popular popularized that theory and so we get into some very interesting discussions we also talked about prepping the importance of uh, being prepared for what's coming as a revelation of the craft you know the powers that be the major central banks of the world are already telling us in their white papers so to speak that there's going to be major food shortages and you know that's sort of their way of karmically washing their hands um baptizing themselves removing sin 
from them, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. And so uh, by telling us up front, allowing those that are aware, eyes to see, ears to hear, to get prepared, and for those who refuse not to, to have to suffer the consequences of what they're ultimately doing, which is just evil beyond all recognition. So um, we talked about all sorts of subjects. Join us Tuesday night, every other Tuesday. So this Tuesday, we're on for the town hall. And uh, if you're interested in Richard's course, autonomy, learn skill sets uh, to be successful. It's really a foundational level for building, build, being able to build skill sets and communicate effectively those skill sets to, to uh, get jobs, to move up, uh, to become your own business, to uh, have more confidence in public speaking and be able to promote and fill the needs of those individuals that are looking for people who have initiative, integrity, and want to move forward uh, in their life with uh, greater viability. So check out Autonomy. Also, I've just finished my logic course. It's a great success that should be now available on the Agora Marketplace, Autonomy Agora Marketplace. Uh, so check that out. We're going to make sure we offer it very cheaply. If it's not on there, we're going to offer it very soon. Uh, just need to get the post-production all finished. I think it's pretty much done. I just have to come up with a price point. I want to make it cheap enough that people can frequent it. If there's interest in the future, I'll run it again. And I'll do some sort of package with my Trivium course to some, some, some sort of money off for if you purchase both of them, you'll get some substantial discount. So I want to thank everyone for their support. And uh, who do we have to thank tonight, LD? Yeah, big thanks to the Grand Theft World subscribers, people in the community. And uh, big thanks to the Rockfin Tippers tonight, Poetry Yoga, Roald Sorensen, Ian, Drake the Snake Roberts, Tina Hagen, Rolled again, Fear and Loafing, Teague Han, Jim Garrison, Bent Ridge, Carrie, DZ Lizzie, Matt Green, and Ian once again. And yeah, I think you covered everything. You want to uh, play anything? Uh, play anything else? Real quick, how do people subscribe? Oh, yeah. Go to grandtheftworld.com. Go to the top right corner. Click join the community. You can sign up. Choose a level of support that suits you and get into the Grand Theft World Discord and get access to all of uh, Rich's previous material. There's a, there's a cornucopia of information uh, in the, the Library of Cognitive Liberty, which is uh, what we call the where all that, all that stuff is housed. And I think Richard might have meant to ask him this, and I'll have to ask him afterwards. He might have done an interview with Charlotte Isabeth. I know we mentioned her earlier uh tonight regards to her work in education exposing the education agenda in america i feel like that was unpublished obviously or if he did didn't do one it might have been someone else that we were close with because he was in contact with her when i was working with rich we we would routinely communicate with charlotte she was older and you know she is a, a headstrong individual i'll i'll say it that way <laughs> and so but she was also you know, at times uh, in and out a little bit in regards to being able to stay focused on a certain topic, but an incredible mind, incredible work. Uh, uh, we lost a, a, a certain, a very much a warrior and a pioneer in regards to exposing the agenda in education and making sure that parents were aware of what's going on and how best to navigate it and the impact that would have and the players that were responsible in regards to education in America. So 
I uh, just wanted to sort of pay homage to her. And I need to ask Rich if he has some any unpublished material in regards to her. It might be worth trying to get out there. But there's a lot of unpublished material we have on there. There's a lot we still need to get processed and, and post-production and edited. Um, so uh, we're always looking to increase value there. This is so much. And I want to thank everyone, the, the Rock Pen tippers. Just a ton of tippers tonight. Really appreciate your guys' support. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do this without you guys, as well as obviously what I consider to be the executive producers of the show. That would be the subscribers of the GTW community. Just um, it's what keeps us going. It keeps us uh, moving forward together. And just can't thank you guys enough for the support. And, you know, we try to be as honest, truthful, and we always try to base it on the evidence that's available to us. We don't always get everything right. And we try to make amends when we get some stuff wrong, but we do our best and uh, to promote truth, honesty, um, the importance of the individual and the importance of integrity. And so I really want to thank everyone for their continued support. And with that tonight, let's play. I had some crazy, let me go back here. So I had some funny UFO stories, but we don't have to go over this. There's a Al Pacino tells story of alien abduction. So I mean, I figured it was just him being, you know, drugged, and then they they played some sort of movie clip while he was in Hollywood, while he's still in Hollywood. But no, nah, it's just me being facetious. Who knows where that came from? That's a weird story. Um, then there's Pentagon confirmed UFOs are real. That's that was sort of another obnoxious that was a big thing this week it was all over fox news and i kept going by it um we're seeing it all over the place which means there's probably some red herring associated with it but what i wanted to play was this jp sears clip oh, some funny ryan long ones there too but let's play the will consultants helping your business go broke i don't have it on there so i'll cover for you while you find it i think it's uh probably his most recent one Sure. Let me yeah, see if there's anything. I found it. So if you have any you want to show as well, I'll do that. Oh, uh, I don't have anything lined up. Yeah, let's do that. Well, consultants helping your business that looks pretty funny. And he's uh -huh. always pretty good. So. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight and sticking with us um, in regards to uh, Rich not feeling well. Uh, he'll be back next week. We'll be back uh, to our normal routine. And thank you for tuning in and not dropping out. Here's JP Sears to play us out. Good night, everybody. Hey, hi! Are you a corporation struggling with a sensible business model that does nothing but generate raving fans and massive profits? Well, we can help with that. We're the Woke Corporate Consultants. The past year has proven that when a corporation goes woke, they succeed at losing a dramatic amount of business while protecting themselves from profits. We'll help you position your products in a way that'll make your customers leave. That'll save you their money. Thanks to implementing our wokest strategies, CNN Plus was able to successfully burn through $300 million and go out of business after just three weeks. Believe it or not, that's not easy to do. But with our help, your results can be just as terrible. Many companies simply want to make money and provide goods and services to the people. But oftentimes, these companies become far too successful and need to find a way to slow down. And we don't want you to be left behind in slowing down. Wanna go broke? Here's how. Just take a look at Netflix, for example. 
We advise them to create a show about a pregnant man that's rich in radical ideologies and void of any artistic merit. We helped Netflix lose 200,000 subscribers and $50 billion from its market cap. They'll probably be able to do even better at losing more subscribers when we pitch them our new show idea about a pregnant baby. Disney is another great example. They've used the hand of wokeness to set the bar so low it's hard to go any lower. Where they've succeeded is by pressuring children with a sexualized agenda. It's proven to be an effective strategy to help their stock value drop by $34 billion. Approximately 0.3% of Americans love Disney's woke ways of sexualizing children. That's also coincidentally the same amount of pedophiles in the country. And a pro tip for companies on social media. Make sure you tweet out hashtags that have absolutely nothing to do with your business. A couple of examples we recommend using are Believe All Women, Defund the Police, and Biden 2024. Has your company denounced all Russian people yet? Do you have the Ukrainian flag in your Twitter bio? Do you insist that all your customers tattoo the Ukrainian flag onto their chests? If not, then it's like you're not even trying to lose market share. Instead of serving humanity better by focusing on providing goods and services, why don't you make cartoons for children? Speak out against someone in politics and amplify the voice of the mainstream narrative through the lens of your business. <laughs> Trust us, it'll bring your stock value way down so you can relax. Fred, tell the people at home how much money they'll save on taxes if they're making no profit. A lot. That's right. <laughs> I'll have a steak. Look, success and profitability are just outdated concepts based on old-school capitalism, but we can help you transcend that energy by bringing all businesses down an equal amount. Our far-left business strategies that help you go broke might sound like communism at its finest, and that's because they basically are, but we help you get there faster. Here are some questions you can ask yourself about your business. Does the Etsy shop you get your handcrafted painted jars from even have the Ukrainian flag as their profile picture? Did your local dry cleaners post a black square on Instagram? What does Evian Bottled Water think about immigration reform? Where does Olive Garden stand on police brutality? Follow-up question. Why do the breadsticks look like police batons? Does Head and Shoulders even teach their employees about critical race theory? Learn to find the answers to these questions and more when you sign up today. And also when you hire us, you can sleep better at night knowing that we give back. That's right, because we donate 10% of our profits to the fund, the defund, the police movement. And you should do the same, except by the time we're done with you, your profits will be nothing and you'll be happy about it. Conspiracy is the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 
93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.